The following takes place between October 31st, 2015 and January 15th, 2016. Greetings, Dr. Beckett. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime, Dr. Sam Beckett led an elite group of scientists into the desert to develop a top-secret project known as Quantum Leap. Pressured to prove his theories or lose funding, Dr. Beckett prematurely stepped into the Project Accelerator and vanished. He awoke to find himself in the past, suffering from partial amnesia and facing a mirror image that was not his own. Fortunately, contact with his own time was maintained through brainwave transmissions with Al, the Project Observer, who appeared in the form of a hologram that only Dr. Beckett can see in here. Trapped in the past, Dr. Beckett finds himself leaping from life to life, putting things right that once went wrong and hoping each time that his next leap will be the leap home. are listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. This is episode 35. The... It's, it's, it's our Halloween episode. The problem with quantum leaping is that it often left me feeling like a scarecrow, with my head all full of stuffing and no idea as to why I was really there. Maybe we should cancel the spook house. Well, that's something to think about. But if you do, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to be disappointed. And the truth of the times is that, well, some people die and the rest of us go on. I could have saved them, Al, if I had a little warning. Don't blame me or Ziggy. We knew nothing about this. Well, if I wasn't here to save Tully, what am I doing here? You live in Coventry, Maine, and you're engaged to Mary Greeley, who's the organist for the Coventry Presbyterian Church. And, uh uh-oh, tonight at midnight, she's found strangled in the church spook house. Now listen to this. A second later, the goat tugged at the rag. Tully toppled off the ladder and crashed to the ground. He never got up again. This wasn't here before. Then there's someone with a very sick sense of humor wandering around. Dorothy! She's dead. No, no. I want to know what's going on, Alan. I want to know right now. You run another check on the sheriff and you tear Ziggy apart if you have to, but I want to find out who put that black mama snake in the kitchen. Look at the board of deacons. Mary Greeley, Tully Malton, Dorothy Yeager. Now, who would want to kill all the Board of Deacons? Yin and Yang, good and bad, God. The devil. Welcome back to the Quantum Leap Podcast. I'm Albie. And I'm Heather. And we have a great show for you today. Later, we talk to Emmy Award-winning actress Valerie Mahaffey, who played Mary Greeley in this episode. We also talk to Paul Link, who played the sheriff. And in this edition of A Novel Concept, we have author Melissa Crandall. She wrote the Quantum Leap novel, Search and Rescue. So that's a good one. You want to stick around for that, too. Oh, that's cool. Also, we talked to Chris Rupenthal, who wrote this episode, was a producer for a lot of Quantum Leap, and he also made a little appearance in this episode. So uh, we have a lot of spooky stuff to talk about. This episode is definitely filled with things to talk about, and I think this is definitely the weirdest Quantum Leap episode so far, so I'm kind of excited to talk about it. We've wanted to record the show for quite a while now, but we've had so many technical issues, it's just 
crazy that it took us so long to get to this episode. We're actually celebrating the holidays right now. So it took us a while, but uh, you remember our Halloween party when we wanted to talk about this? Yeah. It wasn't that too long ago, just, you know, on October and the end of October. and. Oh, yeah. We were actually, we played Wreck-It Ralph characters for Halloween. Oh, I was Wreck-It Ralph. You were. And I was Fix-It Felix and... <sighs> All right, and we are recording the episode for The Boogeyman. If I hear the uh, Monster Mash one more time, aren't there more Halloween songs that they can play at this party? You know, I don't know of many Halloween songs. Do you? I mean, there's like the haunted music or Monster Mash. I'm pretty sure that's... Monster Mash. Okay, so I guess they're going to play that again and again and again. But it's a smash. A graveyard smash. <laughs> I had to take my teeth out. Your teeth? I'm also uh, Dracula, but in another party next door. And I have to keep switching between Wreck-It Ralph and Dracula, depending on which party I'm at. Seems like a really complicated change every time. Costume change. Yeah, and a couple times I got confused in half of Wreck-It Ralph and half Dracula. It was confusing. But anyway, my teeth are out now so I can talk. So this is all about the boogeyman. What was your first impression, Heather? I still don't even know what I think of this episode. I'm I'm confused because I don't know. I don't know what really happened. So are we going now before I tell you my opinion of this episode, are we going with the fact that the first he went through both timelines, but nobody else remembers the first one or I guess not the first timeline, but the first timeline in this episode? Are we saying that he went through that whole first timeline Things really did happen, and then the slate was wiped clean, or was the first one a dream sequence manipulated by said being in the few minutes that Sam was knocked out? There are many interpretations of this episode. Well, you know Chris Rubenthal, so I'm assuming you have some sort of insight into this. Well, I have my own opinions, but I have it on good authority that later Chris Rubenthal will break his 25-year silence on this episode and tell us what it all actually was. Sigh. <laughs> so stay tuned. Don't fast forward those four hours from now. The first time I saw this episode, my first impressions, which is, I think that's what you asked me, right? So my first impression... This was definitely such a different episode than we're used to with Quantum Leap. And not that I expected it to be a lighthearted episode. Obviously, Halloween, spooky, I kind of expected it to be a little spooky. But this was like full on dark episode. When the sheriff's car at the end of the episode is at the spook house and you realize something is not right. That's when I literally had no clue where it was going to go. I didn't suspect Al. I, I knew things were weird, but I thought he was sensing like a weird presence or it was just like a weird thing. But I didn't suspect Al at all. So that was really written well that I didn't think Al was behind any of it. Obviously, watching it back, I see clues and hints and things like that. But the first time around, I didn't think, oh, Al is not really Al. Because he, for the most part, is acting kind of like himself. And the little things that he does, you don't really notice until you watch it again because you're, you're then looking for them. So I liked this episode. I was actually more excited, I think, to talk about it than a lot of the other episodes we've watched, just because I'm still so intrigued by the whole concept of the episode. You know, it's much more exciting to talk about a mysterious episode like this than 
just a normal leap. I really liked it in the fact that it's such a different episode and it's not heart-wrenching like like the other different episodes we've had in the past. So it was a nice episode and I like the Stephen King tie-in. I was never really a big fan of horror movies, so I'm I wasn't really into Stephen King until I read 112263, but I've always been fascinated by his story style. And obviously, he's a good writer. I just, I'm not really a big fan of horror movies. So that was a really good element that they had going through the story. And it was more in depth than Peggy Sue or, you know, the little tiny ones they throw in just for like extra credit. This episode, it was ingrained in the whole story that he was dropping hints for Christine or all Stephen King references the whole time. So that was nice at the end. I'm actually really excited about this because I'm excited to talk to you about it because it's such an intriguing concept for me. I'm sure we'll talk about that and a lot more after the episode recap. This is Season 3, Episode 5, The Boogeyman. Original broadcast date, October 26th, 1990. Written by Chris Rubenthal and directed by Joe Napolitano. Sam has to wonder if the effects of the drugs that Edie had been taking had started to rub off on him. As when he leaps in, he is wearing medieval clothing, holding a candle in one hand and a book about witchcraft in America in the other. Seeing it was published in 1879, he comes to the conclusion that that's where he is leapt to. A gust of wind blows out his candle. Sam has a look around the room and is freaked out when he sees it is covered with cobwebs and filled with paranormal paraphernalia as well as a pet snake. Deciding to explore, he goes upstairs and hears a groan on the other side of the door. After opening it, a demon is on the other side, scaring him. Another demon jumps down from the top of the stairs, and Sam falls down the staircase, getting knocked out. A woman runs down the stairs to check on Sam, who she is calling Josh. One of the demons turns out to be a dorky-looking teenage boy named Stevie. Mary comments how everything Josh does is very scary, and Stevie says he wants to write the scariest novel ever. As he leaves, it's revealed that the house is the Presbyterian Church Spook House, which Josh lives in, and is decorated as a haunted house for a Halloween party. Sam stares at the spooky scarecrow in the yard, thinking he feels like one himself, his head full of stuffing and no idea where he is and why he's there. Mary thinks Sam's planning how to kill him, Sam protests, so Mary thinks he will have to rewrite the book, making Sam realize that Josh is an author. Mary suggests burning him at the stake like the woman who lived at the house before them, revealing that it is 1964, claiming history should repeat itself and the man should haunt the house like their house is haunted by Alice. Sam hears banging and thinks it's the ghost, but it's an elderly handyman named Tully trying to fix an upstairs window. Sam goes upstairs to his office, sees some of Josh's books, all horror stories, and reads the start of his newest novel, which has been written on the typewriter. Tully calls to Sam through the window that those who dance with the devil are bound to get scorched. Sam sees a goat on the ground, which pulls out the ladder, and Tully falls to his death. Sam and Mary give statements to Ben, the sheriff. Sam is frustrated by the line of questioning, such as being asked to describe the goat. It was a goat. Sam suggests canceling the spook house, but the sheriff advises against it, considering the number of disappointed people there would be. 
Al, who has just arrived, can't explain why Ziggy didn't pick up on Tully's death, but tells Sam that he is there to save Mary, who is found strangled at midnight. Sam presses, but Al changes the subject, pointing out that the snake is a black mamba, one of the deadliest snakes there is. They return to Sam's office to talk, and someone has written an explicit detail about Tully's death on the typewriter. Al suggests that it was Mary or someone else with a very sick sense of humor. The phone rings. Mary answers and says it's Dorothy who wants to bring some candlesticks for the spook house. When she arrives, Dorothy reminisces about Tully and has Mary get the candlesticks from her car because they are too heavy for her. When Mary returns, Dorothy wants to get cider for everyone. Al reappears and tells Sam that he checked everyone's probability matrix and that Mary is definitely the one that needs to be taken care of. Sam again suggests canceling the spook house. A blood-curdling scream is heard from the kitchen, and Dorothy is found dead on the floor. She has been bitten by the black mamba, which someone released from its encasement, and which also tries to attack Sam and Mary. Sam fights it off with a broom, and it slithers into the next room, and Al tells Sam that it escaped through the vent. Sam angrily tells Al to investigate Ben and to find out who released the snake, even if he has to tear Ziggy apart to do it. Sam and Mary return from giving another statement to Ben. Mary feels sick, so Sam offers to get something for her stomach. Sam and Al talk in the office and find there is more writing from the typewriter, this time describing Dorothy's death. Al is adamant that Mary is the culprit, but Sam isn't so sure. Mary catches Sam talking to himself and hears mention of being a demented psychopath. She's hurt and thinks Josh doesn't want to marry her anymore. A school flies across the room, Al calls her a witch, and she then passes out and has a seizure. Later at the hospital, Mary is still unconscious. Al says Ziggy had no idea Mary was epileptic, which Sam isn't surprised by considering how useless Ziggy has been so far this sleep. Sam thinks the flying skull can be explained by psychokinesis, brought on by Mary's short-circuiting neurons caused by her epilepsy. Al still thinks she's the killer, but Sam doesn't think so, because there's no connection. To try to prove or disprove the theory, they decide to go to Mary's house to look for clues. She lives at 966 Salem Avenue. Sam opens the door for Al, and as he walks through, the 9 drops to look like a 6, so the address reads 666. Inside, they discover a list of the church's deacons. Tully, Dorothy, and Mary. They wonder who would have something against the church deacons, and they are walked in on by Ben, who thinks Sam must be schizophrenic. He asks why Sam is there, and Sam covers by saying Mary asked him to get some things for her. The sheriff doesn't believe him, as Mary is still unconscious. Ben accuses Sam of the murders, but Sam counters. Al points out the sheriff's tattoo, the start of an Air Force tattoo, embarrassing for someone in the Navy. Sam suggests that Ben try to find a connection between the killer and the church deacons, while Ben suggests that Sam gets a lawyer. Back at the hospital, Mary has woken and apologizes to Sam. He asks how she feels, and she says a six-month honeymoon in the Bahamas would cure it. Sam questions her to find out if there is anyone who would want her dead, but she can't think of anyone. She comments on his newfound decisiveness and confidence. Driving home, Sam tries to figure everything out. Sam is startled by a car that seems to be following him and a cat that appears in his back seat out of nowhere. The car turns down another street, but Sam veers off the road trying to avoid the goat, which has walked out onto the road. Sam then swerves to avoid a walking pumpkin-headed scarecrow and crashes. 
The scarecrow was Stevie in his costume. He was trying to flag Sam down to get help as his car had broken down. Sam says it wasn't Stevie's fault and tells him what happened. Startled by the cat, trying to avoid the goat, and then the car having a mind of its own like in Christine. Stevie is confused about the Christine reference and says that he didn't see a goat. He also mentions that Sam doesn't own a cat. Back at home, Sam reads through one of Joshua's books about the supernatural and stops at the chapter about the devil. Al appears and repeats Tully's line, Those who dance with the devil are bound to get scorched. Frightening Sam. He says that Ziggy still thinks Sam is there to save Mary. Sam still thinks it's Ben, being the only one with the opportunity to kill both Tully and Dorothy, while Al suggests it was the boogeyman. Sam remembers seeing a matchstick in the kitchen. Ben was often seen chewing on a matchstick, which suggests that Ben had time to kill Dorothy and write the note, but it didn't explain the goat. Al tells Sam that Ben has to be stopped, so Sam calls the sheriff's office to speak to him. They say they had been looking for him for half an hour themselves, so he calls the hospital to warn Mary, where he finds out that she had already checked out and is waiting for Ben to pick her up. He tells them to not let her go with him. Al calls to Gushy to be centered on Mary and disappears, while Sam goes to get her. On the way, Sam sees the sheriff's car crashed on the side of the road and investigates to find out that Ben is dead. Not far from the car, Sam again sees the goat. Sam returns home and is surprised to find the sheriff's car, fully intact, parked out front. Sam asks Stevie if Mary and Ben are inside, and after an affirmative answer, sends Stevie home. Mary greets Sam, and he informs her that Ben is dead, but she says he's in the kitchen. Ben enters, telling Sam, it's about time. Sam grabs Ben's arm, and in a flash of red light, he morphs into Al, who bleats like the goat. Sam and Mary run to the door, but he locks it with advanced psychokinesis. Sam realizes that Mary was never in danger. Until now. Al says killing Tilly and the others was fun, because it seemed to have a pattern, but at the same time didn't. Sam counters that it did and rattles off all of Al's irregularities this sleep, quoting Tilly's line without being told, not walking through anything, not using the imaging chamber door, and not using the hand link to teleport. He was also the only other person around when Tully and Dorothy died. Al replies that his favorite part was Sam's face when reading the messages he wrote on the typewriter, laughing at him. The imaging chamber door opens, with the real Al apologizing for being late, but Ziggy had been unable to locate him. Al immediately freaks out, seeing his doppelganger, and Ziggy says there is definitely someone there with Sam. When asked by Mary who he is, the imposter reveals he is the devil and that he is there to put an end to Sam's meddling. Sam had been putting right what he had made wrong. Sam claims he was just trying to get home. The devil taunts Sam that he's not going to make it, laughing hysterically while attacking Sam, strangling him. Al tells Sam to fight back, so Sam tries to strangle the devil. Objects fly around the room, the piano plays itself, Sam and the devil spin faster and faster in a circle with the devil constantly changing his form to Tully, Dorothy, Ben, the goat, and Mary. As the clock strikes 12, the devil lets go and Sam falls to the floor, getting knocked out. When Sam regains consciousness, he is being checked on by Mary and Stevie, with Mary saying how worried she was. 
Al says he was scared too. They lost him for a couple of minutes. Sam immediately checks if it's the real Al by passing his hands through his holographic friend's stomach. Sam reveals that for a while there were two Al's and one was trying to kill him. Stevie exclaims that that's a neat idea for a story. Al attributes it to a dream and proceeds to tell Sam details about his leap. Sam realizes that time has been reversed and he has returned to the start of the leap, just after he had initially fallen down the stairs. As soon as Al mentions needing to save Tully, Sam runs to his office, catching Tully in his window and pulling him in, just as the ladder falls. Al comments how incredible it was that Sam knew what to do before being told. Stevie notices the time and says he has to leave to peel grapes for the eyeballs. Sam looks out the window with Al and says it was the goat, but it is nowhere to be found. A short amount of time passes in which Sam tells everyone about his dream, including Mary getting angry and making a skull fly across the room. But at least it wasn't kitchen knives. Stevie again comments how neat an idea it would be for a story. After hearing the toot of a car horn, Mary greets Stevie's mother, Mrs. King, and Stevie pets his dog, Cujo, which is in the backseat of the car. As Sam comes to the realization he has given Stephen King the ideas for his stories, including Carrie and Christine, he leaps. And thank you, Heather, for that episode recap. Very well read. And that was written by Hayden. Thanks, Hayden. Wow, this episode is kind of creepy, spooky, confusing. There's a lot going on in this episode. It's not a normal Quantum Leap episode. It's definitely not. And it's also our first glimpse into what is controlling this whole time leaping thing. Or who's not controlling it, I should say. But he obviously has some sort of, uh, what what do you call him, Dev Al? Dev Al has obviously some sort of control. I may have coined that name. <laughs> Copyright Albie. Hashtag Dev Al. Hashtag. Did you really just do that with your fingers? <laughs> uh, but he obviously has some sort of control. Whether this was an alternate timeline. I've still, I, I'm still... I'm intrigued to see what Chris Rubenthal has to say. Because every time I watch it, I'm like, I still don't know what's going on. Like, I still... My my understanding, my opinion, before I hear what Chris Rupenthal has to say later, is that each timeline both exists. He just goes back and fixes it the second time. Like, whoever the opposite of whatever, what is it, God, time, fate, or whatever? Is that the... A yang and yang. <laughs> do you do that really well? <laughs> I was uh, an evil hologram for a while. Were you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, I've had many jobs. Yeah. Put that on your resume. Doesn't pay well. So whoever is usually in, in control of putting right what once went wrong steps in and says, okay, that's enough. You had your, your fun. We're going back to the real reason why we're here. I think that's what happened because there's no way he would know all of those things. But my biggest dilemma with this whole episode, the thing that annoys me every time I watch it is... Why is it that the first time we go through the timeline, if it's the same timeline twice and he just goes back the second time without evil Al, Dev Al, sorry. (laughs) Why is it that we are way into the episode 
timeline the first time before Tully falls. And the second time, it's right after he falls down the stairs, he's got to run back upstairs to save Tully. There is a big time inconsistency in that one. I never noticed that. Seriously? Yeah. Every time I watch that episode. Okay, so let's let's think back. We have the first timeline. He falls down the stairs. They say goodbye to Stevie. She's cutting pumpkins. They hear Tully upstairs. He goes upstairs. They're talking. He's looking at his book stuff. He's reading what's in the typewriter. Then he talks to Tully. Then Tully falls. Second time around, he falls down the stairs. He's out for a couple minutes. They talk. Then he has to run upstairs. Even if he was out for a couple minutes, the whole other timeline was at least like 30 minutes before. That is part of the confusing nature of this episode. This episode is very confusing, but not because it was badly written. I think it was really well written. That's why it's confusing, because it was well written. (laughs) Right. I think the whole episode is supposed to give you that weird, confusing, eerie sense like when you're having a dream. Where things kind of make sense, but not really. Enough to let you keep going with the story, but strange enough to where it's just off. Well, I think we've, in the Quantum Leap crew, have been talking about believability lately and shows having a level of believability. So you go along with it, even if there are things that are slightly off. Like I said, you don't notice that Al doesn't want anything to do with cigars, You don't really think much of his hair being different. You don't think much of him not using the chamber door, of him not really knowing what's going on. You're thinking he's part of whatever is affecting this whole timeline. You don't think he's the cause of it. But I I, really, I thought you would have noticed that too. But the timeline, there's definitely a, a big inconsistency, which it works because then he has to rush to save Tilly and he gets there right at the right time. I was like, man, there was a big gap of time the first time around where she's cutting the pumpkins. They're talking about killing off the character. Stevie leaves first that time. You know, like there was definitely a a different series of events the first time. I found it odd that he ran up the stairs to grab him through the window rather than running out the front door around the house to hold the ladder or catch him. I think in that moment, though, you just do what. You can't. I mean, like, that was just his gut instinct, I guess. You're not like, what would be the easiest way to save someone? He just ran to the closest. This is definitely the first episode to where we take the sci-fi series and turn the corner into fantasy. So now it's a sci-fi fantasy show. Early on in one of Hayden's segments, he let slip that the devil is a reality in this series. So we finally got to that point. I don't know if you noticed that in one of his stories far well, back. I don't think so. And I think he said vampires too and a couple other things that are weird. But we finally got to that point. What do you think about taking a sci-fi show and making it a sci-fi fantasy show? I didn't really think of the technicality. I think what this episode with that switch, like I didn't really think of it as categorization. It was more for me that... I had no idea what was going to come next because they took the normal format for the show and basically threw it out the window with this episode. So in that respect, I don't think that's a bad thing because I don't know if you remember the first time you saw this episode, but I legitimately had no idea when he was walking into the house. I had no clue what was going to come next. And that's a really good feeling to have when you don't know because... 
I mean, it's kind of cool to predict something and have it happen because you're like, oh, I knew that was coming. Or it's really bad, like in the Star Wars movie, <laughs> when you know it's coming and it's bad. Anyway. Spoiler, sweetie. Yeah. But in this episode, I legitimately did not know what to expect. And that is a really refreshing thing, especially considering this is a series from the 90s. This is when you had sitcoms like that. For So for this show to for you to watch it and not know what to expect next especially in the third season i mean this is i guess this is where a show would start to pick up and be more interesting and they've already established their rules and their characters so they can pretty much do whatever they want at this point in the series but this episode yeah i didn't really look at it as now it's a fantasy series i just thought it was cool that they went a completely different route than one was expected. But yeah, at that moment when he's walking into the spook house at the end, I was like, Stevie's the killer. Mary's the killer. I don't know what's, I had no clue, but I didn't expect it to be the devil and have them have like the weird choking spinning circle. Like that was not what I had assumed was going to happen. My memory of my first viewing of this episode was the exact same feeling I think you're supposed to have watching the episode, which you have already talked about, which is just, it's a mind bleep. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> Sam always... I love that you insert your own bleeps. <laughs> Sam always saves the day, always saves the person who is supposed to have died or something happened to him. He saves him. So... Right away, Tully dies, and you're like, that doesn't happen. Sam always saves the day. What's going on? And then you try to figure out who did it, and you, you saw the goat do it, so it's weird. Why would a goat do it? And so there's no murder, but he should have been there to save the day and save the accident. But in the past, he's been there after murders. So your brain's kind of like, okay, there must be more to the story. But not during. I don't think. Right. That's that believability where you're like, okay, well, he's leaped in after murders before. So maybe they're he's going to save the next one. And then Dorothy dies. Right. Which is strange because then you see Sam's frustration like it happened again. I always save the day, but two people have died. And it's very confusing and all this spooky stuff that's going on. And then when the sheriff dies. And he's like, no. That's exactly how I felt watching the episode. Like, what the? Yeah, it was more like a what the? Exactly. Because you're like, how many people have to die? Like, what is going on? And just like Dev Al said, there's a pattern, but there's not. There's nobody to blame. There's nobody. And I had started to tell you this before. At that point, at the end, when you're like, okay, I don't understand who could be the killer. You're like, okay, Stevie, I guess, is the only person left. Because if Ben's dead, but then there's the second Ben, Mary was in the hospital. I didn't ever think it was Mary. I did for a little bit because she's just got that weirdness about her. I love her, like, old-fashioned accent. Yeah, it's cool. I thought thought that's how she spoke in real life, too. It's weird. That was a really cool accent. I want to have that accent. I want to learn it and use it on a daily basis. But yeah, I never thought that she was the killer. 
And then when Sam gets back to the house and the sheriff's there again, I'm like, okay, I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like at that point when the car's there and perfectly fine and he tells Stevie to go home, like at that point, that is where the line was where you were like, all bets are off. <laughs> There's no way that this could be a normal outcome. Up until then, I'm really trying to figure the mystery out. But at yeah. that point, I'm like, okay, there's no way. Yeah, like, okay, something, this isn't a normal Quantum Leap episode. It, it never occurred to me that Stephen King could have been the killer. Well, I think my brain was just like, there is no one else. Like, Ben's dead, because at that point, he was standing in the shadows in front of the house. And I knew it had to be something supernatural at that point, because there's the car and Ben drove her home. I mean, all that time it had to be something weird but i was like when comparing if it was going to be al or stevie stevie seemed like the better choice until he tells stevie to go home and at that point when he's like stevie you can go home i thought stevie was going to be like this is the time i kill you <laughs> stevie could have totally turned around right. and had those crazy right. eyes yeah uh -huh. so once stevie went home i was like I got nothing. Is it the scarecrow? Yeah, like I got I got nothing. So and of course, you know, you always suspect Ben and when you see that he's still alive, you're like, okay, he must be some sort of evil being. But yeah, I didn't suspect Alan. And looking back, you're like, okay, so he doesn't like cigars. He shows a disinterest to cigars what two or three times in the episode. And then you see the little horns that they did for his hair, which is which is kind of cool. I don't know if that was on purpose or not, but I know that that's pretty cool that they did the horns and... Al's usually horny. <laughs> How fitting. And then you notice that the snake disappears when Al appears. Like, you notice that stuff after... And, like, the goat and Al are never in the same... Every time I see the goat, I think of Al making that noise. Like... Whenever I see it in the episode. So there, I mean, obviously when you wa watch it back, you see all the clues you missed the first time. I was excited to not know the ending because, you know, Sam always does save the day. So you're like, oh, yeah, which is there's a comfort in knowing the ending. There's a comfort in knowing he's going to save the day. And there's a comfort in knowing that, of course, he's going to figure it out and then leap. That's just how that works. But it's nice to have a twist in there. That Jeopardy's always there, even though in the back of your mind, you know he's going to save the day. But there's always like a suspense thinking, well, he might not. But when in this episode, he actually doesn't save the day. As for what the episode is, my thought about the whole thing was that it is a dream. Because he falls down the stairs, bumps his head, and then wakes up later. And all the weird stuff happens in between. And uh, one of the clues for me was one of the characters' name is Dorothy, like in The Wizard of Oz, because that whole thing's a dream. She bumps her head, wakes up later, and everybody was there. You were there. You were there. You were there. So that was always my thought. So we'll have to find out what it really was. My only problem with that is you have to have the data in your head to have the dream. You pull stuff from your head to have dreams. True. It's just your short-term memory filing stuff into your long-term memory, and you happen to watch it go by. Right. And he didn't experience any of that, so how could it be a dream? If you've ever had a really elaborate dream and you wake up and you're like, how have I been asleep for five minutes? How have I? 
there's no way that that was five minutes of real time because in my dream that was a day and a half like that's happened to me before and if you have a dream inside of a dream it's even longer okay inception so i mean that's definitely a possibility i was also thinking that dev al if that part was real he implanted the whole thing in sam's head as a dream so though it wasn't real, it's like he stole his subconscious for those three minutes or whatever and implanted a scenario where he was just messing with his head. Those are my possibilities. But I think it happened twice. Just the second time was it's like a clean slate, except Sam remembered. My other thought on the episode that it's actually a time loop, that it's happened again and again. And every time Sam gets it wrong and then who's ever controlling Sam sleeping, God, time, fate, whatever starts it over again to give Sam another chance, starts it over again to give Sam another chance. My only clue for that theory is when you watch Tully fixing something outside the window, who knows what those are, like shutter hinges, not sure. But every time Tully falls, he scrapes the wood outside the window with his screwdriver. And the first time we see Tully fall, there's probably six or so grooves from the screwdriver against the window. Like the actor in real life was actually scratching the window, probably upsetting the homeowners. But, but there's scratches on the window telegraphing what's going to happen. So to me, if they did that intentionally, like other things that they placed in the episode, it could mean that maybe we're seeing a repeating timeline until Sam actually gets it right. But the only problem with that is if that's the standard operating procedure, like Sam just gets a redo. If he doesn't get it right, then there's no jeopardy in the rest of the series. Can I ask you what the hell was Tilly actually doing up there? I have no idea because those things look like they had been there for a while and there was only one new screw and it was a Phillips head screw and he had a flathead screwdriver. And why would you just not lean out the window a little bit and screw it on <laughs> instead real. of just climbing up a window on top of a rag near a goat? Yeah, the whole situation was a little It was strange, odd. but it's meant to be strange. You're meant to be confused with so many facts and things going on that don't make sense that kind of make sense. I like that. I like the whole setup of this story. I really like this episode. I love the the whole setup of this episode. It's a great episode. It kind of freaks me out a little bit. I really don't like the scene with Deval. That's my least favorite part of this whole episode because obviously it's necessary because then they address that not everybody's happy that Sam is going back and fixing what once was wrong. But that's like my least favorite part of this episode. The buildup and all the detail that went into this episode is so amazing. What have we watched it like six times at this point? At least, <laughs> yeah. We've watched this episode so many times, but it never gets old. Like I find new stuff and I know you have found new stuff every time we watch it. That's when you know it's a really well-written episode when they have not left any details out. I mean, every single detail is in there and extra details. And, and so that's really cool. And there's no real plot faults that I could find at all. Oh, and I meant to say, did you get that idea from the time loop from Doctor Who? Because <laughs> you were saying about the screwdriver and the digging at the wall and all I thought was Doctor Who and the big glass. Where he's trying to punch uh, through the wall for billions of years. The salt rock or whatever it yeah. is. <laughs> if the time was reset, he should have not been able to keep... That was the one thing that didn't fix itself, which was very confusing. But same with Tully's screwdriver marks. <laughs> so odd. So maybe only the big things are reset. So the little things 
aren't. I do not have the answer for the time loop continuum. <laughs> we must look for little clues that were in time loops ourselves. Berenstein bears the fact that it's spelled differently now. It just freaks me out. Well, my theory on that, on the bigger thing, is you know how Big Bang universe expands, eventually slows down and starts to contract, and then the big squeeze, and then the Big Bang again. So every time the Big Bang happens, there's no reason to think it doesn't happen exactly the same way every time. So who knows? This might be... Wow, if only we could get the future Quantum Leap podcast from an alternate timeline. We could just listen. You would. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. Do you ever do you ever look around and go, I swear that wasn't there? <laughs> or I swear that was in a different spot. It'd be pretty crazy to get a bigger picture of if things were like that. I definitely have deja vu a lot and visions of alternate futures and timelines, which really confuses me. But I think that's just a byproduct of us not observing our real universe that we're in, just our brain interpreting different electrical stimulus from our eyes and ears and trying to make sense of what's around us. I definitely have some deja vu, though, where I know I've been in that situation before and it's freaky. Like, I, I know that I've had... I'll say stuff and know for a fact that I've had the same conversation with you. Kind of like right now. Well, no. I mean, obviously, we record Quantum Leap conversations. But I mean, like, I'll look around the room and everything's in the same place that I remember it being in the last time we've had that com same exact conversation. You know what I found myself? To stop deja vu, you look at a digital clock. And if you look at a digital clock, this doesn't work with an analog clock. It only works with a digital clock, with my brain anyway. I'm having bad deja vu and I'm scared of impending doom because I'm imagining some other future timeline that's going along with the deja vu that I'm currently experiencing. <laughs> and if I look at a digital clock, it stops instantly. So it must be some part of the brain that you use to analyze digital clocks that says, oh, this is more important than the deja vu you're experiencing, which to my understanding, deja vu is just your brain being conscious of the memory that your brain just formed before you're conscious of as it's actually happening. So it's just like a second echo, like a reverse echo for a millisecond. And that's enough to tell your brain this has already happened because you're remembering it before you're processing it. I definitely have some deja vu though, where... I know I've been in that situation before and it's freaky. Like I, I know that I've had, I'll say stuff and know for a fact that I've had the same conversation with you. Kind of like right now. Super freaky. We totally just went on a random tangent, but I guess it's kind of related because there's two timelines in this. It episode. could be deja vu. I don't think it's deja vu. Could be an error in the matrix. Well, there was a cat in the episode. What I don't understand is that Al doesn't remember the first timeline, but that was something that I didn't understand is like why Al would not remember. So was that not Al or was the time reset? Well, but when he leaps in at the end and says, sorry, I'm late. So like if it was his subconscious that somebody was placing scenarios in, Either that where that fits because Al has no recollection, but Al is dressed exactly the same. Or does Al just not remember because everything was reset? Why does Sam remember? But Al doesn't because they're linked. Al's outfit was from another mother, too. You're from another mother. <laughs> it's very confusing, but in a good way. There's so many questions. This is almost like an episode of Lost before Lost happened. 
or fringe with the deja vu and the double timelines and the there's not as many questions in fringe. They explain it for you. Well, I guess we'll find out later <laughs> in the interview. <laughs> now I'm now I can't wait. I know. Maybe I'll fast forward. No. You should just fast forward because we we're not that cool. <laughs> you should just go listen to the episode part. Speaking of Chris Rubenthal, wasn't it cool to see him in the episode? Yeah, I've seen his name how many times in so many shows, but it was cool to see his face for a little tiny second. This is definitely his episode because he wrote it, produced it, and he played the Lee B. Yeah. Which is cool. And it reminds me of when Donald P. Belisario was in A Portrait for Troyan. He was just the Lee B in the mirror for a second. Yep. So maybe that's a producer thing. I don't know. I feel like all of the writers, like the writer of the episode should be the leapy just because like. Why not? So what do you think Stephen King thinks about this episode? I'm dying to know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really am. He must have seen it. He must know of it. Right. There's no dancing around the fact that this is legitimately supposed to be Stephen King. I wonder if they had to get clearance from him. And if not, if he was at home watching the episode going, hey, hey, that's that. That's really like me. So I did a little bit of research just because I was curious to see how much of this is correct from his history, because I really don't know much about Stephen King. So he did grow up in Maine, so I'm not really sure if it's the right town or whatever. I don't know. I didn't look on a map to see how close it was, but it all seems to be similar. His mom's name is not Mrs. King. But I mean, it's feasible. It was in a similar town that he was in and during that time. And I don't know what he looked like. I don't know if he had big glasses. But I definitely think it was really fun because it was a B story part of the episode. But yeah, I'm I'm intrigued to see what he thinks about this episode. It just so happens that we're working on a project about a Stephen King thing. And if I do get a chance to talk to him, I will definitely ask him about that. Yeah, like, oh, 112263, great book, great show, loving the show. But... Did you ever see that episode of Quantum Leap? <laughs> 25 years ago, that one time that they did a Quantum Leap episode about your childhood or your youth? How long into the episode on your first viewing before you knew it was Stephen King? Me? Not till the end. Really? Because I, I wasn't paying attention. I wasn't connecting stevie to and i also probably don't know all the references obviously when he says christine and i know of the movies i think a lot of them came out when i was young so it's hard because i was afraid of et as a kid i thought that that was scary when they but not of et of the government part like that whole part with the guns that are now walkie -talkies. walkie talkies yeah but as a kid, I would like that made me so upset. I don't think I was really scared. I think I was upset because I thought they were going to capture E.T. that I never saw the end of the movie, which makes no sense. But I was little. My mom used to watch X-Files and I would hide when it was on because I was super scared of it. So I never really watched horror movies because if I couldn't handle X-Files or E.T., there's no way I could watch. Even Hocus Pocus was creepy to me when I was a kid. I, I was a scared of stuff this definitely would have been creepy then well yeah but i don't know a lot of the references because when those movies came out like i know of carrie and i know of the high school and blood and i've seen scenes and you you can't not know about it but i don't i don't think i've ever watched the whole movie in its entirety like and comprehended the whole thing 
I did watch The Shining. I've seen that a few times with you, but that was not until recently also. And even before I saw that, I had known of, you know, the twins in the hallway and the blood, him putting his face through the door, you know, like certain scenes you can't escape because Stephen King is such a huge presence in our pop culture history, you know? Red rum. Red rum. Yeah. So I, I probably didn't catch as many references as you did when you first saw it because I didn't know them. I think when I was a kid, I really didn't put it together. And watching it again recently, I'm not a big fan of the movies to where I was like, oh, that's the car. Right. I knew in the back of my head that it was Stephen King. But the one clue that really gave it away was the whole Cujo thing, just because I'm traumatized from that movie. I've never seen that movie. One of the first few movies my mom took me to. Oh, nice. <laughs> Is that why you all are scared of dogs? Yes. Nice. When I was a kid, it, you know, I guess my mom thought, oh, a nice story about, you know, a kid, a mom and a dog. Why don't I bring my son to it? He's seven. Oh. So to this day, I'm scared of dogs. But that's like a ginormous dog. Yeah, and it's very scary. St. Bernard's are, isn't that a St. Bernard? Uh, it's scary. They're usually like sweet dogs. Right. I'm sure that dog was a great actor, but it terrified me as a child. It just sounds scary, but like I, I legitimately don't know what that movie's about. It's worth watching. I wouldn't watch it with the kids around. I probably won't watch it. Okay. Dog attacks people. Mm. I've kind of figured. It's like Jaws with a dog. Like Moose Jaws, but with a dog. Moose Jaws? Which is Jaws, but with a moose. Oh. But especially considering my newfound liking for Stephen King because of 1122.63, I really liked that reference. But I think it was supposed to be a surprise at the end. Just like you weren't supposed to be able to guess. I think that was just kind of the way of this episode. That's why they said Stevie instead of like Stephen K. Yeah, yeah. wink wink <laughs> absolutely i think you weren't supposed to know until exactly at the moment that sam realizes it and then you go back in your memory and go oh yeah okay oh yeah yeah uh-huh right yeah people that are big stephen king fans watching it Probably, i'm sure they yeah. get it right away and then that's a nice little plus for someone who is a stephen king fan it would be the same thing if it was like star trek if you're a super diehard star trek fan and they put references throughout the episode you'd be like hey I know what that is. I know. That's awesome that they put that in this episode. And if someone didn't, they wouldn't know any different. Like they do in Doctor Who sometimes. Yeah. Well, you know every episode how I like something that Jean-Pierre Dorliac designed or picked out for the episode. In this episode, it's Sam's jacket. With the shoulder pads? Yeah, with the poofy sleeves and everything. I'm like, ooh, and crushed red velvet. I think I need to find that jacket somewhere. Please don't. I like it in this episode, but I don't feel like it would fit in our daily lives. It's too warm. Right. It is too warm. So, Mary, with that knife on those pumpkins, that looked so dangerous. How else do you carve a pumpkin? With those little dollar store pumpkin knives that break halfway through carving the pumpkin. Oh, I guess. Big knives. But it just looked dangerous. I think it was supposed to look dangerous. Like, here's a psychopathic woman that's going to kill me and she has a big knife. Yeah. Uh, which reminds me, one of my favorite scenes in the episode is when she goes, it's right on the counter in the kitchen in between the refrigerator and the pumpkins right by the big snake. She didn't say right by the big snake. Pretty much, though. But she should have. She should have. Watch out for that snake in there. Snakes scare me. Yeah, I'm not really a big fan. I'm not sure why. Probably because some of them, they bite you and your blood coagulates instantly. Other reasons, are, maybe. Are there animals you're not afraid of? Rats. I love hairless rats. I like... 
<laughs> robot dogs? See, I'm generally not afraid of animals. Even snakes? But my, my thing is, like, if it's over there, I'm cool. Like, if you're over there in a cage or you're over there in the wild, then I'm going to mind my own business over here. But as a kid, we had a boa constrictor. <laughs> my mom had. And I remember we had to lock up the cats to take it out. Like, we used to take <laughs> That's the only memory I have. She lives up to that stereotype. (laughs) Like, she saw Blade Runner and she said, that's the woman I want to be with the snake. It was New Jersey, man. That's just... I think every woman in the 80s, 90s was the same in New Jersey. But, um, yeah, we had a snake and I don't remember being scared of it. I don't know why. To this day, if I go into a pet store and there's a snake in a fish tank, I'm freaking out walking away. I don't know if it's because they have no legs, they could kill me. I don't like you because you have no legs. I have no idea what it is. It's just an instinct. My instinct says get away so you don't die. Yeah, it's probably because some of them are yeah. can kill you. And my, I don't know the difference, so I'm not taking any chances. If it bites me and I die, then, you know, it's not worth it. Yeah, I don't care if they're on the other side of the glass. I don't think I would reach in, but they don't bother me as a general rule. I just wouldn't want them as a pet. How creepy was Paul Link in this episode? I really liked his lisp. It was cool. Is that on purpose? He's a great actor. So that means he doesn't have that lisp in real life. I'm not sure. I'm assuming it's from the match. I don't know, but it was it added so much to his character. I loved his line. This was my other favorite part of the episode that just every time I hear it, I just like it for some reason. He says, you got a gas stove. You like gas stoves with matches. Just the way he Super says creepy. it. And he says it kind of like in a noir movie cadence. And I just, I don't know why I love it, but I love it. And I had no idea he was the guy from Played Against Seymour. No idea. That's how good he is. I think everything he said was kind of creepy in an awesomely awesome way. And like just his presence was so spot on. It was really good. He did really good. And I totally believed he had something to do with it the whole time. I was like, something is up with that guy. Especially with that tattoo. That was like the most misleading. I saw his tattoo and was like, it's a star. I mean, I guess it could be a Wiccan symbol, but I thought it was funny that he was like, it's a warlock and... Which is ridiculous because witches are good and peace and love and love the earth and I'll be over here. Right. But I didn't ever think he was a witch. I mean, like, I never thought he was like Wiccan practicing, but I thought that was a little bit of a comic relief where he was like, yeah, it was on shore leave and I got a bad tattoo. And did you notice how Al chimed in and he was like, I'll say like he was the Navy guy when he wasn't the Navy guy. He was Dev Al, not Al. Well, he had to act like it. And believability. But he didn't know to do the other things. And for that matter, why couldn't Dev Al, the devil, walk through a door if he wanted to? Well, he could. He just didn't. He just didn't. And he disappeared and reappeared, but he didn't do anything Al would normally do in that situation. And seeing that at first, it didn't really bother me. And I didn't notice it because if you remember the episode Another Mother, they're trying out different special effects. Remember when Al disappeared, he got all sparkly in that episode? Well, yeah. And throughout the series, there have been different effects that they've used. So again, that's the believability thing where your brain's like, well, that's not normal, but... Moving on. What about the name Joshua Ray? That sounds like a serial killer to me. It does kind of. I never thought about that. But he's an author. You can tell that Sam is not a fan of the horror genre. He's like, oh boy, looking at all his novels. They just seem like tacky, maybe? I I think that's just not Sam's deal. But if Sam was into horror movies and stuff, then this episode wouldn't have been as 
nerve wracking for him. Like he was ready to cancel everything right off the bat. One thing that confused me, and I've been wanting to ask you, this is the Presbyterian Church's spook house, Halloween party house. So is it a church or is it Joshua Ray's house or what's going on? Is it a house? Is it a church? It doesn't look like a church from the inside. So I'm confused. It's definitely not a church. It's a house. Like I never questioned it, but my understanding is it's Joshua Ray's house but he works closely with the church, so they're sponsoring it becoming a spook house. That's like if we were to have a party here for a church, it would be their party. It would just be at our house. I understand now, but that was very confusing for me. Well, yeah, I think Hayden had it included in the recap that his house was the church. But no, he it, that's his house because he has neighbors and it's a normal house, normal yard. It's definitely not a church. So he's just hosting the church's party at his house. Basically. And I'm assuming that has a big thing to do with the fact that he's really close with three of the deacons in the church. Oh, that makes sense. They were like, oh, we should just do it at your house. Or he was like, hey, I want to do a spook house. Do you want to get the church involved and we'll make it a big thing? So because he's got a creepy house and snakes and spider webs. Right. I think why I was confused, I grew up in a small town, Farmingdale, New Jersey, and the church's spook house was in the church. Well, I'm sure that that's an option as well. But this was definitely Joshua's house, and Mary then lived at her own house on Salem Avenue. I have another question. Spooky factor, like scary, creepy factor. How do you compare this episode to A Portrait for Troyan? I think this one's creepier because... That one wasn't as in-your-face supernatural as this one is. That one had some spooky elements to it that were unexplainable. This one is explainable. I mean, like, this one, it's like, I'm not, we still don't know if it's a dream or reality or whatever. We will by the end of the show. Dun-dun-dun. With A Portrait for Troyan, it was just the ghost lady, right? That's what you're talking about. The maid. I mean, that was kind of a creepy afterthought, but it wasn't as big of a... This creepy factor, the Deval thing, ran the whole episode. So that's a... I think this one's creepier. That one's more mysterious, I think. This one's more in your face. What I found fascinating in this episode is we finally found out how Sam deals with failure. He doesn't deal well with failure. No, he's not used to it. No. And I can understand him being upset because people are dying. Right. And it's his job to save them, to prevent it. There's no tricks or treats tonight. It's just death. That was so creepy that I said that. There's a couple of funny parts in the episode. I liked uh, where the 966 Salem Avenue became 666. I think that was supposed to be creepy, but... <laughs> to me, it was funny because you could see it coming. Yeah. I like when he's like, cross my heart and hope to hula in the Caribbean. Because <laughs> I don't hope to die because everyone else is dying around me. <laughs> cross my heart and hope to hula. That's my new saying. <laughs> the other funny part was, I think, seeing the wire on the skull before it flew off the shelf. And it was weird to me that they didn't use that wire to shake the skull. It was just there for when they pulled it off the shelf. Mm. So they didn't really need it there in those shots. But... I'm sure back then nobody saw it, but it's just funny to watch today. I didn't really look for wires and stuff this episode. They were very visible on the books flying off the shelf, too. Oh, yeah. I just don't look for that kind of stuff, I guess. I really love the music in this episode. It was very creepy, and it really set the mood, and it really got your emotions on edge. Do you know what I feel was unnecessary? 
I did enjoy the music as well. But I feel like the red light on Al's eyes in the Dev Al scenes was unnecessary. The music, I think, would have been enough. It did relate to music. I wasn't just completely on my own thought train, even though that's normally where I live. It didn't bother me, but I've heard that before from other people. That It was just weird. You know what I found strange in this episode? What? Candles lit everywhere in empty houses. Like at Mary's house where she wasn't there and there was candles lit when she was in the hospital after she'd been at the spook house all day. So how long were those candles lit when nobody was home? The only thought I had was either Al lit them because just the devil lights all the candles around him before he enters a room. <laughs> Or that creepy sheriff guy was there with his matches and said, ah, I can light a candle with this match. You come home and you're like, damn it, Dev Al's been here. The candles are all lit again. It just didn't make sense. (laughs) Like they'd walk into a house and there'd be lit candles. I'd be like, what? Who's here? Who lit my candles? This house is made out of wood. It'll go up like a a wooden house a wooden house right (laughs) always choose concrete block construction we learned that from the three little pigs but that's a side note i just think it's funny that you just walk in and be like damn it deval was here again (laughs) and nobody noticed lit candles but that freaked me out the whole episode but i'm an led candle kind of guy especially with our daughter that would be dangerous to have candles lit i noticed that when they were at mary's house i was like okay it's one thing when they were at the spook house and they were all there but they go to Mary's house and she's got candles lit. And I'm like, she has not, she has not been there all day. She was at his house earlier. So it's not like the episode happened and she had a seizure, had to go to the hospital and accidentally left the candles lit. And how was the cop in the house before those guys were in the house and his truck wasn't outside? I thought he came in after. Did he? But then you didn't hear the door shut. I think all of this wasn't continuity errors as much as just enough to keep to you... F with you. Yeah, keep you on tilt so you Who were just creeped Who needs continuity out. in this episode? You really don't. Because did it really happen? We don't know. Well, like, and you don't even know if Ben was even there. If we're going that it's the real timeline the first time as well. Necessarily didn't have to be Ben at Mary's house because it could have just been Al times two... Dev Al and Dev Ben. So both Ben and Al are Dev Ben and Dev Al? Well, I was. It's possible possible that Ben wasn't even there because you don't really hear. I don't remember hearing a door shut when he walks in. Not at all. I'm not up on my devil knowledge other than the Klingon devil Feklar and what he can do. Like, can he be in two places at once? I'm guessing. He's magic. He embodied a hologram and made it into flesh and bones. And goat. And goat and locked them in a house and murdered three people and made cats and goats appear. And I'm pretty sure he's capable of whatever he wants. Hocus Pocus, Alamogocus. So I'm of the thought that Sam had to experience this time loop or dream once before to know that Tully was going to die to save him because... Usually they leap in in plenty of time to find out what's going on, who's going to die and how they're going to save him. But he would have had time enough the first time. If he knew. It was still shorter than normal. Normally they have a few days before something happens. Yeah. This was a matter of minutes. But maybe he needed to go through that timeline to find out because Al wasn't able to find him because Dev Al was messing with him so much that whoever's controlling the leaping went with it so Sam could find out what he needed to know before the timeline was reset. 
Yeah, okay, I don't know. You lost me, but I... Kind of like a video game where you have to die in the video game or fail, but get some kind of information from that experience so you can go back and try again and win the game. What comes to mind is Star Trek Borg. You cannot win that game unless you die in it first and find out something. I never thought of that as being, like, a thing. I just thought Dev Al hijacked the leap or his consciousness. Do you have any other theories of what it could be before we find out for Mr. Rupenthal? I honestly think the timeline happened twice. And by the time whoever caught on to it and stopped it and restarted the time loop, that's what happened. Twice or at least twice? Twice. I think Mary, her reaction to him being in the room is real. Now thinking back, which could have been in his dream. I mean, it could have been a fake scenario, I suppose. But if the Dev Al character was the one orchestrating the entire scenario in his dream state, would Mary's reaction to him walking into a room, because Mary senses him every time he's in the room. She can sense him uh, when they're talking to Dorothy and he walks in the room, she cringes. Which made me either think she was possessed by him to do the things she was doing, or she could sense his evil. So I feel like that was a legit reaction to him. So that's why it makes me believe that they did two timelines. So like the devil hijacked the first one and made things happen that weren't supposed to happen. And then God time fate or whatever was like, wait a second, let's re- do this time loop and you go back to your corner and we'll redo it the right way this time. So who or whatever is controlling the leaping has the ability, if things don't go right, to reset it. Do you think that invalidates the Jeopardy in the rest of the series now? I think within reason. I don't think he can redo an unlimited amount of times, but obviously Sam is going back in time to redo it the first time. So if he's given the ability to redo it the first time, I would say it's not out of the realm of possibilities that he could redo it twice. And it's not that Sam failed. It's that someone altered the timeline to make him fail because Dev Al is the one who pushed the ladder, released the snake or was the snake, depending on which way you look at it, and crashed the cars. So... If there was a redo, it wasn't because Sam failed. It was because someone else was interfering with the timeline. So then if someone interferes, then whoever's controlling the leaping has the ability to reset it. I would assume. Because like I said, he's redoing it already. So do you think it's weird that it was just an instant reset and he woke up when he bumped his head? Because there was no leap effect. He didn't leap from the turntable back to at the bottom of the stairs. Because that would have meant... He did leap, and it was definite. But nothing's really definite about what happened. No, it's like they undid what the devil did, Deval did. Like, they just hit a rewind button. Or, like, last chapter. Previous chapter button. So the vertical line with the two triangles pointing back. Yes. Previous chapter. Interesting. So the pilot light's out in the stove, and there's candles everywhere. Dangerous. I'm against gas stoves. No house ever blew up from an electric stove. Don't jinx us now. (laughs) Yeah, creepy episode. Oh, yeah. But good. Amazing. 
Yes. It's, very good. it's one of my favorites. I have a lot of favorites because I love the whole series, but this is definitely, it ranks up right up at the top for me. Yeah, I agree. And Al didn't have to suffer for this one. <laughs> <laughs> so that's always a good thing. As promised earlier, we have amazing guests on this show. And our first guest is the one and only Paul Link. I'm excited to hear his take on the episode because I really liked his character. Paul Link was born in New York, New York, the son of Richard O. Link, a personal manager, producer, and partner of Andy Griffith. After roles in films such as The Baby Maker, Big Bad Mama, The Strongest Man in the World, and Moving Violation, Paul Link appeared in the cult classic 1977 movie Grand Theft Auto, which was Ron Howard's directorial debut. During the time frame of his character on the television series Chips, Link played a similar role as Sheriff Bruce Smith in the cult classic slasher film parody Motel Hell. He also appeared in another Ron Howard-directed movie, the film Parenthood. His other film credits have included roles in Space Rage, Shrunken Heads, and K-Pax. His career has included appearances on many well-known television series, such as The Waltons, Laverne and Shirley, Happy Days, MASH, Knott's Landing, St. Elsewhere, Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, Murder, She Wrote, Baywatch, and a recurring role in Judging Amy. He appeared in a 1985 episode of Three's a Crowd, a short-lived television sitcom spin-off of Three's Company, starring John Ritter. Three years later, Link would work with Ritter again when he joined the cast of Hooperman, the ABC dramedy series that Ritter subsequently headlined. In 2000, Link co-wrote and directed the acclaimed stage play Save It for the Stage, The Life of Riley, with actor Charles Nelson Riley. Link met his first wife, Francesca Chex Draper, a musician and composer, at a party in Los Angeles in 1976. They married in 1978 and had three children together, Jasper, Ryan and Rose. When his wife died of cancer in 1986, Link channeled his grief into writing and performing a play called Time Flies When You're Alive. First presented as a one-man show in Los Angeles and HBO drama, the work was then developed into the book Time Flies When You're Alive, a real-life love story. The very emotional work has garnered critical acclaim. Link later married Christine Healy in 1991. They have a child together, a daughter named Lily. Currently, Link is working on a short film, War Dog, in which he plays the driver of Kayla, a young soldier. Link has also completed work on the film The Guest House. When a single dad rents the guest house of a wealthy bachelor, he soon discovers that his new landlord's generosity does not come without a price. Link plays a detective, and the film is due for release in the near future. Of course, Leapers will know Paul Link best for his dual roles in Quantum Leap, Lionel in Play It Again Seymour, and Sheriff Ben Masters in the Halloween episode. Now please enjoy Albie's conversation with Paul Link. Welcome to the Quantum Leap podcast, Mr. Link. It's an honor to have you with us. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm kind of excited because there's a few episodes that I like, and you're in two of them. Played against Seymour, of course, and the episode that not a lot of Quantum Leap fans like to mention the name of. They think it's haunted. <laughs> really? I never knew that. Oh, yeah. It's a big online fan community urban legend that if you mention the name, bad things will happen. 
sort of like the way actors feel about saying the title to the Scottish play. Exactly. Same <laughs> same type of thing. <laughs> Good. I learned something. I never knew that. And I'm glad to be a part of that. Yeah, it's kind of spooky. But can we talk about Play It Again Seymour first, since that came first in your shoot? Of course. Tell me how you became involved with Quantum Leap and how was your experience on that first episode? You know, it was interesting because Play It Again Seymour, was that season two? The end of season one. Okay. I wondered about that because I'll tell you a story about that, which I personally think is interesting, which is besides the fact that the young man did it went on to have such a great career. And of course, his name is eluding me right now. Willie? Garson. Willie Garson. Yeah, he, he went on to do a lot of great stuff. But anyway, there was a night where, and I worked for many years in the business. This was the only time I can ever recall this happening, where they were jamming so hard to get the episode finished. And it was so complicated. And we were at the old Ambassador Hotel, the Coconut Grove which happened to be where my high school prom was, which was kind of strange. But anyway, we were shooting, and the crew worked for more than 24 hours straight. <laughs> I mean, you know, when you think about it, it was ungodly, the hours that they had to put in to get that show. And I also remember that we filmed downtown in a wonderful old Art Deco kind of building uh, where they had that great elevator and stuff. Yeah. And my getting involved with it was simply I went an audition board, and thank God Don Belisario liked me. And he uh, gave me the role, and it was fantastic because Scott Bakula happens to be one of the truly great people that I've met in the business. And to this day, when I see him at parties or whatever, he's just the nicest man, as was Dean Stockwell. I mean, they were just a great duo and played against him in the first year, so they didn't know what was going to really be happening with the show. But I really enjoyed working with those guys. What was it like playing the bad guy in the episode? I like playing serial killers and bad people. It was always fun because I was mostly known for being the comic relief on chips or in films. You know, I was usually the overweight cop who made you laugh, but it was fun to get different stuff. Cool. Having the part in the first Quantum Leap episode, did that help or hurt you get cast in the next Quantum Leap episode that you were in? I got to think it helped because Don Bellasario liked me. And by then he realized that my father was Richard O'Link. And they were old buddies. Oh, cool. And because I had come through with the first performance, I still auditioned, as I recall, for the second job, but got it. That was really fun to get to do more than one episode of a show that I like like that, because I can't tell you the amount of episodes or shows that an actor goes in on through his career and never gets cast, you know, like 10 times to L.A. Law or whatever, wow. you know, or eight times to Matlock <laughs> to actually get to come back. And because then you come back, you know, everybody, you know, the crew, you know, and they're happy to see you. And I I think Joe Napolitano directed The Boogeyman, as I recall, during my research, and uh, he knew me from Chips. He had been around Chips. I can't remember in what capacity, but that's where I first met him. So it was fun. And uh, of course, getting to have the beard and be a little skinnier and all that stuff. It was a lot of fun. How did Joe Napolitano direct you? Were you playing it as the bad guy? Because you were kind of a red herring in the episode, yes. even though it was a strange episode. It was, and, and I, as I recall, you didn't want to give it away, but you wanted to suspect me. You know, you weren't quite sure what was happening. It's been so long, I have to be honest, I, I can't remember any specifics about how he approached it. When filming the episode, did you approach it like it was a dream sequence? Because some people interpret the episode as it all being a dream, and some people think it actually happened in the episode. What was your take on that? You know, I played it as it actually happened, I believe. I don't remember anything about a dream. Okay. Well, Sam falls on the stairs and bumps his head, and then he wakes up, and none of it had happened yet kind of thing at the end. Gotcha, 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 gotcha. But for us playing it, I don't know that we could have played it like we're in a dream. Yeah. Because, you know, let us discover that later, because it has to seem like it was really happening. 
where was this episode shot? You know, I was trying to think about that because I remember certain images. I remember there was a house that we used that I think I was w- once worked in on a different thing. And I, I, it was all in the Southern California area. Nothing radical. I don't really remember where the house was. I, I want to say it was in the valley somewhere. What was it like filming that episode? I know uh, there was like a turntable involved where everybody had to take their turn getting on and spinning around. What was that like? That was very bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you have kids or not, but it reminded me of a bunch of, of that. It's always at a playground. I don't know if there still is anymore. My kids are grown. Yeah. Uh, no grandchildren yet. But there was always that metal wheel that would turn around, you know, with the metal bar. Yeah. And your kid would get it on and you think, oh, my God, please don't, you know. <laughs> get your head bashed in, but, uh, you know, it wasn't as bad as it might have seemed, but it, it was an odd thing. I do remember, I forgot that. That was very odd. Anything else you can remember from, I'll say the name of it, The Boogie? You know, the DP is so important in those shows. I mean, because he's hired by the, the network and the, and the studio to make sure the show has a certain look. And it was the same with Chips. You know, when a show begins that first season, to get a show done in seven or eight days is really, really difficult. Because everyone's getting used to working together and in terms of the lighting and the move from place to place. The hours, as I said, that first show they worked, I don't know, it was almost 30 straight hours, I think, to get that thing finished. Yeah, that's crazy. Seriously, I came and they had been working. I don't remember how it was, but I showed up and they'd already been there. and Boy, we were there forever, forever. It was, it was hard to believe. Because, you know, usually they're so strict about that stuff because of the money. Right. You know, at a certain point, it just becomes... And you see producers standing around the line, producers whatever, standing around looking at watches and time. That, you know, it becomes prohibitively expensive to exceed a certain amount of time. And then you have to be fed every so often. So, it, you know, when they did that, it was some serious cash <laughs> <laughs> to get that episode done. Do you get paid overtime for it? Of course. As an actor, you long for the overtime gigs because mm. it's nice money. Can we talk about Chips for a little bit? Of course. Because I know probably a lot of fans of Quantum Leap are also fans of yours from Chips. What was that like being on such an iconic program that still people love to this day? Yeah, thank God for MeTV and the fact it's on five days a week. It was fantastic. I feel so proud to have been a part of that show. It's interesting now because with everything that's happened and the way the world has grown and, and we see things where the police... You know, who would become a policeman today when you think about mm. it? And at the time, not only were we selling the California lifestyle to people, we were also really presenting law enforcement in a positive light. Because in six years, there was only one gun ever pulled by one of the officers. Oh, wow. And that was uh, my dear friend Bertie Greer as Bericks had pulled a gun. And they spent three hours on the set before they allowed the scene to be filmed because all the powers that be and the network and everyone were like, the gun, no, not the gun, but the, because of what these guys had done, it just was so unrealistic to think that he would be able to get these guys out of the van without pulling the gun. But that was it. So we really were about solving problems with your heads and your hearts and your words. And I felt really very positive about that. I'm very grateful about that. I loved that show when I was a kid. Watching it growing up, I had all the toys and everything. Yeah, it was, it's uh, fun. My kids have never seen it. <laughs> really? You know, maybe when they were young, but yeah, no. I have a 22-year-old. I said, oh, look, it's on now. You can see it. And she's like, eh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I, I can get her to watch one episode. It's very funny. Really? Huh. Yeah. You worked with Michael Dorn in Chips. I did. What was that like? How was your guys' relationship? You know, I, I gave him his name, his character name, Jed. He had no name. And one day I turned around and I said, see you later, Jedediah. 
<laughs> and Larry loved it. Went, oh my God, that is great. <laughs> and so then they named him Jed from then on, Jed Turner, because he was always just Turner. <laughs> Never had a first name. And I also worked with him in a horror film. Really? Oh, Lord. I did a horror film about five years ago or six years ago. Up in, uh, We actually shot it at the prison where they shot the uh, Shawshank Redemption. Oh, cool. And he was in that. And uh, he's a great guy. And of all of us, what a great career he had. Mm. I mean, he went on to, you know, the whole thing with Worf and Star Trek. And, you know, he just fantastic. Happy for him. Awesome. I also wanted to ask you about, yeah, this is a little weird connection that another Quantum Leap guest star, John D'Aquino, has. I know John. With Charles Nelson Riley. Yes. Yeah. Were you friends, all friends with that group? Well, I got to know John through Charles. They had worked together, and I met Charles, who I loved. I loved Charles Nelson mm-hmm. Riley. He was a dear friend. And he'd seen my one-man show. I wrote a one-man show that I was performing in L.A. It was quite successful in the late 80s. And so many people were moved by it. It was with my first wife who died of breast cancer and what I had learned going through it. And it was called Time Flies When You're Alive. And I think it's still available through iTunes or HBO On Demand. I don't know if you can get Time Flies When You're Alive. It was my one-man show talking about that stuff. And Charles had seen it. And I was being interviewed on a TV show. And he called the station and found me in the entry room. Uh, the guard said, hey, is there Paul Link here? There's a phone call for you. And it was Charles. And so he wanted to have lunch with me and wanted to meet the man that does one-man theater better than he did. I had no idea about his background with Julie Harris and all that stuff, but we became friends. And I ultimately co-wrote and directed his one-man play called Save It for the Stage, which is available on VH, on, on DVD, I should say, um, not to date myself. It's called The Life of Riley. And if you ever have a chance to see that film, don't miss it. Because the guys did what I never could do, because they were able to edit it. <laughs> <laughs> I was dealing with the live Riley. There was no editing of Charles in the flesh. No editing. He would do what he wanted to do. But anyway, through him, I met John D'Aquino. And cool. Charles Nelson Riley always seemed like a cool guy. He was a genius. He truly was a comic genius. Mm-hmm. I was I've been very blessed. I grew up, went to college, spent time with, raised children with, and my dear friend John Ritter because we were pals for going back to USC. And, you know, we got married around the same time. We had all of our kids together around the same time. And their kids went all the same schools together. And, you know, he was one of my very, very best friends. So I'm fortunate to have had a lot of laughter in my life. And unfortunately, two of the funniest people one could ever have as friends. They're both gone. And Mm. truly, the world's not as funny a place as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Uh, That was very sad. Yeah. Life. Yeah. Time flies when you're alive, right? That's it. Believe me, that's very true. You seem to play a lot of police officers, detectives. Is that because of the CHIPS affiliation, you think? I think it's just the type I am, I think. Even the way I got CHIPS. I got CHIPS in a very unique way. You know, usually you go in audition, and then you they come, have you come back, and then they have you come back, and then if you get that far, then they say, well, you go to the network. And then if you're approved, then maybe you get the job. They had already started production on CHIPS. They'd made, I think it was eight episodes, and they couldn't find a funny cop. And the guy that was doing the job didn't want to do the show. He wanted to go live on a kibbutz in Israel, so he left. So I went to visit my dad, Richard O'Link, who was a TV producer. You can look him up. He's still alive. He's going to be 98 next month. Awesome. He was Andy Griffith's partner for, for over almost 40 years. He was. I read that. Yeah, through the Andy Griffith show and through Madlock and all that. Yeah. But anyway, I went to visit my father. My father said, hey, uh, there's a casting director looking for you and Gary Schaefer. So I went and he'd seen a movie I had done called Moving Violation that was directed by Charles Dubin. And with Stephen McCaddy and Kay Lenz. And no one saw that movie. That movie came and went in a week. 
But somehow this guy had seen it, and I had a really good part where I, you know, chase the bad guy, and my car rolls over, and I stagger out of the car and do a take. And he thought, you know, this guy would be good for chips. And I literally, my audition for chips was I went in and sat at a long table with a lot of people and made him laugh and was hired. I mean, just like that. Next thing you know, I'm on the show. <laughs> Most of the show, right? Yeah. Many shows. There's a hundred and whatever, many of them for five and a half years. Wow. Talking about your dad, being his son, was it always like pretty much assumed you were going to go into the business or did that have any influence on you? Not at all. He had nothing to do with any of that stuff. I grew up around it. And the truth is, when I was 13, 14, I'd go to the lot and play catch with Ron Howard because my dad said, you know, come on, hang out with this young man. He's, you know, he's a little boy. He's on the set. So I'd go play catch with him. I loved the Andy Griffith set. It was just a fantastic environment. And later in life, I was cast in a Happy Days, and I'm sitting in the makeup chair next to Ron, and he reminded me that I had taken him to his first Dodger game. <laughs> <laughs> when I was 17, I took Ron Howard, to, and he remembered everything about the game. He remembered who won, wow. who was the winning pitcher, who had the winning hit. But my point is that my dad, although he exposed me to all that stuff, really, I was, had never any intention of getting involved in show business whatsoever. I... Uh, Thought I'd be a lawyer. And then the 60s came, and then I was a hippie. And, you know, I went off to college and majored in having fun. And then <laughs> somewhere along the line, I realized that the fun had better stop and that I better figure out what I was going to do. And I just, a tall, redheaded woman said to me, her name was Monday Dooley. And Monday turned to me one day when I was really depressed and thinking about dropping out of school. And she said, Well, have you ever thought about taking an acting class? And I did. And something had clicked. So I pursued it, and then I realized it's really what I wanted to do. And, uh, and my father, you know, he was not keen on the idea at all. In fact, his only comment to me was, well, if you're going to be an actor, you better go get a job because you're going to need it. Hmm. And he was right. So I went and I, uh, I literally, this is true, I drove from his office that day, like about a mile away to this place uh, where this guy had this weird kind of bar restaurant that only served dinner, and he hired me to cook. I never cooked. So I was a cook. And uh, so that I could afford the rent, I moved into a commune, a commune down by my old university, USC. And the rent was $35 a month, 40 if you wanted food. So um, I actually lived in the commune until I saw that I was going to be able to get work and be able to support myself. And fortunately, it happened rather quickly. So within six months, I was living in Laurel Canyon and, you know, was getting jobs. It was fantastic. That's awesome. Did having your father help you or hurt you, or was that like a non-issue when you were auditioning? It had no impact. I remember right before I got chips, Andy was making a pilot for something called Salvage. I think if you look it up, it, it might have gotten on the air. It might have aired half a dozen times or something. It, it didn't work. I remember I put in a good word for Nick Nolte in that because they were looking at him for something, and I remember saying how great he was. But anyway, I went in red for it, and my father left the room. He excused himself. Hmm. And that was as close as we ever got to being in the business together was that moment. I mean, truthfully, when Matlock was happening, he tried to get me a job on that. Right. But truthfully, by then, his relationship with Andy had turned, and Andy didn't really want to give me a job on the show. Mm. So, you know, I went in all those times. I never got it. Wow. Which was really painful for me because I grew up thinking that he was one of the greatest people of all time and was quite disappointed to, because I never, I never understood it. It had nothing to do with me. He was just, he and my dad were or whatever they were into. I think there's a book coming out about Andy and Don. Really? I think there is one coming out. My dad showed me the copy of it. 
or a picture of it, um, yeah, coming out this fall. And it should be kind of interesting for people because he was a very interesting character, Mr. Griffith. That does sound interesting. I'll check that out. Yeah, check that out. And, of course, you've been in major motion pictures like K-Pax and Parenthood. Can you tell me a little bit about those things? Well, I can tell you that K-Pax I took, even though there were no lines. You know, you go, like, really? I'm going to do a part with no lines? And they, oh, we're going to give you lines. We're going to give you lines. They're never going to give you lines. <laughs> but I didn't care because uh, Jeff Bridges is a friend, and he had gone out of his way to try to get me parts in his films. I mean, seriously. And finally, even though this didn't really have anything to do with him, I was going to be in a Jeff Bridges film with Kevin Spacey. Mm. And I was going to get to go to New York because that was part of the gig. And it was work. And I get to hang around. And so I said, fantastic. And I got to go see my late wife's father. And it was a really fun gig. And it's a good movie. I like the movie. Kevin Spacey, I cannot say enough about him. I mean, truly an amazing man. I had gone to the Ovation Awards, which is a theater award here in L.A., on behalf of Charles, on behalf of our play, because Charles was up for best one-man show. And he asked me to go and accept for him if he won. And, of course, I was sitting there terrified, hoping, you know, in a sense, he didn't win. <laughs> they, wanted, they would want me, they wanted him. But anyway, mm-hmm. and the first award of the evening was Best Supporting Actor in a Play. And so Kevin was the surprise guest, came out, and everyone goes, oh, my God, it's Kevin Spacey. And he's giving the Best Supporting Actor out. So, he, you know, this person, he names this person, he names this person. And the last person, the fifth actor, was an African actor with a name that was so complex. And he said it flawlessly. <laughs> and I remember thinking, God, that is amazing. He is so great. So then I, I, I had this job. And the next day, I you know, within a few days, I'm with him in a room at a rehearsal. And there was a break. And I said, excuse me, I have to tell you, I was so impressed. Uh, I was so kind of you to give up your time to come to the Ovation Awards. And how did you get that guy's name out? <laughs> and he said, well, you know, I asked him for a list of the names. And immediately upon seeing that name, I got the people involved and I was given the right pronunciation. Wow. Because it was important to me that it was his moment. Mm-hmm. It wasn't about me screwing up his name and getting a laugh or something. It was to honor him for his work. And I just thought, bow down to you, man. You are fantastic. And he is. And being around him on that set and getting to watch him work was really fantastic. Now, Parenthood, on the other hand, is one of the things, if you said to me, okay, what do you, you know, it's in the light, as Yogi was said, it gets laid early out here. Mm-hmm. What do you look back on? What do you look, you know, what are you most proud of? My one-man show, Time Flies in Your Life, is my gift to the universe when I leave. I'm so proud of that. It's helped so many people. Uh, HBO made it available to hospices all over the United States. Oh, wow. It's helped people. I've helped people. That makes me feel, you know, that's what we're all here to do is to help each other anyway. But besides that, and Chips, Parenthood would be it because I just love that movie. And I love my part in the movie. And I thought I did a really good job of that part. And it was fantastic. And that was interesting because the ending, I was doing my one-man show in San Francisco at the time, and so I said, what am I going to do? And they said, we'll we'll fly you in on your off days. We'll schedule you on your off days. So I fly back and forth, got all these frequent flyer miles, enough to give my sister and her husband a trip to Hawaii to thank them for all the help they'd been to me when my wife was dying and helping me with three kids and everything. So I gave them a round trip thing to Hawaii. Awesome. Then all of a sudden I get a call from the parents of the people that I have to come back that we're going to redo the whole ending. So I don't know if you know the movie well, but the ending is at the hospital 
and everyone's in the waiting room and, and you know somebody's having a baby, but you don't know who it is and you keep thinking it's maybe Mary Steenburgen or maybe it's his birth, and one by one you see them all appear in the waiting room and you realize, well, who is it? And then I come out, you know, <laughs> the red herrings, so to yeah. speak, and I pull the thing down and yeah. it's a girl and all that. Anyway, that was an added on thing. That's That's cool. You know, they were kind of finished winding on the film. They went, we don't have the right ending. And that became the ending. Does that happen a lot in show business? I'm sure it does. You know, I mean, a lot of times I think things happen where they make a movie. I don't know that I've been part of this, but I've heard of it where they make it, show it to a test audience, and then go out and try to fix what's what's wrong. Mm. You know, I, I, I know that that happens, but there are no rules. <laughs> you probably know. I mean, the business is the business. It's a very strange animal and anything's possible. Yeah, that's very true. Going back to Quantum Leap, what was it like working with Valerie Mahaffey? First of all, she's a tremendous actress and a theater actress and just a wonderful gal. And we had a wonderful time together. She's such a professional and boy, does she bring it. She's really good. She's really good. She seems to play that kind of just strangeness when she plays a character. Yes. Is she like that in real life or is that just something she plays? No, she's so down to earth. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I can remember where she's from, but she's a very down to earth gal. Very cool. Do you remember the matchstick you had to chew on the whole episode of The Boogeyman? Yes, that was my idea. Oh, your idea. Yeah. I was going to ask you that. And they worked it into the storyline a little bit. Yeah, I don't remember how that happened. I had a line to say about matches, something like matches. I'm trying to remember the lines. You know, these lines were emerging from so far. They've been buried so long. Mm, 25 years, right? <laughs> uh, mess with matches? If you mess with matches, I don't know. Yeah, something, I know something happens. <laughs> You know, the classic actor with the toothpick is always a little bit sort of cliche, but uh, once in a while it seems right, mm -hmm. so you got to do it. I enjoyed that part of the episode just because it was a little bit of, you wondered why, you know, and it made the character just a little bit more mysterious, I think. Yeah, yeah. And once again, they're in a uniform, you know, just like the same kind of brown uniform I wore in Motel Hell. Mm. Did, did you ever see Motel Hell? Not yet. Check it out. Okay. I'm the hero in that movie. Rory Calhoun is brilliant in that movie. I mean, hysterical. You can't believe how funny he is. And I know that sounds weird, but the movie was meant to be a comedy. I think the studio got nervous about it and backed away from the comedy a little bit and tried to promote the gore a little bit more. But it was, there's some funny lines in that movie. I was going to ask if there's a, something that you think people should see of your work that they might have not seen. You know, Ron Howard's first film he ever directed was called, oh my God, Grand Theft Auto. Yes. Not the video game. <laughs> a little bit different. I loved my work in that movie. The style of the movie was broad. I like to do broad comedy. And I got a chance to uh, really do it in that. That was a fantastic experience. Plus, Nancy Morgan, who was the star with Ron and I, she was the woman I thought loved me, but really loved Ron. And I chased through two states to try to win her back. She ultimately married John Ritter. Oh, wow. So two friends came together. It's awesome when that happens. And you got to work with John Ritter a couple of times. I did. I did. You know, we got to do some theater together, which was quite satisfying, and some comedy together. To this day, one of the funniest things I've ever been around was a day in the life of Edwin Marcus. 
which is a sketch show that he wrote with Jack Bender and who went on to great heights as a director and showrunner. Jack Bender, if you look him up, he's done in you know, Lost and The Last Ship. And I mean, he does all, all these things. And I've worked for him in Movies of the Week, but he did a thing called A Day in the Life of Edwin Marcus, which was a comedy. And I've never been in a room where for two hours people laughed that hard and, and, and couldn't breathe, huh. you know. On again with the Kentucky Fried Theater, which also to me was just beyond, just so hilarious. Awesome. Have you ever bumped into somebody that recognized you from Quantum Leap or had an experience later on in life that came from working on Quantum Leap or a funny story? Well, I certainly have been recognized by people, but I think people generally mostly recognize me from chips, you know, and I, I yeah. the general vibe is, don't I, I know you. <laughs> what high school did you go to? <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of weird, but it's hard not to appreciate it when someone remembers your work for whatever it was that they saw you do. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's strange. No matter uh, what performance, there's always someone out there that that's their favorite thing you've ever done. So yeah, and I still get fan mail. I mean, I still get fan mail from chips. Wow, you know, not a lot, but I have got letters from Quantum Leap fans. You know, who remember me from the the show and. Because Quantum Leap, as you know, I mean, you got a podcast, Quantum Leap. There are Quantum Leap fans out there. Big time. Oh, so many, yes. Yeah. I'm one of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have you met Scott? Oh, I did an interview with him. I haven't met him yet. Nicest guy. Oh, great guy. And everybody speaks so highly of him. He is just, I love the guy. He's a fantastic person. Because mm. he's, he's who he is. It's not, you know, he just is. It doesn't change his success or whatever. It doesn't, you know, it's who he is. He's, he's the real person. So both times on Quantum Leap are really positive experience for you? Fantastic. Really. Awesome. Nothing but the most positive things. I think you did really good just because I've seen both of your episodes many times and I never thought you were the same actor that did both parts. Well, that's a, quite an honor. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. That really means a lot to me. Well, thank you so much for uh, being a part of Quantum Leap and uh, all the entertainment you've given all of us over the years. And I really appreciate you being on the show. Thank you. And just out of curiosity, where am I speaking? What part of the country are you in? I'm in Southwest Florida. It's uh, called Cape Coral, Florida. Okay. But the podcast is going all over the world. Oh, great. You know, one last thing, you know, the Charles show, mm -hmm. Save It for the Stage, the Life of Riley, it began in Florida. Really? At the Caldwell Theater in Boca Raton in 1999. Oh, nice area. So I had the good fortune to be down in Florida several times working with him down there. Very cool. It's, it's very pretty down here, just very hot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, uh, good luck in hurricane season. And uh, Thank you. I, I, I thank you for your interest and appreciate the time. That was actor Paul Link. That was really cool for me because when I was a kid, I watched Chips all the time. I just thought his part was really awesome in this episode. I really liked his character. And I had no idea he was also the guy from Played Against Seymour. Right before I sat down to talk to him, I, that's when I found that out. It's very weird because I was like, wow, he's that good. Yeah, I didn't know until you told me. Being alive back when Chips was on, you just watched it. It was normal. Everybody just watched that because it was so good. And it was cool. Right. I, I know the concept of the show. I can see the title and the some footage that is in <laughs> stock footage in my brain. I think what sold it back then was a really cool theme song. Like back then you didn't have TiVo. So when you heard a theme song come on the television, you just went running in the room. Oh, Chips is on. Plus there wasn't a lot on back then. No. So 
You didn't have 4,700 different options. I think I had four options until I was probably about 12. And then we got to 80 channels. Ooh. And then now we have Netflix and Hulu and streaming and YouTube. and You only need one channel. One channel, Netflix. And next up is an amazing interview with Emmy winner Valerie Mahaffey. And I'm so excited to have her on the show. Valerie Mahaffey was born in Indonesia and moved to Austin, Texas at the age of 16. Mahaffey graduated from Austin High School and attended the BFA in University of Texas at Austin in 1975 and later made her Broadway debut in musical Rex. Mahaffey was a regular cast member in the soap opera The Doctors from 1979 to 1981, which earned her a nomination for Daytime Emmy Award for Outstanding Supporting Actress in a Drama Series in 1980. She starred in the film Women of Valor in 1986, and while the characters are fictitious, it portrayed women's roles in the Philippines during World War II. As of late 1980s, Mahaffey began acting in television comedies like New Heart, Cheers, and Seinfeld. From 1992 to 93, she starred in the short-lived NBC sitcom The Powers That Be. She played Tracy Milford in the 1995 film National Lampoon's Senior Trip, and Jan Kempser in the 1997 film Jungle to Jungle. In 1999, she had a recurring role on ER. In 2003, she starred in the film Seabiscuit. In 2009, she appeared in seven episodes of The United States of Tara. Her stage credits include Eastern Standard, Talking Heads, Top Girls, and the aforementioned Rex. Mahaffey won the Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Supporting Actress in a Drama Series for her performance as the chronic hypochondriac Eve in the CBS series Northern Exposure in 1992. Mahaffey was the only actor from the series to win an Emmy Award. Mahaffey played Alma Hodge in Season 3 of ABC's comedy drama series Desperate Housewives from 2006 to 2007. Mahaffey has made guest appearances in L.A. Law, Ali McBeal, Judging Amy, The West Wing, Law and Order, Special Victims Unit, Frasier, CSI Crime Scene Investigation, Private Practice, Boston Legal, Without a Trace, Hannah Montana, and Raising Hope. She also appeared on Glee as a mother of Emma Pillsbury from 2011 to 2013. Mahaffey co-starred as Fran Horowitz in the short-lived TNT medical drama Monday Mornings in 2013. Also in 2013, she had a recurring role on Lifetime Television's comedy drama series Devious Maids as Olivia Rice. Mahaffey is credited as executive producer of Summer Eleven, the poignant coming-of-age story about a group of 11-year-old girls in their final summer before middle school, in which she also plays Linda. More recently, Mahaffey takes on the role of Lisa in No Pay Nudity, a film about hanging out, hanging in, hanging on, due for release in the near future. On the 15th of January 2009, the world witnessed one of the most remarkable emergency landings in aviation history when Captain Chelsea Sully Sullenberger skillfully glided US Airways Flight 1549 onto the surface of the Hudson River, saving the lives of all 155 aboard. His cool actions not only adverted tragedy, but also made him a hero and an inspiration worldwide. 
But the storm was yet to come, a storm which could ruin the life of a hero. The film Sully is currently in post-production. Mahaffey plays Diane Higgins. Leapers know Valerie Mahaffey best as Mary Greeley in the Halloween episode of Quantum Leap. Albie was lucky enough to be able to talk to her, so now please enjoy Albie's conversation with Valerie Mahaffey. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Quantum Leap Podcast. I'm so honored to have you on here. Uh, I'm a very big fan of your work, and uh, I love what you do. And in particular, this episode of Quantum Leap, where you played Mary Greeley in the Quantum Leap episode, The Boogeyman. Could you tell me a little bit about how you got the part? Yes, I was pretty recently here from New York and kind of brave, because I'd done a lot of theater, and I'd done an accent like that, and I thought, well, I'll just pull that out of my pocket and audition with it, and and uh, I just rewatched it, and I, I sound like some burn. <laughs> it kind of makes me laugh. Anyway, they I auditioned, and they liked it. Can you tell me uh, what you remember about the filming of it? I know it was 25 years ago, but can you tell me anything interesting or just the whole process of it? Yeah. There were um, a couple of things that I remembered, even though I hadn't just watched it like I have just now. But I remember, uh, you remember those snakes? Yeah. The black mamba snakes? Mm -hmm. I remember that they had one that kind of looked like it that was not a black mamba. And then they had a real one. I was like, oh, my gosh, please don't mix them up. It was a little freaky. You know, I remember leaping up onto that kitchen counter and... Oh, um, that was spooky. And then um, uh, I really enjoyed working with Scott. He was just kind of such a nice guy, just terrific to work with. And that kid um, who played the young Stevie King, David Kriegel, um, we had a really good time. And uh, yeah, it was good. That was a fun part of the episode for uh, Stephen King fans to pick up little clues that that was actually Stephen King the whole episode. Well, right. I'm. I uh, my daughter just watched it with me. Uh, I did this way before she was born, and she just watched it. And she called it right at the top of the episode. I'm like, "Oh, be quiet. Wait for the surprise at the end." <laughs> you know. <laughs> you mentioned the accent you did in this part. Uh, what kind of accent was that? That was very interesting, and I think it made the character a lot more mysterious, almost. Yeah, it it's no, you know, New Hampshire, Maine sort of accent. I don't know how accurate it was, but, you know, pretty good, I guess. One part I noticed is uh, when your character had the seizure, and that, for me, it looked very difficult in knowing how many takes and different setups they have to do and how many times you have to do a certain scene. Mm -hmm. Was doing that whole seizure scene very difficult for you, or did it take a long time, or how how did you approach that? I, I don't think it took a long time, and that was a really interesting thing. I, I researched it a, a bit. And uh, I was, I think I was in an, an acting class at the time, and I experimented there. Uh, or maybe it was the other way around. Maybe I did it here and then threw it in an improv in my class. But no, I was just, I'm kind of brave, and I just did it. You know? I wanted to know what it was like, and I, I asked a medical person, I think, and also my friend whose child has epilepsy. Asked her about it, I think. Yeah, I just sort of threw myself into it. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. One question I had, I just thought of while uh, remembering the episode, I just watched it as well. When you pass by Scott Bakula and Dean Stockwell on the stairs, and you kind of notice Dean Stockwell's character, were you supposed to kind of notice him? Do you remember? Uh, in rewatching it, too, 
I think the fact that it was not really him, but was actually the devil, Mm -hmm. that it made the hair on the back of the neck stand up Ah. or something like that, you know? Yeah. Um, Yeah, because I was watching it, too, and thinking, oh, yes, I must have been told to do that. Have you heard that this episode of Quantum Leap has got kind of like a reputation that it's haunted and strange things happen around this episode? No, you need to tell me about this. That's really interesting. It's it's for Quantum Leap fans. It's become something fun, kind of like that uh, Scottish play you're not supposed to name. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of the fans don't mention the name of the episode because they know so many weird occurrences have happened around people viewing it. No way. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I don't believe in that silly stuff, but it, it's interesting that everybody gets freaked out by the episode. I think it's a, it's a, it shows how good the episode came out and how of a, much of a creepy feeling people get from it. Yeah, that's that's really cool. And my husband sat and watched most of it, too, and said, yeah, that, that's, that was really good. So, yeah. Didn't have any problems with your TV or anything while it was playing? No. Okay, cool. No. Uh, you've been in so many things. It, it's hard to pick what to ask you about, talk to you about, but some of my favorites. I like, I really love Glee. I was a huge fan yeah. of Glee, and you were on that. You were great. And uh, can you tell me a little bit about being on Glee and just your experience with that? Yeah, it, that was a lot of fun to play a character that's just so um, wrong. is sometimes great. I mean, to be a ginger supremacist, that's that's hysterical i think <laughs> and, you know <laughs> and uh yeah it was i i really enjoyed that dinner scene with jama and matt and uh just how how wrong the characters were it was cool how when they uh went to get redheads well, they yeah. went and got you and don most yes it was so great he's a great guy that was fun <laughs> it, it looked like a lot of fun that was a fun show yeah, yeah. Northern Exposure, you won an Emmy for that. Yes, I know. Tell me what that was like. Well, that was fantastic. That was one of those things that it just was so great to do and had such a good time. I know this sounds like I'm saying this about everything, but such a good time with Adam Arkin and Rob Morrow and everyone and so to get the cherry on the top to get a nomination, never mind winning a prize for it, it was just like, well, are you kidding me? I, I would have done this for free almost, you know? It was so much fun. I have never had dailies before. You know what those are, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, Rob actually snuck me a copy of some dailies because there was one time when Adam and Rob and I could not hold it together. It was Adam's fault. <laughs> he started the laughter, and it was like 20 minutes of us blowing takes because something got our funny bone, and it is the funniest thing to watch. And I remember the producers who were great, you know, looking at their watches like, come on, guys, mm-hmm. get it together, you know? Mm-hmm. And you just couldn't. You know, oh, my goodness. That was fun. Great show, great actors, great writing. Yeah, great writing. Yeah, just terrific all the way around. What's that like every time you're introduced to be introduced as an Emmy Award winning actress? Well, it doesn't happen all that often, but <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a nice thing. It's a very nice thing, you know. I'm proud of it. And it's just, here's a funny thing to say. The only bad thing about 
winning an Emmy or being nominated, I suppose, is that it wasn't on your radar at all. Mm -hmm. You just did the work for the joy of it. Mm -hmm. And then once you get one, you're kind of like, well, my work in that thing was just as good. Why aren't I? (laughs) (laughs) It's just not so good in that way, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I'm sure a lot of people probably recognize you and think of you from your episode you did of Seinfeld. Tell me a little bit about that. Oh, my goodness, yes. That that and Northern Exposure and Wings are probably, well, no, there's some others, but <laughs> Seinfeld the most. I get recognized all the time for that. That was a trip. I remember a great story that where Jerry's generosity and Larry David we did a table read of it, and I don't know if you remember the episode, but I'm someone who makes papier-mâché hats. Right. Do you remember? Yeah. And uh, with chopsticks in my hair, real highfalutin <laughs> gal, right? Uh-huh. And in the read-through, I I said papier-mâché hats, and everybody laughed. <laughs> and then we were rehearsing it, and I said it again, and they were saying, yeah, you know, it's kind of a joke on a joke. Um uh, the fact that she makes paper mache hats is the joke, <laughs> not that she says it in the French way. I was like, well, but I think it's kind of funny because she's kind of, you know. but, you know, finally they beat me down and I, the next, you know, two or three rehearsals, I said paper mache hats. And they said, you know what? You're right. Put it back. <laughs> and so that was really cool that they realized that it was just a little addition to the character rather than it being a joke on top of a joke, you know? That's awesome. It does make it funnier every time. Yeah, it yeah. does. And, and that's what sometimes people say to me. You're the girl that made papier-mâché hats. <laughs> yes, I am. That's right. <laughs> Not a bad thing to be known for. Uh, yeah. Making people laugh. So that's great. Yes. Yes. I noticed uh, you were the executive producer of a film called Summer 11. Yes. What is that like, stepping into that role of executive producer of a film? Well, it was a giant jump into filmmaking. My husband and I, wrote. he wrote this story around what we were going through at the time. And it's about four little girls and their families. And the little girls are all 11 years old. And we used our own money to make the movie. And so it was really on a budget. So, my goodness, I wasn't just executive producer. I was making the coffee in the morning. I was doing wardrobe. I was acting in it. I was, you know, driving down to my mother's nursing home to trade out wheelchairs because we needed a different wheelchair that worked better. I was riding on a bicycle to go ask gardeners to to stop for a minute while we're shooting it. <laughs> it, it. We just, all of us, it was such a small crew and everything, and we just did everything. And a lot of fun and hard work and just amazing that it is still on Netflix and little girls all over the country are still writing to my daughter and the other girls who were in it. And... um just love it. It's sort of a coming of age story for that age group. And, uh, it, that was an amazing thing. I sort of feel like I have my, my masters in filmmaking now, you know? Yeah. That was good. 
I have a daughter, so I'm very happy that there's things out there like that that she can watch and enjoy. How old is your daughter? Uh, She just turned three a little bit ago, so not quite her age range, but I'm sure. No, not yet. Not yet. But um, you know what you should check out, though? What? When my daughter was eight, I directed a version of A Midsummer Night's Dream, Mm. but where I was an old fairy with these little sprites that sort of lead everybody through the story. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, what are they doing over there? Well, they're blah 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 And then the eight-year-olds would do Shakespeare. Oh. And it's really good. Really cool. What's that called? It's uh, A Midsummer Night's Dream. And if you look it up on YouTube or something, I forget how you can get it now. But when she's a little bit older, have her watch that. Bunch of little kids in it doing Shakespeare and me. <laughs> That just sounds like fun in general. Yeah. Since you were uh, executive producer and also so many other things on Summer 11, did you feel like a greater sense of accomplishment when it was finally done? Yes, big time. And did it turn out like you liked it, like you wanted it to? You know what? This is almost never happens. Because it was our money, we made every decision. And so, yes, we're really proud of it like every little uh, how much of a gap between that and the music cue blah de blah it's all the director Joseph Kell and me it's our movie I'm really proud of it very cool yeah you have done so many things you've had an amazing career is there something that fans of yours that might want to check out like they might not have seen it or it might not have gotten as much exposure as you had hoped something that people could like go look up and enjoy hmm there's a movie i did but i don't know if it's available anywhere it's kind of wonderful with juliet stevenson and danny stern and me and checky carry that french actor hmm called A Previous Engagement. That's kind of fun. And then a movie I did with Marsha Gay Harden and my husband, Joseph Gell, and Aidan Quinn called If I Were You. And that's on Netflix, I think. Going back to Quantum Leap, I've heard from people what it's like to play the good guy or the bad guy, but what's it like to play a red herring where people are assuming the whole time watching it, maybe like I was when I saw it the first time, that you were the one who done it? You know, as an actor, you just have to play it straight. You can't play that you're the red herring. You know what I mean? Right. You, that would be weird. You'd be a big old fake actor. So you just play the truth of whatever it is in that moment. I think I've had to do something similar before. It's like when a character is lying, there's a decision, are they a good liar and you have to lie well. You can't be twirling your mustache mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm, I'm lying now and I'm evil, you know? Watching Quantum Leap, we notice all the little things. And we've noticed a lot on Quantum Leap that the red herring happens to have red hair. Is that a thing in Hollywood or maybe just what? a Quantum Leap thing? Yeah. Really? Yeah, like in Quantum Leap anyway. Everybody with red hair seems to be a red herring. That is so funny. Um, I don't know if that's a thing. I mean, it's more, I guess, rare, so maybe people gravitate to to that. I don't know. I don't know. Has anything interesting or any funny stories happened in your life as a result of being on Quantum Leap? Hmm. Well, not really, except maybe the 
I'm trying to remember this was such a long time ago, but having to do that epileptic fit, yeah. I think the way it went was I did it in the episode, and then I happened to be in this improvisational acting class um, shortly around that time, and we had to do an exercise that was something where you absolutely top the other person. And so, you know, actors were yelling and they were, you know, being weird. And I just fell to the ground and had an epileptic fit. And everybody just started to laugh because it was like, okay, you win. <laughs> yeah. So that's the only thing I can think of. That, that's cool. Yeah. You win. That's awesome. I, I, I won. So. <laughs> I won. <laughs> so uh, overall, what was your experience like working on Quantum Leap? It was wonderful. I'm, I was fairly new to Los Angeles, and I had spent, you know, the previous 10 years in New York doing mostly theater and so on. So I was kind of like new to doing episodes of TV, and it was very rewarding. That was quite a big part, and it was very rewarding in that way. Yeah. Oh, I did notice one thing. Scott Bakula, it was so interesting to me because he was so comfortable in front of the camera. And I have become comfortable, but I wasn't back then. And I was very envious because I thought being the actor that is there all the time, you just can't stay nervous, you know, when you're the the person mm -hmm. that's always doing it. It would be too tiring to be nervous all the time. And I longed for that. <laughs> and there was no way to acquire it without being a regular on a show or something. But I've had enough time now. That and I always think of him. I think, well, I have it now, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> I have that thing, that relaxation, where I don't tense up when they call action or whatever, you know. Is he really the good guy that everybody says he is? Yes. Awesome. He really is. It's Very nice sweet man. Yep. You have an awesome project coming out. Clint Eastwood is directing it, and it's got Tom Hanks in it. That's a big deal. Yes, it is a big deal. It was. That, I feel so fortunate to have done this. We just wrapped on it last week. and. Uh, what can you tell me without getting in trouble? Uh, not much. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, nowadays in Hollywood, non-disclosure agreement, you know? That's true. Um. I think I'm allowed to say that you're in it. <laughs> in it. And I think I'm allowed to say I must be allowed to say this. It's about Sully Sullenberger, Chuckie ah. Sullenberger, who landed that plane on the Hudson. Yes. Awesome. Yeah. Very cool. I know yeah. I'll see it because I see everything with Tom Hanks because he just is amazing. Oh, he's so good. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that. Is there anything you'd like to say to uh, your fans of your work and your fans from Quantum Leap also? Well, just thank you for watching. And it's such, I'm so lucky to still be doing this. You know, so many young actors start out and they don't get to go this long. And I just, that's the fans that keep that going. So thank you. Very much. And I'm, you know, I'm approached almost daily and people think, 
um, don't I know you? Sometimes they know my name. Sometimes they know exactly what I've done. And some people, you know, they just know I've been in their home or something, you know, <laughs> or in their neighborhood. Yeah. I'm like, no, well, it might be because I'm an actress. It's kind of nice that they think they know me, you know. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I really enjoyed talking to you, and I really appreciate it. Uh, certainly, Albie. I really enjoyed it. I loved talking to her. She's such a nice person and so different from her character, I think, in this episode of Quantum Leap. And it was just funny talking about Seinfeld. And she was the lady that came up with the papier-mâché hats and uh, just just funny stuff. Yeah, I I really liked listening to her. And and I was kind of shocked that her normal voice isn't the same as, as what was portrayed in Quantum Leap. I always have this thought about women in older movies that have that tone of voice or just that voice hey what are you saying charlie why you got to be like that right but for women <laughs> the women you're rough and tumble that was like the the men all spoke like that well not all of I them think the women guess. did too they were feisty well but they had just like a different tone and accent to their voice and she had that in this episode and i thought that was really cool great people that work on quantum leap oh yeah we're very fortunate to do what we do <laughs> yeah yeah definitely and now we have an amazing interview with writer, producer, and he also had a little cameo in this episode of Quantum Leap. He is a really cool guy. I'm excited for this. And this guy, he was there with Tommy Thompson, with Deborah Pratt, with Donald P. Belisario. He was one of the people that made Quantum Leap what it was. So without any further ado, Chris Rupenthal. Chris Ruppenthal is an American television and film writer based in Hollywood, California. He received an A.B. degree from Harvard University in 1976, where he was an editor of the Harvard Lampoon, as well as a member of the Delphic Club and the Hasty Pudding, where he performed in three of the famous Hasty Pudding travesty musicals. Following Harvard, he worked for a time in New York City in advertising, before moving to California to pursue a career in writing. He received an MA degree from the USC Film School. Ruppenthal boasts an impressive resume, credited as co-executive producer of The Outer Limits and Silk Stalkings, supervising producer of Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, Touched by an Angel, Hearts of the West and Covington Cross, and has writing credits for Blade the Series, The Outer Limits, Avalon Beyond the Abyss, The Pretender, Silk Stalkings, Lois and Clark, The X-Files, Touched by an Angel, Hearts of the West, The Adventures of Bisco County Jr., Covington Cross, Moonlighting, Sledgehammer, and Max Headroom. Ruppenthal currently resides in Los Angeles, where he continues to write for television and works for LAUSD at Berendo Middle School in the Pico Union District, and the UCLA Extension School. For Leapers, however, Chris Ruppenthal does not need an introduction, being Quantum Leap royalty. He was a producer of the show for most of the series' run and completely wrote nine episodes, Good Morning Peoria, Animal Frat, Freedom, 
One Strobe Over the Line, The Halloween Episode, Glitter Rock, Hurricane, Roberto, and The Curse of Tahotep, as well as co-writing the teleplay for The Last Gunfighter. Rupenthal's only directorial credit is also from Quantum Leap. He directed Southern Comforts, an episode widely acclaimed for addressing the issue of domestic violence. He even made a cameo appearance as Sam's mirror image in the aforementioned episode that must not be named, which, along with writing the so-called cursed episode, earned him the nickname Rupin Boogie. As such, it is very fitting that Rupenthal is here to boogie with us for this episode of the podcast. Please enjoy Albie's conversation with Chris Rupenthal. Hello, Mr. Rupenthal. Thank you so much for being on the Quantum Leap podcast. It's really an honor to have you on. Well, Albie, thank you, and I'm happy to be here. I'd like to start out by just asking you, you've had an amazing career, and if you check out your IMDb, it's just endless. And uh, how did you start in the entertainment industry? Um, Well, I started in the entertainment industry. I'd been in advertising in uh, Manhattan on Madison Avenue. I was a madman for about four years, but I had been totally swept away by seeing Star Wars, which was prior to me being in advertising. And uh, I decided ultimately that, hey, I want to go to film school. And the only film school to go to was where George Lucas went, which was USC Film School. So um, I applied to film school, and I got into USC. And I went to SC Film School. And And the slightly amusing footnote to all this was I was working for an art director at the time who had previously worked in England. And when I broke the news to him that I was going to go to film school, he said, well, let me tell you a little story here. I had a a guy working for me in the art department back in England, and he said to me, I'm going to go to film school. And I sort of laughed and said, you know, good luck, and I hope it goes well for you. And that guy's name was Ridley Scott. So that inspired me more to go off to a film school, um, where I went to USC Film School and had a great time there and uh, had a lot of classmates there uh, who've also been very talented people, among them like Jay Roach, uh, the director, um, his great guy. And so I, after film school, I sort of fumbled around doing odd jobs. And then I was told of an opportunity. They were looking for a writer on a show called Sledgehammer. And Sledgehammer was an ABC 30 minute sitcom. That was sort of a spoof of all the dirty, hairy movies. And so I sort of applied for that job. I got put in touch with the, uh, creator of that show and he liked my work and I got hired. And it was sort of like a whirlwind thing. It was suddenly out of the blue, hey, do you want to do a script for us? Because uh, he liked the script, and I wrote a spec script. Not a spec script, I wrote a script for him, a rewrite for him, uh, which they liked very much. And then I you know, put a little note on it saying, hey, you know, if somebody ever gets sick or hit by a truck, um, be happy to come in and fill in full time for him. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, like three weeks later, out of the blue, I got a phone call saying, hey, do you want to come work at Sledgehammer? Uh, which I did. And and that was a lot of fun to work on that show uh, because it was so different from every other sitcom out there. Uh, And it started David Rashi, and uh, he he was a real character, and Anne-Marie Martin. And then from Sledgehammer, I went to Moonlighting, the last season of Moonlighting, which was great. Bruce Willis had just done Die Hard. Um, I'm actually calling you from Century City right now. And he just did the whole movie around the Fox Tower, and he was white hot, and he couldn't have been a nicer guy. To the staff. So that was a real fun experience. And working with Civil Shepherd, it was great. Most TV scripts you write at about that time 
for roughly uh, one minute for a page. And if you wrote a TV script that was 60 pages long, that might be a little long because you had to cut out stuff for commercials and everybody wouldn't you know, talk so fast. There's a lot of action. But at Moonlighting, you could write an 80 or 90 page script and they would look at you and go, oh, well, that's not a bad first draft. <laughs> And and so then we would my first draft I think for my first script was about 92 pages long and it ultimately got cut down to about 80, but that was way beyond most TV scripts at the time. But uh, Bruce and Sybil could just you know rip through this stuff, mm-hmm. and they were great. Um, and then after that, uh, you know, Quantum Leap, and that was a lot of fun. Um, I I sat in a meeting with Don Belisario, I was sitting in his office at Universal. Uh, we talked and talked and talked. He came out of advertising. I'd been in advertising, so um, we had some common ground there to talk about like that. And this was in the afternoon, about, I don't know, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, like that. And at the end of this meeting, he just sort of goes, okay, great. And he leans back in his chair and he shouts off, was like off camera, shouts off through an open doorway to his long-term secretary, Harriet, and goes, Harriet, you know, give me Gary Hart. Okay, put through Chris Rubenthal's deal. And I'm like, uh? <laughs> what? And then he goes, hey, you want to sit in on a story pitch meeting? And I go, uh, sure. And we walk through a doorway, and I walk into this our common room where we had a lot of pitch meetings and couch and chairs like that. And I sit down with Deborah Pratt and Paul Brown and me. And, you know, a minute later, some poor guy walks in to pitch us stories, and he's pitching to me like I've been on staff for, like, you know, <laughs> Uh, six months or something. Mm. And I'm like, going, mm-hmm. yeah, good. That sounds interesting. Yeah. So that was my start on Quantum Leap. And I have to say Quantum Leap was, you know, tons of fun. So. What was the first story you were involved in in any way on Quantum Leap? Um, the first story I wrote was Good Morning Peoria, which was uh, certainly inspired by Good Morning Vietnam. And it, again, it was just a lot of fun to see it all come to life. I mean, uh, the thrilling part to me about television or movie making is, you know, you sort of get, it's a fantasy world come true. You know, you write stuff down on a page from your computer or whatever, and suddenly a hundred people, like shoemakers elves, except they're far more talented, put it all together, and suddenly you're standing on a set that is, you know, a radio station in Peoria, Illinois, or wherever it may be, and it's it's hard to capture how much fun and how giddy that can make a person feel, and uh, I it was just a pleasure from sort of start to finish uh, working on Quantum Leap and those shows. Was it your idea to get Chubby Checker? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Chubby Checker was great. You know, we thought, like, who can we get? We we went down a list of people. You know, we always did that. Like, what songs could we do? What could we influence and tie in like that? And, my God, we were all surprised. Hey, it's really Chubby Checker, you know? So, like, people, like, would come down to the set, you know, and and just to stand near the real guy. So, yes, Chubby Checker was very nice, and it could have been more fun on that. but it was fun to see Patricia Richardson. She went on uh, to be, you know, a huge sitcom star, you know. And she's like, well, I auditioned for this thing. I don't know if I'm going to get this part, you know. And we were like, you know, cut to, you know, five years later, <laughs> huge star. Uh, but, uh, yeah, Patricia Richardson, she couldn't have been nicer, too. Uh, Could you talk to me a little bit about the feeling of being on staff at Quantum Leap and just the way it was back then, the whole time you were there, maybe uh, just 
again, the feeling and the work, the work situation and what your job entailed? Because I noticed you did many, you wore many different hats on Quantum Leap. Yeah, it was fun. I mean, it was a great time to be in TV back then, particularly at Universal. Uh, one reason why is once you reached like a certain level, like a producer level or something, you got your own secretary. So everybody had like their, a lot of us had all had their own secretaries to do the work. Um, you know, Don and the company would spring for like, you know, fruit bowls everywhere. So there's always like fresh fruit around to eat. And so you had these nice offices. I had a, I had a huge office, uh, you know, just even starting out at Quantum Leap, I had a big office that was, you know, big enough to have, you know, couches and chairs and this and that and a desk. And there was about five of us on staff originally writing. Um, there's a, a little bit of fluid change in the first year or so, but you know, the, I, I think when Deborah was writing and I was there and Paul Brown was there and Tommy Thompson was there, it, it could have been more fun. Um, you know, other people came, you know, Beverly Bridges and Randy Holland, but it, it was just, people got along. Every episode was like doing a feature film, a short movie, you know? So we were all, it was sort of like, what fun thing could you dream of that you want to do? And we could almost always do it. You know, you had to sell Don on it, but he was very open to all sorts of different ideas, you know? And I thought to say, Here's a difference I felt with Quantum Leap that um, it's hard to identify and see in other TV shows, I think, sometimes or oftentimes, which was uh, I felt Don really wanted them all to have a theme and or a message in them, you know, and to stand for something. And I think very early on he was, you know, strong for women's rights and, and how women should be treated, you know, as equals, etc. Um, and other things, whether there are racial things or gay things. I mean, he was not afraid to take on these topics, and, and neither was Scott the actor. I mean, you know, some shows actors balk at some things in scripts, and, and Scott was always game. Um, so that's, that's pretty heady to have a license like that, um, and, and Quantum Leap gave it to us, and, uh, you know, uh, I will not forget that experience. You know, it, it's pretty liberating as a writer to be able to do that. Um, Did a lot of the production staff feel the same way that they wanted to uh, put messages in there and uh, were okay with doing that and were pretty much on that side politically, kind of? Um, yeah, I think so. Um, I, I think we were all sort of in sync with that. It just worked out that way. I don't think, you know, Don asked us who we voted for in the last election or anything. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and certainly Don would be not afraid to say, well, I don't agree with that, you know, or I disagree with this or whatever. Why would they do that? That's, you know, um, so there would definitely be back and forth uh, at, at things, but it was always in service to the story. I think one of the best rules I learned from Don, because you come up with these things when you're cracking stories or, or facing an issue, which was he was all for attacking it head on and just calling attention to it and saying, well, I think it's this way, but you think it's that way, or I don't know what the answer is here. You know, what is the answer? Um, and doing that again was sort of liberating because it, he didn't expect you to always be perfect and to know the answer, you know, part of the way he wrote, I was listening to part of the interview you did with him. Absolutely true. He gets an idea and he would sit down and start writing. And he didn't, like, write an outline like we had to do. Uh, he just wrote. 
and he sort of found his way in his path and sort of found what he was writing about. Or as you said, he would know what the ending is, but he didn't know how he was going to get there initially. Mm-hmm. Um, we had to sort of know where we were going and where we were coming from. But that was the way Don was, but he was always game for it, you know. And, and uh, so supporting us in our ideas, whether they were liberal or sort of conservative, that was fine by him. I think he wanted to have fairness. I think that was a, a key thing for Don. Very cool. Yeah, I think that came out in the show, too. Yeah. What was the writing process for you like on the shows you did write? Well, you know, you pitch an idea or you have some idea about doing something like Good Morning Peoria or whatever. And then they say, yeah, great, go ahead. And then you would sit down and try to write an outline. And that might take you several days. It might take you a week to write an outline. And then you would uh, turn in the outline or show it to everybody else. And we'd all sit down and look at the outline on the, uh, that you had written and give notes. Or, ah, I don't know about this part in Act 2 or this part in Act 3. You know, what if you did this and that? You might revise it. There might be multiple revisions. There might not. And then off you went, you know, and you just wrote, wrote, wrote as fast as you could. You know, technically you have like two weeks to write a script per the writer's guild. But sometimes you just have to write them faster or sometimes you get more time because the uh, script is not needed right away. Um, because you, you've all set up a schedule like, you know, it's, your script is next and then it's Tommy and then Paul and Deborah and then Paul again and then you and whatever. So things went like that with uh, Quantum Leap. Uh, and then you write it and turn it a draft and you get Don notes and everybody else gives you notes, something like that, and you revise it again and again and again. And, you know, if you ever look at the cover of a script, a production draft, um, it goes through multiple changes. Sometimes there's only one page is changed. Sometimes it's 10 pages are changed. And then you roll off into production, you know, but at least they have a script to work with uh, once you've written it. Um, so locations can start scouting, casting can get to work, costumes, know what to do, all that stuff. That That's how it worked. Um, how collaborative was the writing process? Like if you were writing a script and other people, would they just give you ideas that might work out in the script or not? You know, sometimes, yes, absolutely. You know, so you come in, you sit down at lunch or you go out to lunch, you sit at a table, you sit at the couch and you go, I don't know, I don't know what to do with this act here, act three, um, it's driving me crazy right now. And so they say, well, what if he did this or Sam do that? You know, where in my script, I'm having him do that. So why don't you try this? So there definitely was some collaboration and sometimes rewriting, you know, uh, you know, you have some freelance scripts and some, some scripts like that, you know, I might be given the job to rewrite it or Paul might or Tommy might or whatever. It just all goes around that way. Um, but yeah, definitely you share ideas and kick around and think about what am I going to do, you know? And occasionally um, you get a script. It was not so much usually internally, uh, but it's a, one of the freelance scripts one, every once in a while would just say, wow, this needs a total rewrite and we don't have a lot of time. And we would break it up into acts and somebody would take act one, somebody else would take act two, three and four or something like that and put it all together and away we would go. With the way the credits work, sometimes you see written by, sometimes you see story by, sometimes you see teleplay. What's the difference between all of those? Well, that, that's all per the Writers Guild. There are clear-cut Writers Guild rules on that. A lot of times uh, back then, if you did like a freelance script, and at the time, I haven't checked recently on the, on the Writers Guild 
minimum basic agreement rules of contract. But you either had to, if you had like an order of 13 episodes or 22, you had to do like two or three freelance scripts, or you had to take a certain number of freelance pitches. And then you could still write those scripts, all the scripts on staff. But let's say you had a freelance script and you weren't limited to, to three. You could do you know, all of them if you wanted to. But if you had a freelancer come in and write a script and it didn't turn out, then you might say, we bought this pitch from them, usually with an option. So, uh, you know, Frank and Sally come in and pitch us an idea uh, that Universal and Quantum Leap buys it story with an option for teleplay. So uh, let's say we cut them off after story. You know, like they've got a good idea. It's about a circus or whatever it is. And you know what? They, their outline just isn't making it. They are too much. They're just, they can't crack it. So we love the circus idea. So what we'll do is we'll just, we've paid them for the story. We'll cut them off here. They'll get story by credit. We will now create an outline ourselves and we'll write it. And then we'll get teleplay credit, whoever wrote it. So that type of stuff. Um, so th that could be a way you, you could have different names on the credits there. And, and written by is we just did everything. You know, if I wrote the story and teleplay, they just put it like written by Chris Rupenthal. And that covers all bases right there. Did you ever have any ideas for a Quantum Leap story that didn't go through or just didn't get made? I'm sure I had thousands of fabulous ideas. <laughs> <but> they, <laughs> uh, uh, unfortunately, I can't remember any of them right now um, about which ideas I might like to have done. Um, I think, you know, uh, though they started changing rules uh, towards the very end, you know, every once in a while, you know, everybody wanted to do something that might have gone past Sam's lifespan, which was sort of the theoretical boundaries of Quantum Leap, of the episode timeline. Uh, but, you know, you, you always wanted to do the World War II one or something, or whatever it might have been, the Civil War one. And ultimately, Don changed the rules towards the very end. But... Um, those are those are amazing. But no, I, I would say there was nothing that really stuck in my mind that we wanted to do unless it was sort of like, uh, you know, a, a beach party movie or an underwater movie or something, you know, that wasn't going to happen. Uh, on Quantum Lake. We had a good budget, but uh, there are certain things that, you know, we just couldn't afford to do or Don was just like, mm, nah, it's just too wacky or something. If it's okay, I'd like to go through uh, the episode you're credited as writing and just uh, tell me what you remember about them and uh, just uh, sure. the experience of them. We already talked about Good Morning Peoria, so we'll go with Animal Frat. Well, Animal Frat was, again, of course, inspired by Animal House. Uh, the funniest thing about that one was, which has nothing to do with, actually with the actual writing of it, but they were uh, shooting the big scene where they're inside the, the fraternity and people are diving into like this little pool and mm -hmm. stuff like that. And I'm in my office at Universal and I, and I, the reason I remember this is because uh, I'll, you'll be self-explanatory in a second, but I, would, I happen to use, often wear a pair of white butt shoes, white suede shoes, okay? So that was sort of a trademark. So I'm standing, I'm sitting in my office writing like this, and I get this call, an urgent call from the set, which says, you've got to come to the set immediately. It's, we've got a huge problem. Run down here right now. On, you know, we're on the stage. So uh, I'm like, oh, my God. So I drop everything, and I rush down the stage, like that, and I come through the doors, and I'm grabbed. 
And they basically, like being in a mosh pit, they carry me over their heads and throw me into this huge <laughs> pool of water there. Uh, and everyone had a big laugh about that. Because I'm completely soaked and, you know, drenching like that and everything like that. But that was it. But the good thing was, it was all good-natured stuff. Uh, it was really like a family. Um, a little sidebar there. I don't know if anybody told you this. Dean Stockwell was a big golfer, was interested in golfing, and um, had a birthday. So it was his birthday or something, and they were going to celebrate like that. And what they did was they took his car without his knowledge, transportation guys. They drove it onto a stage. It was a Cadillac, I believe, and they filled it with golf balls. So then they, they brought Dean there, like, open the door. <laughs> Eight billion golf balls pour out uh, for Dean Stockwell. Uh, <laughs> So anyway, that's a funny thing. But yeah, Animal Frat was a lot of fun to do. Freedom. Freedom was great. Um, I, I loved doing that one because about American Indians. And I wanted to have some depth to it where uh, Sam in various episodes had had to kill people um, in, his, in his personas of other lives. And I always like this sort of supernatural subtext sometimes at Quantum Leap. So when they have the, the, the horse there and they're sort of putting on the war paint and they're putting on handprints on, on the horse's flank, which stands for how many people you've killed, you know, he puts on like two and the Indian guy waits there and, and then he puts on the third one. Uh, and it's like he knows. And like, how does he know this about this guy and everything else like that? I like that spooky moment. Um, I also loved it that, you know, it turned out, and that's why I said the date in a certain way, that the the Cowboys had played the Redskins in football. So that was a great joke, I thought, to work in, where, you know, he says he loves it when the Redskins beat the Cowboys. <laughs> uh, and it was fun shooting that episode. I think Dean had just won the Golden Globe, uh, like the night before when we were shooting part of the scenes, and we were up in the, in the mountains, and there was still snow there, and they decided to use all this snow. Um, that was something we made or planned. It had snowed, and we, there was snow in the mountains. It's like, hey, we're going to just go with it mm. and, and shoot that stuff. Um, and so um, that was a, a cool, literally a cool aspect of <laughs> Uh, of doing freedom. And the fact that he sort of dies crossing the river, um, I wrote that script and uh, there were almost no changes in it from Don, um, which is very rare. Not that he made a huge changes in everything, but almost every script needs a change. Um, but that one went through with, with virtually uh, no changes. Um, only time in my life of writing that that ever happened. But I was very proud and pleased uh, about that movie, that, that episode, I should call it. It just felt like a movie, but yeah. You spoke about those moments in that episode, and there are several where you're kind of questioning whether the grandfather sees it as his grandson, sees the other character as his grandson, or as Sam. What was your intention when writing that? Uh, well, my intention was to have that ambiguity, um, uh, because the, you know we did it that way in Boogeyman 2 a little bit where at times people seem to sense that Sam is not Sam or not the person who's in front of them. And, and that, uh, that was my intention. I, I, is it a cliche to say, you know, American Indians are mystical and more in touch with this stuff? 
Uh, in some ways, yes, but I hopefully I played that cliche down mm. uh, because uh, when I worked on another show called Hearts of the West, uh, we were working uh, with this uh, gentleman who was an American Indian and it was great. And this happened when they were doing the pilot, which was before I was on Hearts of the West. But Bob Maloney, who ran the show and created it, was telling me that this guy normally works as an accountant. He's a part-time actor, you know. And he's standing alone out in the bluffs in the desert where they're shooting this thing. And Maloney walks up to him and goes, what are you doing? And he goes, I'm calling the Eagles. And you can imagine there's like this pause, like, you know, like you're thinking, yeah, really? And Maloney swears. Then an eagle flew up overhead. Wow. And it's like this guy was sort of, we used it in Hearts of the West to be sort of shamanistic. And in real life, he was sort of shamanistic. So that type of stuff is a, a flavor, a tone I wanted to play in, in Freedom. One strobe over the line. One strobe over the line was great, uh, you know, dealing with sort of anorexia, eating disorders, pill addictions. Marjorie, who played the actress, was, was great. Uh, we're shooting around there. Uh, we went to go out and look because there's a lion in it. We went out to the way out uh, to me, which was then like you need a passport to go to Calabasas or something mm-hmm. out here. Uh, and this guy was, had a private, basically, zoo where he trained animals. And his uh, girlfriend looked a lot like Marjorie, so she was the girlfriend who was going to double for the stunts with the lion and everything like that. But he was showing us all these animals, and we got to go in the cage and pet the lion, the big lion, and pet his mane, which was cool. And then he takes the lion out to show how well he can control him. And we're all standing in this dirt road outside his compound, and he walks, you know, 100 yards away with this lion, and uh, he, like, comes back to us, and, like, his, his partner is holding the lion, I guess it was, and they let the lion off the leash, and it starts running towards us. <laughs> and we're all going, hey, that's cool. I mean, a lion, it's running. And then we all think, wait a minute, <laughs> that's a lion running at us. And it, he just gave hand signals, and the lion stopped, you know? But for that split second there, you're thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, you know, this thing would kill us. So they shoot the movie. Zinberg is directing, doing a great job as usual. And I get this report when they come back in. They go, uh, people are sort of like, oh, my God, it was unbelievable. You couldn't believe it. What was un- it was unbelievable. And we're like, well, what? And they've been shooting a scene from uh, the show where Marjorie runs away and the lion chases after. And they had trained the lion to knock down the stunt woman, blah, 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 blah. Well, hey, it's a wild animal. You're out in the wild. And the stunt woman went running away, and the lion took off much faster and much more determined than anybody had anticipated. And there was this moment where it knocked her down, and they thought, oh, my God, it's going to bite her. Uh, And it didn't, and it all resolved safely and calmly. But it was one of those things where, wow, it could have been a disaster. Instead, it turned out to be fine. Um, But... uh, you know, it was one of those weird things that happened in, in one strobe over the line. Um, if things like that happen uh, while filming and you were the one that came up with the idea, is there such a thing as, like, writer's guilt? Oh, yeah, sure. 
I mean, I would have felt horrible if something horrible had happened, you know. Um, it, it makes you think, at least it makes me think, you know, the next time I write a scene, could something bad happen here? I mean, how do we keep everybody safe, you know? There were rules back then in standards and practices, like you couldn't point guns at people's heads, you know? Uh, they just didn't want that. It was too dangerous. Um, and and uh, I think there's some good reasons for that. Mm-hmm. Um, other, otherwise, you know, you don't want to play around with it. You know, an actor a few years after that, um, I think his name is John Eric Hexum, was playing around on the set with a gun loaded with blanks, and he shot himself in the head, you know, playing around. Ha ha, it's a blank, and he killed himself. Yes, and uh, they really will kill you. I think I saw a video one time of uh, the people that control the arms. They uh, shoot off at a watermelon every day in front of the actors to show them how dangerous it is. I think that's a great idea. Yeah, because uh, you don't uh, want stuff like that to happen. If people don't know, they don't know, you know. No, no, they don't. Um, I think they were always super safety conscious on Quantum Leap sets. Actually, on pretty much on every set I've been on, uh, fortunately. Um and, and Scott and Dean were very safety conscious about not only themselves, but about other actors who were working with them, you know. Uh, they were very concerned and generous about that. Um, so uh, I think we had a very good team, and, and it, everything worked out well. I think it's great now that they can just put the muzzle flashes in and post, and you don't even have to worry about blanks. Yeah, that's true. So that makes it even safer. You you mentioned Marjorie Monahan and uh, Susan Anton was also in that episode. What what involvement does the writer have in approving or supervising the casting of that? You know, it depends on the level you are in the writing world. Are you a story editor or are you a supervising producer or co-executive producer or whatever? Have some say so. Uh, Deborah Pratt had a great eye for acting because she was an actress herself. Um so she, she was good at saying, oh, you know what, I think this person can give us the depth we really need. Yes, X may look better or seem more what you wrote, but I think this other person will deliver um, exactly what we want. And you go back and forth, and sometimes there's a tie, and sometimes there's a toss-up, and the head guy, Don, will say, oh, I like this person, but I'll go with what you want or whatever. Um, usually it was pretty clear-cut. Uh, when acting came about and actresses are, were being chosen. Not always, but often. Uh, you just said, wow, this person's got it, you know. Um, so I would, I would say it was sort of a democracy uh, or there's more of a first among equals, if you want to say, to that process. Uh, and, of course, the casting director has a huge input, too. Uh, he or she may say, wow, I know her work or his work, and they really did a fabulous job in this thing. Um, so uh, it, it was sort of a, a group consensus, you know. Very cool. Uh, moving on to the episode that you were actually in, you made a little appearance as the Leap B, as Joshua Ray, the Boogeyman. Yeah. Uh, well, the Boogeyman, it sort of became like Hamlet. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> in the sense, I remember the first Quantum Leap convention, it was like, don't say its name out loud, you know? And uh, when we aired the episode, shortly thereafter, we started getting some fan mail. And the fan mail said, uh, the Boogeyman started and my DVD player broke. Uh, the Boogeyman started and it was halfway through and the TV broke. And we got multiple ones like that. And so it became sort of legendary. And... Um, 
when I was shooting this movie, I keep saying movie, Joe Napolitano was directing, who uh, is A, a friend of mine, and B, uh, he became, we became friends because we met on Quantum Leap when he was directing, and he's a terrific director. So we're doing this, and Joe and I are out scouting on location. We're scouting this house not too far from Universal. And, you know, in the script, there's a goat, and, you know, is it, are there ghosts? Is it poltergeist? What's going on? We don't know, blah, blah, blah. We're out walking around. We're looking at this house. It's pretty cool. This is neat, this and that. And location guy comes around back, comes from having been around back in the house, and he goes, well, you know, there's a goat back there. <laughs> we go, no, there's not. And he goes, no, there's a goat back there. And there really was a goat there. So that sort of weirded us out. And then another guy comes out and goes, well, you know the history of this house, don't you? It's haunted. And again, we're thinking like they're pulling our leg. And they go, no, it's, seriously, it's haunted. There's a ghost in this house. So Joe and I just like look at each other like going, he's like, you kidding me? You know? So that was just a funny little bit of the boogeyman thing. But after that aired, you know, people really didn't want to say its name. You know, they would come up and talk all about it, but it was like, you just can't say its name. Um, because it, it caused it weird things to happen in their <laughs> lives. So uh, it was a lot of fun to do. And at one time, I remember the spinning scene at the very end where Sam and the devil are sort of spinning around and the room is spinning behind them. We built this turntable and we had to put them on it in a camera and we had to put the goat on it, this and that. And I remember it's late at night, it's like about midnight and we're shooting and they're setting it up to tether this poor goat to this thing and make sure it's safe and not harmed. And Joe and I are taking a break and we're walking around and we look at each other and we go, can you believe how much fun this is? I mean, like we're about to put a goat on a turntable and film this and they're paying us money to do it, you know? Uh, so that was a fun episode. That was a funny part of the episode for me. I don't know if it was meant to be funny, but when it turns to a goat, because it cycles through the characters in the episode and then you have the goat and I just laugh every time. I just think it's funny. <laughs> Good. Yeah, and I don't know how many people... Catch this or not, maybe most people do, but uh, one of the things that we did with Dean was we tried to put these little curls yes. in his head or like horns. Yeah, especially uh, in the library, you can tell in that scene. Right, right. So, and sometimes it's, it's, it's more apparent than others. And some people pick up on it instantly and other people, you know, don't go until the end. They go, oh, yeah. Uh, so that was fun. I'll tell you another funny little quantum leap thing which is, and I didn't even know about it. This is how crews work. Michael Watkins, who was the uh, DP and, and again, fabulous and became a great director, they had a, a, a crew tradition where I think in every episode, at least while I was there, there's a hockey puck hidden somewhere on the set. Wow. It didn't matter what time period it was. And I would have to go back with like a magnifying glass and look at every episode. But I remember being on the set one time looking at it and going, why is this hockey puck here? <laughs> and they go, well, it's in every episode, you know. And uh, if you, there's little inside jokes. You can't tell this. The last one I did, I think, was uh, The Curse of Tahotep. Mm -hmm. And so they build this inside of an Egyptian tomb. And there's all these hieroglyphs on the walls and little figures, this and that. But if you could look up really close to them, like some of the little pharaohs walking in the hieroglyphs are like smoking cigarettes and things like that. 
a little joke that would never be picked up normally on camera, but sort of amusing for the crew to see. So a lot more of those things are coming through now that uh, there are episodes that are in high def. So yes, that's true. <laughs> that's true. We got to be careful about what we put on the walls now. I wanted to ask you about Boogeyman. There's uh, competing theories. There's a theory that Sam's in a time loop. There's a theory that it really did happen. And there's also a theory that the whole thing was a dream. Now, you're the writer of this episode. Can you definitively tell us what was going on in this episode? No, I can't tell you. I have to make you you know, feel horrible and torture you. Ah. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, again, um, that was uh, intentionally ambiguous. Um, there. Um, what was I really thinking? Um, I really think it happened. Uh, I, I won't torture you any longer. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, no, in my, in my world, in my mind view, it happened and yet it got erased in a sense because it's time travel and the devil and supernatural stuff. Um, so whoever was leaping Sam around just reset the time to back to the original time when it struck midnight kind of. Right. Now, if you ask Don about this again, he might say, no, it wasn't that at all, you know, <laughs> and and maybe I'm not remembering it correctly like that. Uh, it's a little bit, I know it had a little bit of a Wizard of Oz feeling mm-hmm. um, when that happened. But uh, again, it was sort of that built-in ambiguity, uh, which horror novels and spooky things like that, you know, lend themselves to. So um, it was just to try to make it a head scratcher, you know. Success. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, moving on to another fan favorite, Glitter Rock. Uh, Glitter Rock was fun, uh, just because you know Kiss was such a huge hit. And before I ever went on Quantum Leap, um, I had been at home watching TV, and I, for some reason, was slipping around and watched the Tony Awards, and they had an excerpt from a Broadway musical that was great. And there's this young guy in this scene. I don't know if it was from the, I don't know if it was on the 20th century or not, was the musical or not, but he was terrific. He was singing and he had presence and everything else like that. And then, oh, who do I find out that was later on? Scott Bakula. Mm. And so Scott can sing, you know, and he can certainly act. So I thought, well, let's have some fun with that. And, Put them in Glitter Rock, you know. Uh, what, what could be more disorienting than to leap into a band in front of, you know, 50,000 people or whatever and dressed in makeup like that? Uh, so that was just a, a fun episode pretty much from start to finish. You wrote the episode. Uh, did you also write the lyrics to the songs in the episode? Yes, I did. Yeah, Fate's Wide Wheel and all that type of stuff. Yes, uh-huh. Rock the Red Hat. Yeah, I can still remember some of the lyrics to them, but uh, yeah, I wrote the songs to that one. And in fact, it got me to uh, join BMI, uh, which is the music industry, you, you know. And so every once in a while, I get a check because they played Glitter Rock in Iceland or something. And <laughs> that was my next question, if you still got paid for the writing those songs. Yes, you know, BMI, God bless them, keeps very good track of this stuff. And, and though the, the checks are now minuscule. They still come. It's fun, you know. And somewhere out there, there's like, you know, probably DVDs, too, somewhere. And But yeah, Glitter Rock was a, it was a lot of fun to write a song, or songs, I should say. Do you think that's why sometimes they leave some of these episodes out of, say, Netflix or Hulu because of the music rights? I don't know. I would have thought, no, that's not why, uh, because I would have thought the music rights would have been 
taken care of originally by whoever originally created the show and aired it. Um, but I could be wrong because these things are Byzantine in their execution about who pays what when. But uh, I sort of doubt it. I think they've probably been covered by all that stuff when they bought the rights to the whole series or whatever episodes you're doing. Yeah, they did a lot of music replacement on the U.S. DVDs. Yeah, it may be. Uh, it may be. I mean, that that's um, a realm I'm not familiar with. So, How about Hurricane? Hurricane was fun because I, I grew up in the land of hurricanes and lived through a bunch of them. Part of the characters, the older couple, were modeled after my grandparents. And the greatest pleasure I got from that was I got a call from a cousin of my mom saying afterwards, oh, you put them in there. They recognized them instantly, you know. Mm. So I thought, all right, I, I captured them. So that was a fun thing to do. And I just like hurricanes because sometimes you do shows like that. It's, it has a personal angle to it, which makes it easier to write. But the other thing is, it's like, well, how can we do a hurricane? Can we do a hurricane? Can we put water inside on the set and do this and that? Um, you try to do something that you haven't done before. And, and that was part of the impetus for doing hurricane, which was so they built this set and then they had to build like a little pool that was, went around the outside of the exterior of the set, which was all on a soundstage. And, you know, had all this water pouring down it and had to be caught in this little pool, which they had made, et cetera, et cetera. So it's sort of a technical whiz-bang thing. And that was just fun to watch them construct it. Episodes like that, how many times did they get the finished product as close to what you pictured in your head when you were writing it? Mm, well, on Quantum Leap, very many times. I, I, you know, 95% of the time. I mean, I would say almost every episode was as I imagined it or better, which is the joy of working with very talented people. Um, the actors bring a nuance to it or a depth to it that's better than what you even wrote. Even as a writer with an ego, you, it's like, whoa, that was great, you know? And then the art direction and the camera people and the DP and props and you know, production design, all these people, locations, costumes, you know, Jean-Pierre Dorliac, doing the costumes and stuff, wow. I mean, they tell personalities and tell you stuff about a story that you don't even put in there on the page, and they expand and make better. So I would say I was very fortunate that in Quantum Leap, every episode, I, I never watched an episode that was mine or almost anybody else's that I thought, wow, they missed it. You know, like, that wasn't right. Like, never. Did they get it better sometimes? Definitely. Look, uh, you know, when I originally wrote Freedom, I didn't think there was going to be snow on the mountainside. And, and that just made it even better, you know. And I'm all sort of bundled up and sort of mountain man stuff in the snow. Uh, you know, wow. Capitalizing on a fluke like that, mm -hmm. that was great. Yeah, that, that makes it better. It really does. Yeah. The Last Gunfighter. Wow. The Last Gunfighter, I don't have a whole lot of different memories about that one, honestly. I'm going to draw a blank on that one. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. Uh, other, other than to say, I remember writing it. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, I like Westerns. I can tell you that. So um, I'm always looking for an opportunity to do a Western. I, I, I just think they're a great genre. And I'm very happy, like, Quentin Tarantino is doing a Western again. Mm. 
Yeah, well, that was definitely a good way to get Sam into a Western. Have it yeah. Like, uh, I had a question about the ending of that episode. Did uh, yeah. the Pat Knight character played by John Anderson, did he throw that duel at the end for Sam's character? I kind of felt that he was doing it to just make his friend look better. Yeah. Um, I, I'm getting a vague quantum leap moment here. Uh, yes, I think you're right in that assumption because I, I, I do... I'm inspired when you talk about this. It reminds me of first the man who shot Liberty Valance, and um, then also uh, Jimmy Cagney. I can't remember the movie whether it's White Heat or not, where he's about to go to the electric chair, and he's a tough guy, and yet because Patrick O'Brien, the priest, talks to him and says, "Do something for the kids," he starts to act like he's scared and afraid mm. uh, to go to the electric chair, so the kids will. Gee, this tough guy cracked, and you know maybe being a criminal is not such a good thing. It's sort of a noble act, and, and I think that was the subtext I was going for. How inspired is your writing by other things you've seen, or other movies, or films, or TV shows that you liked and thought maybe I could use that here? Yeah, often very inspired. It's almost impossible as a writer to divorce yourself from everything else because you're watching a million TV shows or movies on your own or you've read a million plays, you know, uh, if you read enough Shakespeare plays, you'll see them all on TV, you know, in some guise or another uh, of the plot. And he borrowed from the Italians. So there's no end to borrowing or homage. (laughs) Nobody, at least on the shows I worked on, wanted to do direct copies, unless it was super intentional. And then it was obvious that you were doing a copy. But otherwise, you, you would try to use it as a foundation and then take a twist on it to make it your own um, and make it different. So uh, it, it's inspired. I think a lot of it is also inspired just by everybody's personal life or the lives of the writers around the table or people you know. You draw on them. And you say, oh, a friend of mine told me this story. This happened to him. And wow, that'd be good to put in here. So. That's what we do. I liked in your writing for Quantum Leap that when something was obviously inspired by something, you called it out, like, say, Good Morning Peoria was, you mentioned the movie Good Morning Vietnam in the script, and also in Roberto, you mentioned Geraldo in it. Just Does that make it okay, then? I think it does, in a way, yes. In, In my universe, it does, because you're not trying to pull a fast one over the audience. Right. You're giving a tip of the hat to it, and it's sort of also a shorthand, uh, sort of a form of writer shorthand that people know then, ah, I know how this is going to go or how it should go, and then you can play on that expectation and twist it and surprise them. But yes, I think it's good to give an acknowledgement of that, and I see that occasionally in current shows now. I think you can't help but mention it because the characters usually are in the same universe we are and we're aware of what we're seeing too. So Right, yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about Roberto. Tell me about that. Well, that was just fun. We just, you know, Geraldo Rivera was such an outrageous character at his peak that we thought, oh, let, you know, let's do this, you know. Let's have Sam be like Geraldo Rivera. And that was just the starting point of it all, really. Uh, and everybody thought, oh, that would be a fun thing to do. And we did the episode. I, I can't even remember the, how the plot ended in Roberto. Something to do with a inhaler was poisoned, so the girl would have died from asthma, but by actual poison. Right, right, right. 
I'm more clever than I remember. <laughs> and uh, you had uh, Sam spray what the killer thought was poison in his face, so he kind of admitted that he knew what was going on. Right, yeah. Here's an interesting comparison. So Sam does a comeuppance there that way. He sort of uses, hoists the villain by his own petard, as Shakespeare might say. And in Moonlight, he was the exact opposite. If you ever watched uh, old Moonlightings, particularly in the last season when we were there, they didn't want the crime to be solved so much by facts. Like, ah, this proves that the blood was here, was on your shirt, we did the DNA testing, okay? They wanted emotional clues and tricks and traps so that emotionally, psychologically, the bad guy would give themselves away. And about half the time we would be, we would joke about this in Moonlighting, Bruce or Sybil would say something like that, accusing him of this, and then usually the bad guy or bad woman chokes and runs. So that's an, an admission of guilt by fleeing, okay? But if they had just said, no, that's not true, and stood there, <laughs> the episode would have been dead, you know? Yeah. It would have ended, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was sort of the fun of Moonlighting was you, you went emotionally rather than with facts. That's uh, that whole who told you, you just did thing. Right, right. I love Moonlighting. I grew up on Moonlighting. Very big fan. It's a great show. Was was it really as magical being there as as watching it on TV? I heard uh, some things about behind the scenes. Maybe there weren't and everybody was getting along. Uh, well, in Moonlighting, yeah. I mean, yes and no. Uh, there were moments. There were some rough patches. I won't go into gross, gory details as much as you want them. Mm-hmm. Um, but they all got smoothed over. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it was a very fun staff. Uh, that last year, Chick Hegley was running it. Um, Carrie Aaron was on there with me and with Jim Kramer and Jerry Stahl and Barbara Hall, who uh, you know, runs Madam Secretary. And everybody's very talented. And it, again, it was sort of a fun, fun staff to be on. You know, definitely all, everybody had their own personalities. And it's not like we all worked together. I wrote some scripts with Jim, uh, and that was fun. But that was a really, a really good time for me. Anyway, I really enjoyed that that last season. I, you know, I was sorry I didn't go another five years. I was uh, young, but I remember crying because it was over. Yeah, yeah. Did you ever get to write any of those things that I think it was Elise Beasley said when she picked up the phone? Uh, it, I, I think I had to have written them because <laughs> we didn't really parcel things out. You know, you you wrote your own scripts. You know, unless there was some reason you teamed up like Jim and I did. So, yeah, we wrote everything. You know, you would write all the words. Now, that isn't to say that, particularly since, you know, we were, I was a lowly writer back then, it might not have been every word I ever wrote or Chick might have rewritten it or somebody else might have rewritten it. Roger Director was doing some consulting and writing for us, so he could have rewritten Alice's, uh, Elise Beasley's stuff. But pretty much what you wrote went in, and then you knew it was going to get rewritten, so... That was it. Very fun to watch. I recommend it to anybody who hasn't seen Moonlighting to just marathon the whole thing. It's it's a great show. Oh, yeah. And Curtis Armstrong. Oh, yeah. Fun guy there. The Curse of Tahotep. Yes. Well, I'm a big archaeology buff, and I love Egyptian stuff, and uh, I don't know how much you follow it, but like right now, they even think, as of today, that there may be a hidden doorway in Tutankhamun's tomb. Hmm. I saw something about temperature differences they recently found. Yeah, that's on the exterior of the, of the Great Pyramid. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in, in King Tut's tomb, 
they did an examination, and part of it was from, uh, I think, uh, 3D scanning, where they're, they're doing, like, laser 3D scanning of monuments in case they ever get torn down or blown up. It's good that they're doing that. Yeah, so they can recreate them, at least digitally. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've forgotten who it was. I can't remember if it was a French archaeologist or an Egyptian one. But uh, there seem to be some variations that could be a doorway that has been plastered over, mm. which would not be unusual to do. And it could be a spirit doorway. And they also think that the tomb that Tut was in seems small for a pharaoh. So there is a theory that if this is a door, it may lead to a much larger tomb, which might be for a queen, which would be what the original tomb was all built for. So they're taking their time about whether they're going to tear into this wall because they got to you know, cut through real hieroglyphs and stuff. So that type of stuff just fascinates me. And so mummies and the pharaoh and everything else uh, and the mummy's curse and playing off of that, uh, again, that sort of supernatural thing, you know, and all those rumors about Howard Carter being cursed and the people dying who discovered King Tut, that all went into the pleasure of thinking up and then writing about Tahotep. And it was at the very end, this was a Don thing, which everybody loved when they watched it, which, and because and, he wanted to have you know somebody standing at the end, and then the mummy's hand comes up and grabs this guy on the shoulder. Mm-hmm. You know? And we're all like, what? <laughs> the mummy? Come on, really? <laughs> yeah, it'll be fun. And so we did it, you know, and it was fun. Fun stuff like that. Do you have to come up with an alternate reason to why it happened or could have happened, or is it just it's fun? Uh, just fun. Cool. First X-Files episode I wrote... Morgan and Wong, I had written some scene where, you know, like some character or something exits, you know, screen right or something like that. And they said, oh, no. And then he comes back in on screen left. And I go, well, how did they get over there? They go, no way. It'd just be really cool. It's really scary. (laughs) And they were into that type of stuff. And they were really excellent at it. And they were right. You know, it was really scary. So sometimes you just did it that way. You know, it is entertainment after all. That's the most important part. You know what? You got to remember that. That's the bottom line. We're not doing documentaries. <laughs> Which a lot of times are entertainment as well. <laughs> they are entertaining. There's some great documentaries, but uh, I'm hired to do the made-up ones. The episode of Quantum Leap you directed, Southern Comforts. Well, that was fun. I think that was Tommy Thompson's script, which is a fun fun script to do. I mean, you get inspired by things where he worked for Burt Reynolds uh, early in his career, as I remember him saying in his interview, too. And... Uh, Burt Reynolds had been in Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, like the movie version. And uh, so there was a setting, a whorehouse, and that was it. You know, that's the inspiration. And, and Tommy would have to give you the details on what else made him do it. It was fun to direct, abject pleasure mixed with abject terror throughout. Uh, I couldn't have gotten through it without the crew, and particularly Michael Watkins. And I remember one day I'm on the set, I don't know, three or four days in, I'm not sleeping a whole lot because I'm just so anxious about it and planning things, you know. And we get to a scene, and my agents are there. My agents come down, uh, you know, and forgot who else was there. I think maybe my wife was there to see me directing a big time, big deal thing, okay? And just before they walk in on the stage, we're about to go to lunch, and Scott is like, uh, I think, I don't know about this scene. I just, I just wish we could do something different here something better, something that I think, what if they, and it all blew up right there at that moment, uh, not in a bad way, but like, oh my God, we're going to change the script right now. Mm-hmm. 
And so we said, okay, uh, we're going to go to lunch early. And we broke early for lunch, and everybody went away, except for, like, me, Scott, and every other people in the scene, but mainly you know, me and Scott and, like, a script supervisor who take notes. And we basically rewrote this scene, this big scene, which was, like, the climax, uh, and just wrote dialogue and made up dialogue and, and rough blocking and how we were going to do this. And then everybody came back from lunch and it was like, okay, let's shoot it. And it was sort of like, I said, you know, like, welcome to like, you know, quantum leap improv, you know, here we go. <laughs> and, uh, you know, thank God for, you know, Scott and Dean and everybody else because they could do it and they pulled it all off, you know? So, uh, it, that was a lot of fun. You was know. Tommy Thompson okay with that? Yeah, I think Tommy was. I mean, I think I'm trying to remember. He probably was there too on the set because it was his script. But uh, you know, there wasn't a choice. I mean, Scott and Dean would break their backs for the show, so um, we were all too willing to break our backs for them. You know, um, very early on when I was on Quantum Leap, you know, we'd be moving from one part of the set to another lighting a different part of a set or going over here and that. And, you know, Scott would want to like move lights and move sandbags and, and people would have to say, Hey, Scott, <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> you know, you don't have to do that, you know, but he was just so helpful and such a nice guy, you know? So uh, how can you not like people like that and, and mm -hmm. want to help them out if they ask you for something? From what I hear, he's still doing that today. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear that. You know, I'm glad that a good guy hasn't changed. He's still a good guy. Um, but yeah, so Southern Comforts was fun. The, the actresses I worked with were all great. Uh, it was fun to see some of them show up in other shows and movies and other episodes of other shows afterwards um, on other series. Okay, so from directing Tommy Thompson's script, Southern Comforts, what was it like having Scott Bakula direct Roberto? You know, an actor directing himself, I always think is A, excellent, and B, dangerous, uh, because I just think you're going to wear yourself out. Directing is so demanding, and, you know, as an actor, at least what I have observed, not having been a series regular myself, you don't have a hundred people coming up to you seemingly every minute asking you for a decision, um, whereas in directing, that can be the case. You know, they'll just keep going, oh, what about this? And for next thing, tomorrow, do you want the blue dress or the red dress? And what about that? You know what? I don't know, we have to cut four pages from this because we're running long and what all those things. So great. He, you know, he's, he's an actor, so he can really give you an insight into performance and everything else. And he certainly is smart and, and certainly picked up, you know, wherever he picked it all up from just acting or whatever else, you know, anything else about directing or camera and the technical stuff. And, and he has a great support staff there with him, you know, with, with Watkins and everybody else around. So it worked out fine. You know, I, I don't know how he slept. I don't know why he wasn't exhausted <laughs> and in a coma. Because he was still uh, in every scene. Yeah. But, uh, you know, he did it. So I had to anybody who does that, who directs themselves and acts in something, you know. Yeah, most actors, if they're directing an episode, their character has the week off almost. Yeah. Yeah, you're not like the lead in every other scene <laughs> or every scene, you know. A couple of fun things before we talk about the X-Files. You wrote the last episode of Max Headroom. Well, Yeah. <laughs> now, are you talking about Baby Grow Bags, that yes. episode? Yes. Yeah. And you know what? I've never seen the final cut of that or a cut of it. Um, 
Max Headroom was, a, a, was again, a, a fun, cutting-edge thing to do. The amazing thing about Max Headroom was they were used to shooting longer stuff, the guys who created it and, and started and ran it. So episodes would come in at, like, you know, 75 minutes long. Oh, and wow. cut it all out. And then people would go, it doesn't make sense. And go, well, we had to cut out. <laughs> um, and they, you know, slowly got that under control, sort of. But when they did focus groups on Max Headroom, which I loved, they would say, what do people love about Max Headroom? Oh, it's sort of this post-apocalyptic world. Corporations sort of run things. Everything isn't spelled out. It's sort of in the middle. You jump in the middle of stories, it seems like, sometimes, or you make these leaps of, you know, thinking, uh, you know, and sort of weird. Okay, so what do people hate about Max Headroom? Oh, it's set in a post-apocalyptic <laughs> world. Corporations run everything. You jump in the middle. You know, yeah. it was that type of thing. Mm-hmm. So what do you do? You know, you just do the show you want to do as long as the network will let you. Again, it was fun. Baby Grow Bags was, uh, that's the science side of me, which I liked on Outer Limits, which was fun to do on, on Max Headroom, which was the idea that, you know, just growing people are growing things, you know. It's eerie and creepy and entertaining. So uh, that was a, a fun episode. But like I say, I've never... I've never seen the, the, the final cut of that. It's on DVD. It's pretty cool. Yeah. I'm going to go out and spring for it. <laughs> you would think they would send you one. Yeah, you'd think so, right? <laughs> Where are they now? In fact, the funniest thing, I was watching Supergirl just the other night, and uh, they had a character, the villain, Live Wire, a woman, DJ, who gets hit by lightning, transformed, um, I would say transmitted, uh, lightning hits Supergirl, which hits this woman, and she becomes Live Wire, and she can insert herself turn herself into electricity and put herself through every circuit, every plug, everything like that. And she appears on these, all these screens behind uh, Calista uh, Flockhart's uh, desk in her office there. But it's like Max Headroom. <laughs> she sort of stutters for a second and sort of jumps around and twitches and there's sort of those slight glitches. And as soon as I saw that, I thought, well, that's Max Headroom. That, you know? Instantly recognizable, like in that scene from Back to the Future 2 where they have Ronald Reagan and Michael Jackson as Max Headroom. I mean, there are just some things, at least to me, are iconic, and and that was one of them. Uh, was Max Headroom, which I loved, and whatever. And Charlie Rocket was a blast. He was he was a fun guy to talk to. So, uh, when you were given that script, did you know it was going to be the series finale, or just thought it was a season finale? No, I really didn't. I just thought it was a script that I was writing for Max Headroom as best as I could, and you know, and I hope some of my words made it to the screen. You know. <laughs> It was so exciting just to be on that show, you know, that uh, I had no idea if it was going to. And often that's the case in series. When I did Outer Limits and I did Ripper, they didn't know if that was going to be the 100th episode or not. Um, they thought it might be, might not be, and I certainly didn't plan for it to be the 100th episode, but they, they positioned it to be a potential as like the one they would put the big push behind uh, for the 100th episode. They were considering it and it... Uh, I think, uh, I can't remember the name of the episode, San Egan's script, where they went back in time to the concentration camp. That became the 100th episode, and that was a terrific script uh, and terrific episode. What's it like to work on a show like The Outer Limits that's like so iconic like that? Well, uh, the great thing about The Outer Limits was it was like Quantum Leap is an anthology. Every week was different, except this one there was almost no constraint except for your imagination and what the budget was. And my favorite thing about that was, uh, particularly in Outer Limits, was 
the fun for me as a writer is to crack puzzles or to try to do the impossible. And so in Out of Limits, there was sort of a rule of thumb, like we will never do a period piece because it's too expensive to do. And I thought, you know what, i got to come up with some idea that they just can't say no to. You know, that's a period piece. And it turned out Ripper was that. And they spent extra money on it and went to Vancouver Island and shot. And, you know, they couldn't have been more supportive and more into it. And they didn't, you know, pull out the stops on that one. And uh, the other one on, on Outer Limits, that was sort of like that was like I wanted to write a musical, Outer Limits. Just a musical science fiction <laughs> show? What, what is that? And so, you know, I did, which was also an homage to uh, Casablanca. I'm liking this. I haven't seen that one. I have to go check it out now. This sounds very interesting. Yeah. And besides, it was uh, Helen Shaver directed it, and she was, I will say, A, a pleasure, B, high maintenance. Uh, we got in some, several, uh, I would say, mm, firm and determined discussions about things on it. But I never saw a director work harder than Helen Shaver. She was terrific. I mean, she was like, go, 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 go. And just, you know, she wanted to get this stuff done, and she did it, and she she was terrific that way. And the other thing was um, Nathan Fillion, who was the, is the star of the episode. Oh, my um, goodness. I, I really have to watch this now. <laughs> yeah, well, I wanted to say, you know, I got him to do Firefly. I, I would like to take credit for that. I doubt it. That's the reason he got Firefly. But um, when I saw him and I saw him acting and I saw stuff going on, I said, you know, this guy can do drama and comedy. He sh- he's like, you know, Cary Grant or something. He's, he should be huge. And again, a very nice guy. And, a, and another serendipity thing, which was there's a, at the time, Outer Limits, on not every episode, but some episodes would shoot two versions sometimes of, an episode, not a complete episode, but scenes because there was sometimes like some slight nudity or toplessness or something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, and um, there was a sauna scene there. And, and Nathan goes, well, I've got this, I've got a tattoo. And we're like, what? Which was like perfect. Like he has, he has this, like this tattoo on his leg, you mm-hmm. know. I know it's in Chinese or something. Right. And we thought, wow, that's that's pretty cool, you know? That's great for his character. So that, things like that just pop up that you, you can't plan. So. <laughs> I'm a little bit of a fan. I named my daughter Serenity. So. Ah, wow. Yeah, well, I think Firefly was a terrific series. and I, I only weep that it didn't go on longer. Uh, All of us. Yeah, yeah. I'm a, I'm a huge Firefly. Very cool. Man. That was a musical? Well, the musical, it, yeah, it... it it turned out not to be the musical I thought it was going to be. <laughs> so basically what it turned down there to be then was just the, the female lead singing. And I can't remember her name. I think she was, she was from the commitments, which was a big movie that had been recently out and she was British and she like flew in from England. And like the next day she was in the recording studio having to record the songs. I was like, wow. Again, like another serendipity thing we didn't know. We cast this guy as an actor who was one of the uh, secondary leads, a character sort of helping out with our hero, Nathan. And he's supposed to be playing in a band. So we're going to have a band on stage backing up this woman while she lip syncs to her song. I was like that. And this guy goes, well, you know, I play the mandolin. We're like, what? Because, oh, yeah, I play the mandolin. I really play it. 
So, like, he's, like, really playing the mandolin, you know? And it's like, how could you, how could you plan that? You couldn't. <laughs> you know? We yeah. couldn't. And it was, again, just, uh, you know, a happy coincidence. You'd have to go through a lot of resumes to find somebody who played the mandolin, probably. Right. Mandolin, uh, <laughs> 22 to 24, you know? <laughs> no. Uh, did you write those songs again, or were they standards? Um, I wrote the song, and then it got changed. Uh, Richard Lewis wrote the song. He had won an Emmy, I think, the previous year for co-writing like a theme song. Hmm. Um, and uh, so Richard was very into music, and he liked this one, but he thought he had a better idea. And I was going to say, well, you know, okay, go for it, you know. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so he, he wrote that song. Very cool. Another fun show you were a part of, The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr., yeah, that was fun. That's where I first met uh, John McNamara and David Simpkins. Again, both terrific writers. Yeah, I mean, come on. A sort of alien, outer space, western? Mm-hmm. What, what could be better than that, you know? So uh, that, was, that was just, again, a fun show. And I got to, you know, they weren't afraid to be a little erudite and say, oh, Iphigenia's, you know. <laughs> or whatever, Socrates, you already start with Socrates, you got to know who Socrates is, and then let's think of some other Greek names and people. So, again, that, that was just a fun episode. Uh, Socrates' sister, and uh, a yeah. buddy of mine for 20 years now, he constantly quotes just lines from that one episode, so it's pretty Oh, cool. really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, pretty much if he doesn't know anybody's name, he'll just say Iphigenia. People just look at him like, what are you talking about? Uh, I love to hear that. That's yeah. fun. That's fun to hear. That's, uh, great, that's great. great. Show. And of course, X Files. That is a major show to be involved in. What was that experience like? X Files was a, a really interesting experience. Parts of the West had just ended, and I got on X Files, which was very hot. I came on in the middle of the season, um, and uh, you know, I, I get to write a script. Um, <laughs> And uh, I, had, I had written a, a, a show, an episode, where, uh, you know, guy is brain-controlled by actually a brain that's in a jar, the sort of mentally challenged individual. Was that uh, Ro- Roland? By. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And as Zelcho Ivanek is playing him, playing the mentally challenged brothers, he's a, one half of a twin. And the other twin is was theoretically killed in a car crash, and is, but now we realize his brain is kept alive. And is controlling Roland, but I, you know, I have a scientist get killed in a wind tunnel uh, there, and uh, it was Surnow was a scientist name, and I did that because it was uh, Joel Surnow who I worked with on Covington Cross, and so after the episode airs, I get this phone call from Joel like, "Did you have to kill me like right away? <laughs> I mean, really?" So he was good, good sport about it. Um, yeah, that was fun. Um, Roland was an interesting script to write in my first X-Files script. And the first draft I did was, uh, I will say, completely off target in the sense of they sort of gave me the direction that Mulder is always two steps ahead of everybody. And I took that literally. So all my dialogue and conversation was like two steps ahead. He would say one thing, and then you think like a chessman, what are the next two moves he would make? So he'll say that third thing after that. So it got rewritten heavily, but to the better. And I learned, oh, that's what they mean when these two steps ahead, you know. Um, but it was a, it, it turned out very well. When we were in mixing 
uh, room. We were in the sound stage, and they're mixing Roland. Uh, one of the mix guys is watching Zeltko Ivanek do Roland, and he goes, this is like the best actor I've ever seen do somebody who's sort of challenged this way. And the reason I know that is because my brother is mentally challenged, and this guy has nailed it. Um, and that was, you know, really high praise. And I thought this, I thought Zoltro Ivanek was a terrific actor, and he still is. Um, but when he did Roland, it was pretty amazing to watch him. And that was fun. You know, the guys on there, Morgan and Wong were there, and uh, Gordon and Ganza, Howard Gordon and Alex Ganza uh, were on staff there. Um, so it was a pretty, pretty neat group of people to work with. Very cool. You wrote three also? Yeah, uh-huh. That was sort of a parallel universe. I was working on that, and they had another vampire script working that actually Paul Brown from Quantum Leap was writing. Oh, cool. Uh, and I, it was sort of like a parallel development. I think they couldn't decide which way to go. They liked both approaches, and it put them both into play. And uh, three got made, but it, just the idea of vampires uh, was very interesting to me and to them. So... Uh, that that worked out. Uh, you were also a script consultant on X Files. What what does that job entail? Well, a script consultant is a a glorified way, usually, to say we're going to pay you less, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which which usually means this. Um, let's say you're normally hired and you're a producer and you're supposed to get you know uh, one million dollars a week and we're going to hire you for twenty weeks with an option for a back twenty. Okay. Uh, I'm just making up these figures, but um, so now if you're a script consultant, you're a consultant, they'll say, ah, you know, we're going to pay you uh, five hundred thousand a week, and you have to come in three days a week. You know, that's it. Usually it's a budgetary thing, or also they're trying to, you know, try you out in a certain way. Often what happens though is you go in as a consultant, and sometimes, not every time, but sometimes. It's sort of like, oh, yeah, you're supposed to be three days a week. Oh, but we got casting tomorrow on Thursday. You should be there at casting. But now you're in four days a week, you know. You're not, but my contract says three, you know. Uh, so you're, you're in that dilemma. Uh, that doesn't come up too often, or at least not for me, but that could happen. So then you're in the terrible jam of do I, you know, adhere exactly to something or uh, do I go in? Because if I don't go in, the boss will be unhappy. Right. The boss is unhappy. I won't work here again. So it's a give and take, I guess. Yeah, it is. What's your thought on the enduring appeal of X Files and uh, the new season coming out in January? Well, I'm curious about the new season. I want to know where Chris has taken it. And I used to see him all the time on the plane when I was flying up to do Outer Limits because they shot it up there in, in Vancouver. But I think the enduring thing is they were great characters. Um, look, when you do a TV series, you have to have a willing suspension of disbelief because look if i was scully after about five episodes of seeing really creepy spooky things going on <laughs> how could you say oh that's impossible Mulder? <laughs> that's never, uh, you're crazy <laughs> you know but they didn't do that because then the series would be over the tension would be over so you play it out but i think people identify with that and i think people want that stuff to be out there or to be true mm. you know they want the fluke man to be swimming through the you know sewers or whatever. Um, they, they just want those mysteries to occur. 
and some global conspiracy or whatever it may be, whether we know the date the aliens are coming or whatever it is, ultimately. They just like that. I think it had a little bit of what I would say Mad Men did very well, which Mad Men would pose questions and the characters just wouldn't answer it. they just have a look or there'd be silence. Mm. You had to go, well, what does that mean? So with X-Files, I think they did the same thing a lot of times. They, they just wouldn't answer a question. So you're left hanging. So you hope to find a hint in the next one to answer that. And I think that's part of the uh, enduring allure. To Chris Carter's credit, you know, and, and the guys who, who wrote it all. Chris Carter mentioned publicly that his hope is that this season does incredibly well and they get offered a few more seasons. If he did call you up, is, is there still a good relationship there? And uh, if he asked you to be a part of it, would you? Yeah, I, I'd certainly be a part of it, yes, calling me up like that. Um, you know, every, every show you work on is like dating. You could be in love with this girl from afar, and then you go on a date with her, and it's like, you know what? She's great in so many ways, and we're just not clicking. It's not that she's a bad person, and I'm not a bad person. It's just not there, you know? So that, that can happen on a show. Um, and it's nobody's fault, and, it, and it's the showrunner's job to recognize that and try to get the best group of people he can together. So if he says, like, I'm not picking you up, it may not be, it's not because you're a bad writer. Um, it's just because it's that chemistry. And, and that's something you can never you know, fully grasp in an interview when you're interviewing for a job. Um, you just have to play it out and see how it works out. So, I wanted to ask you a little bit about Lois and Clark, The Adventures of Superman. Another fun show. Got to work with Mac and Simpkins, some other great people there. Bob Singer, terrific. Bob Singer was great. Running the show, he would always say, like, you know, if you had a problem, don't just come to me with a problem and say, what do I do? You wanted to come to him with a problem and say, well, here's how I think I'm going to solve it. Then he was like, okay, great, yes, no, or what if we do this, X, Y, or Z, you know? Always very helpful, but he always wanted you to try to figure out a way to do it first, um, which was a great lesson to learn. And Dean Kane and, and Terry Hatcher were great. They had very different personalities. Dean had this, you know, big enthusiasm, boyish thing. He was an all-star, like at Princeton, like All-American or something, football player. You know, Terry had, they just had different work habits, you know? Terry might have to like really study something sometimes and learn these lines and Dean's might look at it very quickly and, and say, okay, let's go, you know, or vice versa. But it was a, it was a fun show to work on. Again, they're pretty free reign in coming up with wacky ideas, which we wanted to do and anything. Like I remember with the episode, you know, Superman with two ends in it, you know, <laughs> Nazis in deep freeze and they come back. I mean, how can you beat that? <laughs> you know, they're like, as everybody said, it's a cliche. Everybody said, you know, they hadn't existed. You, you know, you, you would want to invent them because they were such perfect villains so many times. They mm-hmm. did so many terrific things. But uh, it was just fun, you know. They had a really good on-screen chemistry, and uh, at times it did remind me a little bit of moonlighting the chemistry they had. But I wanted to ask you, there's more than a few connections between Lois and Clark and Quantum Leap. Is that because you had all worked together previously, or is that just happenstance? I would say sort of happenstance. I mean, things went on from there. Uh, Grant Rosenberg was working in the office down the hall. He was working on, like, poltergeist. And we were, we were you know, two doors down working on Lois and Clark. And then, you know, cut to a year or so later, and we're all working on Outer Limits up in Canada, you know. Things like that happen. 
So it's it's more like you you have certain writers have certain sensibilities, and when staff jobs open, sometimes you go to that that pool of writers that have those sensibilities or have been on shows you liked. I think uh, I think McNamara remember me from Quantum Leap, but also from Briscoe County. So when they had an opening at Lois and Clark, I think he said to you know Bob Singer, hey, what about Chris Rubenthal? You know, it's just one of those things. When I worked on uh, The Pretender, I got the job, I think, on Outer Limits because Carlos Cotto or, or, uh, or Javi knew uh, Carlton Eastlake and said, hey, you should think about Chris. And then I met Carlton and away I went on Outer Limits. Just things like that work out that way. Do you seem to get more work if you're just a nicer person to everybody and uh, people want to end up working with you again and again? Uh, I think that helps tremendously. I mean, I think, uh, you know, Don Belisario, I remember one time we were, we were considering hiring a writer just as a freelance job, and it was, you know, partly, do you want to be in a room with this person, you know? Not in a, a mean way, it's just, is the chemistry there to work along that you can brainstorm and do something with? And that's an important part of writing on staff. So um, that's, that's what you have to ask and, and think about. Um, when you're hiring a staff to put together, is how will all these parts mesh? You were also credited with being a producer on 45 or so episodes of Quantum Leap. What was your daily, day-to-day job as a producer of Quantum Leap? Well, no day is the same on, on, on any show, but oftentimes, you get, if you're not writing your own script or trying to help crack another story, my job sometimes became rewriting scripts. So I might be, at that time on Connolly, called in to polish a script from somebody else. And so that's what I did, you know, or I added a scene or take a whack at this scene. And that was part of it, but my main part of it really was being a person to just write scripts. I think writers who are hired on staff is sort of, a, if a, to use a baseball analogy, you're not expected to hit a home run every time, but you're pretty much expected to hit triples. They've got to be able to count on you. You've got to be a go-to guy, a go-to woman that they know they can get a script that they can shoot out of you in this amount of time. Um, that's not going to eat up their time rewriting and be a disaster. Um, that's going to be on budget, on you know, on time and and manageable. Otherwise, uh, you may not be the right fit for that show or for you know for that season or whatever. Were there any things that uh, they added to your job and they were like, "Hey, you're a producer. Can you do this for us?" say anything abnormal. We all got called upon to, once you sort of hit the producer level, to rewrite stuff or add stuff. You know, it's not uncommon to be shooting something back then and say, oh, uh, we're running over. We had to cut a scene. So now you got to cut, you know, these seven pages down to four or something. Or vice versa. Every once in a while you run short and you go, oh, now we got to add a scene. What can we add here with the people we have on the location we have? That makes sense. And oftentimes on shows, when you add scenes, they tend to be like, you know, two people in a room walking or two people, you know, talking and this and that. And you have to dwell on the emotional because you don't have the time or money to do action. And often they turn out to be some of the best scenes that people remember, you know, and uh, they're born out of desperation. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have any other memories of Quantum Leap uh, that we haven't talked about that uh, people would just love to hear about? Wow. Um, no, I, I can't say something super stands out, except that it, 
It was some of the most fun times in my life, literally. And, and you know, sitting around talking and joking and cracking stories with people you like. And then, and then later on, some of those people you run into again on other shows, whether I ran into, you know, Paul Brown again or Beverly Bridges was on Covington Cross with me in England. You know, uh, those are moments that I remember and hopefully other people remember. Uh, Joe Napolitano is still a good friend of mine. In fact, I'm working on a, doing, he's producing a movie that I'm writing right now, sort of a historical thing, sort of Indiana Jones meets the Patriot. Uh, mm. that, that hopefully my first draft will be done and we'll be taking it out in, I don't know, the next, like, say, two or three months. So, you know, we were just very simpatico. And uh, he's a great guy. And and uh, and so this is a real pleasure again. So, um, But as a quantum leap, no, it's just funny things happen. You know, whether I get thrown in a tank of water or whatever else, it was a, a great time to be there. People all got along. You know, it was a special time in my life. Um, I, I know uh, I saw the Don, I listened to the Don Belisario uh, interview you had, and he was talking about his legacy of being quantum leap. I think it was because it really meant things to people. Uh, and uh, I will tell you one one thing. Uh, at the first Quantum Leap convention, we were up at Universal, and a woman was in the audience, and she was very pregnant, and she asked Scott Bakula to come put her, his hands on her stomach. And so, like, you know, like, bless the baby. And everybody's like, oh, we're like, you know, nobody really knew. She was like, no, seriously, really. And he did it. And it was like the crowd was like, ah, you know, and how can a TV show touch people like that? You know, uh, Don did it, you know, and he put together a group of people who, you know, helped do it. Um, and I think that is the strength of Quantum Leap. And then and one of the things I really remember about it was, I think, as I said earlier at the beginning, it all had like a theme and messages in it that we were the humanity of it. I think that's a good word. The humanity of it is what really got through. And as to the Quantum Leap fans, you know, I'm thrilled and thankful and appreciative. Um, and uh, it means a tremendous amount to me that people are still out there thinking of Quantum Leap because um, I certainly think of it all the time. And, and I'm glad to see that it's still out there sort of resonating. How about that? Intentionally ambiguous. No, no, no. It really happened. I, I, I'm so excited about that. I was, I was golf clapping during that <laughs> moment because that's, that's totally what I envisioned happening. Like I thought it happened the first time and then time reset for everyone but Sam and he went back and so that's, that was really exciting to know that I'm right in my head. <laughs> but I also, um, something that I wanted to touch on, I didn't know that he was so involved. I mean, I know I've seen his name everywhere, but I didn't know he was so involved in so many episodes of Quantum Leap. And that that's really awesome. And a lot of them you haven't seen yet that are really good that he did. 
I also like how passionate he spoke about Quantum Leap. You could tell this was something that he really enjoyed doing. So seemed like a great guy, and I I totally agree with you. And it's so nice when we talk to producer after producer and writers and actors and just everybody involved in the show genuinely enjoyed what they were doing. And I think you can tell in the TV show. Right. And it's really disappointing when you find out that a TV show you love, the people like didn't want to be there and they hated each other and all that stuff. But with Quantum Leap, like it's perfect. I still don't watch Babylon 5. <laughs> um. You can watch the first season. No. He doesn't come Mm-mm. on until the second I don't care. season. I don't care. There's a reboot coming up. I don't care. Okay. I may watch the reboot, but the fact that he was like, move along, I have a line, and he stood there by himself, because <laughs> all you wanted to do was tell him that you liked Babylon 5. Yeah. yeah it's pretty much over. I, I don't even want to watch Tron. So, um, also, I wanted to mention, I have never seen a hockey puck in an episode. I didn't even know about that. This is breaking news on the Quantum Leap podcast here. I don't know if anybody else knows about it and they were just keeping it from us, but I I watch these episodes how many times in a row? I've never seen, but maybe because it's like dark, it could be in the background and we wouldn't notice. There was an Emmy award in this episode and I didn't notice the first couple of times. So I'm, I'm assuming that's gold. It was sitting on a (laughs) shelf. Right. So (laughs) it's not a far-fetched idea to me that I wouldn't see a hockey puck, especially if it was something sitting on a shelf in the background that I wasn't really paying attention to, but a hockey puck? I propose a page on quantumleappodcast.com slash hockey puck. I think that's a good idea where we do screenshots of where the hockey pucks are. And we have a list of every episode, and if anybody knows where one is, send it to us. Let us know. We'll find it. We'll put a screen cap up there. It was like, it's like Psych and the Pineapple, but... Exactly. It's way more elusive because pineapples are a little bit more noticeable, I think. It reminds me, I know a lot of the guys like to play hockey while they weren't filming Quantum Leap. Mm -hmm. Scott Bakula, J.D. Schwartz, all those guys. And somehow Richard Dean Anderson was in there. I don't know. But uh, (laughs) they had a good time. Yeah, I, I had no idea about the hockey puck thing, but that's really cool. And it's it's cool to know something new, some new information. If you ever don't have trivia for an episode, you can be like, there's a hockey puck in this episode somewhere. There is somewhere a you, hockey You puck. find it, and, and that's our trivia. Right. Amazing interviews. Yeah, if you're still listening after <laughs> the four-hour podcast of this episode, and your phone hasn't combusted because of the bad luck of Boogeyman, congratulations. You have made it this far. I think about this part of the episode, it's going to say, see other iPhone for the rest of the file. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know what you're going to do about bumping down the sound quality so people can... No. 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 Internet. We all pay for it every month. We might as well use it, right? It's going to be like a five-hour podcast. It might take five weeks to uh, listen to it for some people, but that's okay. I know it, w- it was funny when we had this, such an awesome lineup of people coming onto the show. We were like, oh, well, we'll just talk less about the show. But how can you talk less about this episode? Yeah, it's so good. And it's an there's, exciting episode. And there's so much to talk about. This is one of those episodes where you're like, wow, there's still, it's only been 10 minutes. Like, there's still <laughs> a whole episode. I, it's always good TV when you're sitting there and you're like, wow, this is awesome. It's probably almost over. But then you're like, this is awesome. There's still a whole another half an episode to yeah. go. That's, that's always good. It, it's it's horrible when it's the opposite. Yeah, and um, there were so many elements to this episode. There's nothing that we wanted to leave out. So, so 
I'm apologizing. Albie doesn't care. No. He, like, he, I think he is challenging himself. <laughs> Him and Juan have a thing over like who can have the longest podcast, but I'm apologizing to you because I, I am very honored that you have taken five hours of your, I don't even know how long it's going to be when we're done, but I'm guessing about five hours and I am thanking you for sticking with us and, and dedicating this much of your life to the Quantum Leap podcast. We're all in this together. This is the ultimate boogeyman special. Yeah. <laughs> and we've got more. <laughs> now we've got it. We've got three more interviews coming up. Just kidding. Secret surprise interviews. No, only one. <laughs> <laughs> and now a segment from Christopher D. Philippus. Welcome, everyone. I'm Christopher DeFilippis, and here we are at the episode everyone dreads, The Boogeyman. Notice how I say that so cavalierly? Boogeyman, 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 because I'd be doing you a favor if your cable mysteriously cut out, or your DVD player froze, or your Netflix exploded. The real curse of The Boogeyman is not what might happen when you say it, but actually having to watch it. If I had to rank Quantum Leap episodes from best to worst, Boogeyman would be hovering somewhere near the very bottom. In fact, many of the episodes I like least involve hokey supernatural plot elements, which always seem poorly grafted onto the rationality that otherwise informed the rest of the series. And Boogeyman is a prime example. Just listen to this doozy from Sam. Psychokinesis is very real, Al. The brain works on a chemoelectrical level. Epilepsy is a sort of crossing of the wires, so that maybe when her neurons short-circuited, Maybe it stimulated her psychokinetic energy. What is that nonsense? Sam is a scientist and has always been presented as a rational skeptic. And now he's suddenly an ardent defender of telekinesis? Why? Because Halloween episode? Then there's Dean's cringingly over-the-top performance as Dev Al. Who gave you the right to go bungling around in time, putting right what I made wrong? I'm just trying to get home. Well, you're not going to make it. <laughs> Pile on top of that the spinny goat strangling finale and the big reveal that it was all a dream. And you have a big fat Halloween turkey. And let's not forget the kiss with history starring a young Stevie King, crammed with ham-fisted references to Carrie, Christine, and Cujo. Even those don't pay off. If Sam was dreaming the entire time, he had absolutely zero influence on King. I wish I could say that the episode is jinxed and just an aberration. But, sadly, Boogeyman is indicative of a larger truth. Quantum Leap consistently failed whenever it dabbled in the supernatural. Case in point, A Portrait for Troyan, which, in my opinion, was the show's first genuine stinker. Troyan was a disaster from top to bottom, with a disjointed script, thudding melodrama, and a convoluted plot that hinged on a needlessly complicated scheme to kill Troyan with technology akin to magic. And if that wasn't bad enough, they throw a ghost into the mix that only muddled things up further. My fellow QLP crew members spent quite a bit of time on the Troyan podcast speculating about the ephemeral Priscilla Stoltz. Poor Hayden practically gave himself a soft tissue injury trying to explain what her actual role was in the overall story, coming up with three separate interpretations. Too bad I wasn't a contributor then, because I could have saved you some pain, buddy. 
If I had to guess, I'd say this is how it went down. A portrait for Troyan seemed like a good idea in the writer's room. A supernatural gothic mystery with crypts and spirit voices and a family curse, even an actual ghost. But as the script developed, those elements failed to gel. So they pushed the episode back from season one to season two. Even that wasn't enough time to fix it, but the production schedule demanded that they move forward. Hence the choppy story and a ghost that does nothing but add a confusing supernatural twist to the final scene. Of course, this is all speculation on my part, but what is certain is that the show didn't learn from these mistakes. In fact, every Supernatural episode that followed seemed to exist solely for the twist ending. In The Boogeyman, it was the Devil slash Dream debacle. The Curse of Tahotep was made for no other reason than to have the mummy get up at the end. Let's not forget the ghost ship in Ghost Ship, and the no reflection in the mirror gag was what brought us the execrable Blood Moon. I'm not saying that QL can't effectively use otherworldly elements. The Christmas episodes are wonderful proof that it can. But those shows worked because they strayed away from horror into more mystical and spiritual territory. And as spirituality is a cornerstone of Quantum Leap, those stories are a much better fit. But let's save that discussion for the Christmas show. For now, I think we've given the devil, or Devil, his due. So let's take a cue from old Charlie and leave the boogeyman alone. Them that dance with the devil are bound to get scorched. Good advice, Charlie. I'd say this episode has burned us enough. Let's shake it off like a bad dream. I need to pick up some spaghetti and liver to make gopher guts anyway, and don't get me started on all those grapes I got to peel for the bowl of eyeballs. Happy Halloween. a bulletin from CBS News. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade in downtown Dallas. The first reports say that President Kennedy has been seriously wounded by this shooting. If I had my life to live over again On February 15th, 2016, premiering on Hulu, is the original miniseries from producer J.J. Abrams, starring James Franco, based on the best-selling Stephen King novel, 112263. I'm Skipper Martin, author of the graphic novel Bizarre New World and 24-year veteran of the post-production industry. And I'm Christopher DeFilippis, creator of the radio show DeFlipside, author of the Quantum Leap novel Foreknowledge, and the original time travel novella The Seeker. We all love this novel so much. In anticipation of the new series, we're very excited to bring you this limited event podcast covering both the original Stephen King book and the upcoming Hulu adaptation. During our first shows, we'll be discussing the novel in detail, and we'll be speculating on the series. Then, starting in mid-February, following the Hulu series premiere, we'll dive deep into each episode, giving our thoughts, observations, and opinions. And we will also give you the opportunity to give your feedback. We'll also be taking you behind the scenes with interviews with cast members and the production staff with actress Tanya Pinkins. I love the short stories, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, The Body, you know, Dolores Claiborne. He's got so many good books. I think he's one of the greatest writers of all time because he can write anything. He really can write anything. Actor Kevin Dennis. It's just, it's, it's a never-ending pool of mystery, and, and like this period itself is so sexy. I think that's why this miniseries, 11 is going to be so scintillating to watch. 
actress Miranda Calderon. But it was great. I really had a great time with everyone. Yeah, and working with the directors as well. Editor Dorian Harris. The actors did a lovely job. They really did. It was it was great to edit. The great James Franco and Chris Cooper. Phenomenal acting across the board. And many, many more. So subscribe to 112263, an event podcast available on iTunes, Stitcher, and at barringspace.com slash Melissa Crandall loves to write, well, whatever compels her. In the past, that's been fantasy, speculative fiction, and non-fiction essays. But since February, Crandall has been involved in a non-fiction project that she's very excited about. Crandall's novels include media tie-ins for Star Trek and Earth 2, as well as an original fantasy, Weathercock. Crandall's short fiction has appeared in the e-zine Allegory, the collection Darling Wendy and Other Stories, and in Amoskeg the Journal of Southern New Hampshire University. Her non-fiction work has appeared in Chicken Soup for the Soul, the Journal of the American Geriatric Society, NARHA Strides, and ASPCA's Animal Watch. Crandall is proud to be a regular participant in the exquisite project at Bill Library in Ledyard, Connecticut, and this year also had the pleasure to be involved in Connecticut Humanities' The CT Caper a story written in serial form employing the talents of 12 writers and artists from across the state. Until recently, Crandall maintained a semi-regular blog, The Wild Ride, chronicling her experience as caretaker to her mother, who suffered from dementia. She still drops in from time to time to write about the grief process or provide a shoulder for someone who needs to vent about their experiences as a caretaker. It's important to realise that you're not alone. Crandall is as drawn to essays as she is to fiction and enjoys the difference between the two. Fiction allows her mind to soar, to imagine, and bring to life the what-ifs that plague her mind. Essays make her pause to stock, to examine in detail the events she chooses to report. Often the two styles are intertwined, the introspection of non-fiction bleeding over into speculation of fiction, The creativity of stories sparking a memory that, in turn, becomes an essay. It makes for a full, well-rounded meal. But, of course, Leapers will know Melissa Crandall best as the author of the Quantum Leap novel Search and Rescue. Hi, Melissa. Thanks for joining us today. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. You're more than welcome. I just wanted to ask to start with, Quantum Leap's a really unique concept because you literally could come up with any situation you wanted to and turn it into a leap. Had you always wanted to write a survival or search and rescue story and decided to use Quantum Leap as the means to tell it? Or did it start with wanting to write something about Quantum Leap and then deciding to use survival or search and rescue as the theme? So in short, how did search and rescue come about? That is a really interesting question. Both scenarios that you put out sort of happened at the same time. 
Uh, I have a very good writer friend who I have been collaborating with for probably ooh, 30 years or so. And it's we don't collaborate on anything for the rest of the world to see. It's just this own little universe that we write in for recreation. And we had done a story about a plane crash in the wilds of Canada and, you know, had just done this whole thing. So when I had the opportunity to do the Quantum Leap story, I kind of started looking at that story that she and I had done and talked to Ginger Buchanan and said, you know, what do you think of this idea? So I had to write up a whole outline of what the story would be about and uh, kind of stole some of the characters that Pam and I had shared and put them into Quantum Leap and massaged it around. And that's what happened. Fantastic. So how close was the final product to how you originally envisioned the story Search and Rescue? Pretty close. There were certain things I had to tweak and, and change, but it was pretty close to the way I had originally envisioned it. I, my, my real goal in the story was to really give Al an integral part in things. He always, he's always important to whatever leap Sam does, but I really wanted to give him the opportunity to see what it was like to leap himself and to put him in a situation of real peril. Yeah, for sure. And I'm glad you mentioned Al because I can really tell it comes through in your writing really well that how much you love the Al character. Am I right in assuming that he's your favorite? Well, you know, that's interesting. When I started watching the show, I came to Quantum Leap kind of late in its run. A friend of mine recommended it to me and I started watching it and I got hooked. And when I first started, of course, Sam was my favorite character because Sam is who Sam is. And but as time goes on, when you're writing that character, he's just so good all the time. He's always trying his best. He's always putting his best foot forward, even if it he doesn't always succeed. But Al is really interesting because Al is, is so flawed and so broken in many ways. And that makes him a very interesting character to play with. So uh, over time, I would have to say yes, that Al became my favorite character. Yes, he's my favorite too, and for very similar reasons as to what you said. He just, I think he adds some humanity to the to the show, whereas Sam's the overly good character who doesn't ever really seem to do anything wrong, whereas Al's the one who really makes the show feel human. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I would agree with that. Sam is, he's the knight in shining armor to a real massive degree, and we don't really get to see a whole lot of maybe shades of gray with him, something that's a little darker. And Al's the everyman character. And I think because he's that, it makes him easier for all of us to relate to. Sam is someone for us to aspire to, but Al is closer to who we really are. Yeah, absolutely. Well, to not spoil our listeners who haven't yet read the book too much, I'll just say there's a point where Al faces a near-death experience, apart from yeah. obviously the whole lot being a near-death experience. But <laughs> Uh, first of all, I think you picked a really interesting way for Al to find out what he looked like during this leap by, um, you know, being uh, having the out of body experience looking down on himself. You, I don't think yes. we've ever seen that in Quantum Leap, <laughs> but uh, it really surprised me and actually upset me a little bit. But this is in a good way because you know something's good when you get emotional from it. Having written Al as quite a sad character who felt that he had very little to live for. And I really love that you made it that it was his friendship with Sam and not wanting Sam to fail and be stuck in time that really made Al want to cling to life. 
what brought on this poetic license and how did this side of Al evolve in your head? I don't think I can take a lot of credit for that. It, you know, the writing process is such a, it's an experience of evolution as you're doing it. And I did not set out to make Al this specific way. But when I was writing that scene, it just seemed perfectly natural with the character. Through the, the series, we got to see really how much he loves Sam and how much he would do for him. Oh, and absolutely. It's natural to me that, that that's what would occur to him that I may not be worth a lot because we all know he, he doesn't think very highly of himself uh, in a lot of respects. He's got a lot of insecurities because of his failed marriage and all the things that have happened to him. But knowing he's got this one true friend and how can I let this one true friend fail? Because that's really what the show is about is, is in a lot of respects, it's a love story between Sam and Al. Oh, definitely. It, it really is the friendship between Sam and Al, which I think made the show what it was. You must have done a great deal of research about Native American culture in order to incorporate some of their customs and beliefs, like Chris's grandfather being able to see each person's spirit animal and having talismans which can help you tap into them and trying to use the behavior of the animals to help navigate through the wilderness, all those sort of things. How did you learn all of this really interesting information, and how long do you think the research took? The Native American research didn't take a very long time at all because it was, a lot of it was stuff I already knew because I've always been interested in the idea of talismans and animal totems, and I'm very connected to the natural world. I, I like being around animals and observing animals and, and that connection that we make with them. The Part of the book I had to do a lot of research on was Canada and British Columbia in particular and where could I have this plane go down and, you know, it's, it's one thing to say, I'm going to have this plane go down. Well, then you have to go, well, how are they going to find it? So I actually contacted the folks at Wells Gray Park. I spoke to, if I can do a shout out to a lovely person named Ellen Ferguson who she really went above and beyond, and she sent me reams and reams and reams of information on what they do within the park during the search and rescue, what type of helicopters they use, and just all this wonderful, wonderful detail that I was able to incorporate into the book. And, and the book wouldn't be half so good without her help. You can really tell that you've put in your research, and I couldn't find any anachronisms, so big props there. Uh, also, on the theme of survival, did you have to do a lot of research about how to write the ways that Al and his teammates could survive such a severe plane crash and get over injuries and stay alive when there's not much food and when it's cold and stay motivated and ultimately be able to survive? And does it affect you writing such heavy subject matter? I did a lot of research on that because when you're working in a universe that's based in reality, to me, one of the things a writer really has to do is there's a uh, a quote from, I think the writer was Eudora Welty, who said, always make sure your sun is in the right part of the sky, essentially, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but make sure your research is right. And I didn't want to put something in there about survival. And ha all you need is one person who says, that's not how it really is. And you've blown it for them. And it's it's really important not to blow the story for anyone if you can help it. Does it affect you writing such heavy subject matter? No, I would 
say not. There are those who would say most of my subject matter tends to be a little bit on the dark side. I kind of see it the opposite way. Most of what I write, I think, ultimately is about human triumph and how we overcome whether they're the demons that we carry inside of us or things from the outside affecting us that I, I think we can triumph, and that's kind of what I focus on. Yeah, and you can't have any light without the darkness, can you? No, you cannot. They do balance each other out, and we see that again in Quantum Leap because Al and Sam are kind of both sides of that coin. This is more a Quantum Leap novel series in general question. Okay. In the TV series, it's pretty well established that it's Sam's body that leaps, and he looks like the leapy because he's surrounded by their aura. But in just about all the novels that I've read which mention it, they pretty consistently show Sam's, or in this case, Al's consciousness as what ends up in the Lee P's body. So when writing Search and Rescue, was this your interpretation of leaping, or was it mandated by the editors so that it could be consistent with the novel series? I don't recall them mandating anything that I had to change, so I don't know whether I had... You know, it's so long ago now. I don't know whether I had a real clear idea of what happened. I do remember debating the issue with friends for the longest time. You know, is his body really there? What is going on? Because nobody seemed to really know for a while there. But I don't remember them basically giving me a quantum leap Bible and saying, you have to stick to this. But I I do know that they've worked very hard to have consistency throughout everything. Even though it might not be consistent with the show, it's still really interesting to read about Sam or Al trying to come to terms with being in a different body and trying to adjust to not having the same abilities that they used to have. So it's still very enjoyable. Absolutely. I can't even imagine what that would be like to wake up and and look in the mirror and that's just not your face. Okay, well, moving on a little bit from Quantum Leap, what are some books that you absolutely love that may have inspired you to become a writer? Oh, I think the very first book that inspired me would be J.M. Barry's Peter Pan. That is probably the one book, no matter where I go and where I move and how many things I have to leave behind me, that book travels with me. What others? Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol is high on my list. That had a huge impact on me when I was very small. I bet you must have loved the fact that Quantum Leap did A Christmas Carol. Oh, absolutely. Everybody's done a Christmas Carol. It's such a wonderful, universal story. And it's, again, it's that idea of redemption, that it doesn't matter how bad you are, you can be saved. And I, I think people want that in their lives, you know, especially when bad things are happening to them. But, you know, as far as other writers, uh, I read a lot of Stephen King because I just really, when when he's got a good turn of phrase, he, he can turn a phrase like nobody else can. I read a lot of Harlan Ellison. Jonathan Carroll, uh, Barbara Hambly is big. I read a lot of nonfiction in all kinds of topics, so pretty broad spectrum. Yep, and the more you read, the more you know, so... Well, and the more you read, the better writer you become. The writers I meet or the people who want to become writers who say, well, I don't have time to read, I don't really understand that because that really is how you learn how to craft a beautiful sentence. Now, our fearless leader, Albie, is a massive Trekkie, and he'd kill me if I didn't ask you about your Star Trek novels, <laughs> Ice Trap and Shell Game. So could you tell us a little bit about them and the writing process? Sure. Ice Trap came out of a collaborative effort with two other writers, Julia Eklar and Karen Rose Sircone. 
Julia had been contracted to write Kobayashi Maru, and after she did that, they asked her if she'd like to do a second one, and of course she was interested, but she asked if we could do it as a collaborative effort. And so that's how the three of us did it. We essentially sat down one day and hammered out the basic plot and how we would break it up chapter by chapter and decided who was going to write which characters and just basically took turns essentially writing a round-robin story. Once they accepted that, they asked all of us if we were interested in doing more of them, and I submitted a proposal for Shell Game. It was approved. I wrote the novel, finished it about three hours under deadline, stayed up all night to finish it, (laughs) took it to Federal Express. I was there when they opened the door in the morning. I gave it to them, went home and collapsed. About a week later, I got a package back with this incredibly thick amount of paper that was all critique and notes. And essentially, I had to, in in two weeks' time, I had to gut and rewrite the the novel in two weeks. And it was a great experience for me. It was a little panicking initially, but it was an incredible learning experience because it helped me learn all about things like focusing a plot line and where am I going with this and making sense out of a narrative. So they did me a huge favor in having me do that. Because they could have easily have turned it over to somebody else and said, you rewrite this. Or they could have said to me, you know what, we've changed our mind, give us our money back. So, Yeah, all feedback is good feedback in my opinion. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. You, you know, it's it's just feedback is, is one person's opinion. You don't have to listen to it if it rings ill in your ear. But a lot of times there's at least a, a grain of truth to the feedback you get. Yeah, that's very true. And often if one person thinks that way, someone else will think that way as well. So, Exactly. The criteria I use when I'm writing is that if somebody complains about something I've put in a manuscript, I'll make note of that to see what else happens. And if I get four people complaining about the same thing, then I know it's definitely a problem and I need to address it. So what's it like writing for an established franchise like Star Trek or Quantum Leap as opposed to starting a new universe from scratch? Well, it's it's a lot of fun to be allowed to play in someone else's sandbox, especially if it's a fandom that you really enjoy. And they've done all the work for you, really. You've got your set of established characters, and you get to make some secondary characters, of course, but... You've got your basic characters. You already know what they look like, what they're about, what their personality quirks are. You know the mechanics of the universe and how it works. So they do, in a great respect, take a lot of the work out of it for you. The other side of that is you are constrained in certain ways. You might want to go off and branch out in a direction and they kind of rein you back in and say, no, 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 that's not how this universe works. Yeah, and with Quantum Leap especially, they always go back to the status quo at the end of the episode so that you can continue with a brand new story next time. So that must be very restrictive too. They did an incredible, I mean, as far as the the program goes, they did an incredible job and they they served as a beautiful example for any of the writers that came along. I just, I'm in awe of how they managed to do essentially a period piece every week. Yeah, it was amazing, and they really made it look authentic, too. Yes, they did, very much so. Quantum Leap was really unique, too, in the sense that they could tell a story about the past, but from the point of view of someone who's living in present day, and you could comment on how wrong some of those things were, too. 
Oh, yeah, definitely. And and you've got just that, it's that ability to, you know, here's, here's Sam leaping into the past, but he already knows about this past, a lot, of, you know, some of it anyway, and seeing, well, knowing about it in the future and actually experiencing it are often two different things. So that was fun to watch his attitudes and opinions change. Are there any franchises that you would have liked to write for but haven't had the chance yet? You know, if they ever decide to do a Game of Thrones franchise, I'm dying to be part of that. Oh, yes. But right, you know, I'm I'm doing so much of my own stuff now that it was a wonderful way for me to kind of cut my writing teeth, and I, I recommend doing it to everybody because it's a great way to learn. But anymore, I'm kind of focused on my own stuff. But yeah, all they have to do is say Game of Thrones and I'm there. <laughs> awesome. Well, speaking of your own stuff, you're currently writing some narrative nonfiction called The Man Who Loved Elephants. So could yeah. you tell us a little bit about that, please? About 18 years ago, I was a volunteer at the Washington Park Zoo in Portland, Oregon, which is now called the Oregon Zoo. And during the short time I was there, I got to spend an evening essentially babysitting the matriarch of our elephant herd who had undergone surgery and needed to be under observation. And I worked that evening with the senior elephant keeper, Roger Hennius, and it was the most amazing four hours of my life. I learned so much in talking with him, and it just impacted me enormously. And for the 18 years, I've been thinking about that, and I wanted to write a short story about an elephant who has died and is waiting for her keeper. To, to join her. And I decided to do a little research on how they keep elephants. I had no real information about the zoo, and it had been so long since I'd been there. And one thing led to another, and somebody put me in touch with Roger. And the more I talked to him, the more I realized that there was a far deeper story here than one little short story could hit. So I began interviewing him last February. We've talked at least once a week, sometimes twice a week ever since then, and uh, we're now in the second draft of his story. Fantastic. So when do you think it might hit the shelves? Right now, I don't even have an agent for it, so uh, that's impossible for me to say. I do have two small press publishers who have expressed an interest in it. I am hoping to shop it out to a few agents and see if I can get any nibbles there. So it would be nice to say next year, but if the way you know the publishing system goes now, if I'm lucky enough to sell it, it, it might be a couple of years down the line. It's hard to say. You've also written a blog, The Wild Ride, Caretaking Mom Through Alzheimer's. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about that, just because it might help someone who's going through a similar experience? Well, the blog originally started out as just kind of my observations on everyday life, it had nothing to do with Alzheimer's at all. And... A couple of years ago, it's probably going on three years ago now, after my dad passed away, it became very clear that my mom could not live on her own. And so my husband and I decided to take her into our home. And Alzheimer's being the progressive disease that it is, you're kind of going along and you think, well, you know, they're, they're not doing too badly. Everything seems great. And all of a sudden, the world drops out from under you. And it really is a roller coaster. You'll have really, really bad days. And then you've got days where if you look at them out of the corner of your eye, you'd swear that they were completely the way they used to be. So there was a lot of up and down, a lot of emotional stuff. And 
for me, writing has always been a way for me to stay sane and to put my world in perspective and to lay out my problems and maybe figure out a way to solve them. And I joined a support group, an Alzheimer's support group, and a woman who was a member suggested that someone needed to start a blog. She didn't she didn't know I was blogging at the time. She said, somebody needs to start a blog to document this wild ride. And the little lights and bells went off in my head. And I went home and got my blog out and changed the name of it to The Wild Ride and just started writing about Alzheimer's because it's necessary for people to have an outlet. People try so hard to say, I've got to be patient all the time. I can't be angry. I can't express my real emotions. And and you need to say, I'm angry. I'm hurt. I'm furious. I'm destitute. Whatever emotions you're feeling, you need to get those out. And that's really what I was trying to do with that blog is to almost give other people permission to feel the pain that they were feeling. Where can our listeners go to read what you've written there? That is on WordPress. It's melissacrandall.wordpress.com. Great. Let's go back to Quantum Leap a little bit now. Do you know if Search and Rescue is going to be made available in ebook form? Oh, I have no idea. You're hired to write the story, and what happens with the story beyond the time that you turn the manuscript in, you don't really know about. So I have no idea what plans there might be for Search and Rescue at all. Well, let's hope they do at some point. I, I, I think if they get the sense that people really want it, you know, I, I don't want to start a letter writing campaign to, you know, the publishers or anything, but I, I think if if people make it known that, yeah, hey, we would like to have these, it could happen. Did you ever feel any extra pressure writing about what's become one of the most beloved series on the planet? Surprisingly, no, because at the time I did it, I don't want to say the fandom was small, but it was smaller than I think it is now, and it's become so vast. So I didn't really feel that pressure. I was writing for the sheer joy of playing with characters that I had come to love, so I I didn't really feel that at all. And what's your favorite part or aspect of Quantum Leap? Oh, I think it's the human relationships. It's it's really the relationship between Sam and Al. To me, everything that happens on that series comes back to that central relationship. Absolutely. And I'm really glad that after everything that Al did for Sam throughout the series, Sam finally helps Al get his um, happiness right at the very end. So. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because I was thinking of that the other day and, and remembering watching the final leap. And, and, you know, I have only seen it once. I watched it when it first aired. And like a lot of fans, I was absolutely furious by the by the end of it. And I think I still am. <laughs> I was like, I, I just think that Sam could have done what he did for Al and not have to sacrifice himself in the process. Yeah, there are a lot of interpretations of that final episode. And it was really cleverly written in such a way that People are still talking about it 25 years later. I I prefer to think he's out there still leaping. But on the other hand, it's like, God, can you just let the poor guy go home? Yeah, it's it's definitely a double-edged sword, isn't it? It really, really is. It was an extremely, it was a beautifully crafted script. It was beautifully acted. It had wonderful secondary characters. But it was just heartbreaking at the end. You know, when the, the final titles rolled 
you could hear this agonized psychic scream all across America with people going, wait a minute. Yeah. Uh, have you written any other Quantum Leap stories or do you have any plans to write another? And if so, where would you have Sam or possibly our Leap to next? I don't have any plans to do any more. I did originally after I, when I submitted the story proposal for Search and Rescue, I submitted five or six all at once. And Search and Rescue was the one that they chose. But there was one I really wanted to do that, oh, I know you're asking me to remember back a long time, but I remember it had something to do with wolves. And I really wanted to put a kind of a, a thread of a query in there as to whether or not lycanthropy was real. But that's not the one they picked. Uh, well, uh, hopefully at some point they'll bring back Quantum Leap and bring back the series and we'll get to oh, hear everything else that lovely. you've got to say. <laughs> you know, the thing is, though, if they were going to bring it back, they'd probably want to cast all different actors. And I just can't imagine anybody but Dean Stockwell and Scott Bakula playing those parts. Do you have anything you'd like to say to your readers before we go? Keep reading. Keep enjoying. Let me know if there's something you'd like me to write. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Melissa. I had a fantastic time. Thank you for having me. This has been terrific. I'm Christopher DeFilippis, and this is the Quantum Leap Radio Sightings, where I tell you about the vintage and collectible radios that appear on Quantum Leap. To add to its many horrors, the Boogeyman features no radios. Looks like you win this round, Deval. <laughs> so it's off to the archives, and we're up to Starcrossed, leap date June 15th, 1972. There are two radios featured in Quantum Leap's sophomore episode, and both are about as appealing as a hamburger smothered in ketchup and extra onions. And if you hate onions as much as I do, that analogy is downright damning. I'm not much of a ketchup fan either. Let's start with the 1968 Panasonic RF-757 which sits prominently on the security desk at the Watergate, where the guards are alerted to Sam's break-in. The RF-757 heralds the rise and eventual dominance of Japanese-made transistor radios, which began flooding the market in the late 60s. It's a portable AM-FM set that's all function and no form. A boring silver box with a vertical slide rule dial along the left side, and four silver knobs lined horizontally against a black strip inset above the speaker on the right. Topping it off is a boxy chrome handle and an ugly telescoping antenna. And it's right at home in 1972. No anachronism here. The only thing even remotely remarkable about the Panasonic RF-757 is that it looks kind of like a missing link between mid-60s Japanese coat pocket transistor radios and 1980s boomboxes. And it does have clean lines that may appeal to someone, somewhere, in theory, the other radio in Starcrossed is barely seen, sitting on an end table in Gerald Bryant's house, serving primarily as a coaster for a white coffee mug. We only get a couple of side-view glimpses of its tuning knob. It could be any number of dozens of flip number or digital alarm clock radios made in the 70s, which means that it's possibly, even probably, anachronistic, but it's nothing to abandon your daughter over. Starcrossed represents the worst of the radios featured in Quantum Leap's first season, the rest of the Season 1 sets are real beauties, and I'll eventually be telling you about all of them. But if you can't wait, check out the Quantum Leap Radio Settings page on my website at deflipside.com. Just click on the Quantum Leap Podcast link and look for the radio dial. Until next time, star-crossed radio fans, 
This is your Quantum Leap Radio Guru, tuning out. So what have you come to the party as, Hayden? Albie, I've come here as the Count from Sesame Street. I would have thought you would have been Al or something. You know, I thought about it, but the Count is probably the most awesome character in all of fiction. I mean, he's a vampire who likes mathematics. And thank God he doesn't sparkle. Plus, the Sesame Street creators are obviously geniuses. In vampire folklore, vampires suffer from arithmomania, which is the compulsion to want to count everything. So if you got attacked, you could throw rice or sand and the vampire would have to count every single grain, giving you a chance to get away. Wow. I'm glad Serenity watches Sesame Street. It'll only do her the world of good. Did Scott Bakula or Dean Stockwell ever appear on Sesame Street? I don't think so, but at one point we were lucky enough to get this. Things are going terrific. Now you're on a new primetime television mm-hmm. show. It's kind of, yep. a, I think that's kind of a breakthrough, don't you? Uh, well, I, I, I guess it is. Uh, but uh, actually, we frogs sort of think of it as, uh, as just a beginning. Yeah. Well, so you've, you've got more shows with frogs uh, coming up? Yeah. Yeah. I've been working on a few of them. Uh, we got uh, my three frogs. Mm-hmm. Sounds, uh, that sounds good. Yeah. Married with tadpoles. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, quantum leapfrog. Yeah. yeah. I'd watch that. Yeah, sure. yeah, that's a good one. Uh, anyway, it sounds like you have a lot of great ideas there, and we mm-hmm. congratulate you. Anyway, I think that's enough shameless promotion. I agree. I might just loosen up with a sip of my smooth, smooth Jim Beam Double Black. Then we can get this party started. By the way, Albie, you said the name of this episode. Now you're in Quantum Deep. This is a warning for all new leapers. This segment will contain spoilers of Deliver Us From Evil, Return of the Evil Leaper, Revenge of the Evil Leaper, and Mirror Image. Not only is the, you know what, the best Halloween episode of Quantum Leap, alright, the only Halloween episode of Quantum Leap, it's also one of the best Halloween specials in all of television. Part of the reason I believe this is because it embodies true horror. Creepy characters, freaky situations, a gripping mystery, and an alarming reveal. But it does not need to resort to showing any gore. Now, everyone would kill me if I didn't mention that this episode actually has a curse. It's said that VCRs and cable stations would fail whenever they tried to play this episode. There'd be power outages, and it even got to the point where people were scared to say the name of this episode. And the author of the episode, who Albie's been lucky enough to talk to, Chris Rupenthal, has been given the nickname Rupen Boogie. Speaking of the writer, though, this episode is very clever in the fact that it keeps everything ambiguous. It was all a dream. Or was it? It also makes you wonder, is Deval really Satan? Or is he something else entirely? Like Lothos, perhaps? Or even another leaper? He says... Putting right what I made wrong. Just how did he do those wrongs? Did he have to go back and redo things? It's also interesting to note that when he morphs from Ben to Al, he also has a red leap effect, like the evil leapers, and he reveals himself when he's touched like other leapers. So, could he be another leaper? 
Or is he something else? Could he be a minion of Satan, like a demon? It also makes us wonder, what was Deval's true purpose? Was it just to kill Sam? Or did he want to do something else? Did he want to torture Sam by making him over and over miss out on putting things right? Did he have to redo everything that Sam's put right again? Who knows? But it did make me think the evil leapers probably were Satan's second attempt at stopping Sam. After all, if we go back to Genesis, it says that they felt like something pulled Sam and is keeping him from going back home. Who's to say that when Lothos and his crew was building their project, that something didn't pull their leaper as well? We also wonder, did God intervene at the very end, saving Sam's life and resetting the leap? I personally believe that is what happened because it's almost identical to what happens in a future episode, Deliver Us From Evil, where it looks like Sam's going to fail, so the entire leap ends up reversed. To Back to the start. So because of the similarities from a leap that definitely did happen, it makes me think that this leap also did happen and that God definitely will always intervene if it looks like Sam's going to fail. There's also a part where Deb Al says, you're not going to make it. Was that Dev Al saying that he was going to kill Sam? Or was it actually him giving a premonition about how the series ends? Another thought struck me as well. How exciting would it be if the devil's invasion had been performed the other way around? What if we had an episode where Sam was actually the devil in disguise, trying to undo the real Sam's good deeds? He could interfere with Ziggy and cause her to trace phony brainwaves that appeared to be Sam's. The real Sam could have even been on an entirely different leap at the time. And this would probably cause a wedge in the project, making them feel like nothing they do is any good. Um, there's also probably some flaws with Sam's coming face to face with the devil this time. But it does sound good, doesn't it? Now, I also wanted to point out, there's also a great deal of religious references in this episode which have been compiled by my friend Sam Beckett fan on Owl's Place website and it's well worth us looking at them and whose words would be better to use than her own. So upon researching for a discussion of Satan in this episode elsewhere, the goat involved in Tully's death came to mind and thus so did Bestie's certainty that it was symbolic of Satan though she'd been unable to put her finger on how. So in that direction, my research shifted and some very intriguing information came up, which not only takes the symbolism of the goat in this episode in a surprising direction, but further supports my headcanon that this episode is connected to the evil leapers by an in-story means. Since clearly writing-wise, the evil leapers were a ratings ploy, so in no way were premeditated in season three. So I present to you folks the Azazel goat, or more commonly known as the scapegoat a goat with the sins of every man in Israel confessed upon its head and released into isolated wild, or bluntly put, banished. It's a ritual of redemption that is recognized as the Day of Atonement. There is both divine and wicked interpretation here, which causes the symbolism to apply to both Satan and Sam. The scapegoat was an offering of appeasement, of reconciliation. Isn't that essentially what Sam is? Banished from his own identity, with the wrongs of the earth cast upon him. Within this, there is the connection to Satan, as some saw the scapegoat as evil, 
the banishment of his influence and thus him, as quoted here. Leviticus 16.21. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. This is a symbol of the angel that is to take Satan away and isolate him from mankind. In addition, Azazel, whose name was used to refer to the scapegoat, was described by the book of Enoch to have corrupted man with deception and temptation and was imprisoned within a desert valley. For this reason, the name is often thought of as referring to the location at which the goat was released. Oh, wait a minute. Isn't Project Quantum Leap isolated in the desert? Also, my attention was unintentionally drawn to this passage. So, would the crowd, called Babylonians or Alexandrians, pull the goat's hair to make it hasten forth, carrying the burden of sins away with it? Yoma 6, 466b, Epistle of Barnabas 7, and the arrival of the shattered animal at the bottom of the valley of the rock of Bet Hadudo, 12 miles away from the city, was signalized by the waving of shawls to the people of Jerusalem, who celebrated the event with boisterous hilarity and amid dancing of the hills. Yoma 668 Ta'an 4. Sam had felt pressured by the committee to step prematurely into the accelerator, a metaphor of sorts to having his hair yanked to urge him hastily forward and recall in the pilot episode, Al described the staff throwing a party to celebrate the success of the experiment involving drunkenness and the printing of X-rated photos. So I couldn't help but see this as an amusing find. The scapegoat has a deep connection with the climax of this episode, when Satan for an instant becomes the goat, among the characters he'd murdered, which again, goat carrying Satan's touch, while in Sam's stranglehold and then was banished along with the sins he'd committed throughout the episode. Not by Sam, by God, but that still fits. He ordered Lucifer to be imprisoned for a thousand years, isolated from mankind. As a side note for Lighting McQueenie, me... If he should peek here in regards to our conversation regarding the possible identity crisis of the owl Satan, obviously I did, the snake in this episode is also a connection to Satan, as it was his guise when he introduced sin to mankind through Eve. Now here is where the evil leapers fit into this. There were two goats victimised on the Day of Atonement. Identical in every way, with no spot or blemish upon them, they were brought before God in offering. One was the scapegoat, a live offering, the offering of appeasement or reconciliation, which, as already discussed, describes Sam. The other was a sacrifice, a sin blood offering. It was slaughtered. Aaliyah was not killed, but was brought before Lothos, and in my personal headcanon, Satan as her offering, and had even less freedom than Sam. She was tortured upon failure and had at one time performed murder assignments, as suggested by the mention that they'd appealed for the home-wrecking department, and Aaliyah having a line, I can't call all those people again. Looking at Sam in contrast, the scapegoat being released into the wilderness represents the concept that Al the bartender had introduced, that Sam can take control of his leaping. Just as I'm sure that it wasn't impossible for the goat to find its way back, it wasn't for Sam either. Aaliyah, not so much. She was a prisoner. Aaliyah actually could also be the scapegoat because she'd been innocent with sin cast upon her, and Zoe had actually offered her in favour to repay a debt, appeasement if you will. 
Tell me, am I crazy to be so analytical? I can't help but be a bit embarrassed by myself sometimes around here because I know Belisario didn't want the show nitpicked even in positive ways, but that's just how I enjoy a franchise. If I don't pick it apart to death, that's it not scoring too high on my interest scale. Well, Sam Beckett fan, I don't think you're crazy to be so analytical. I think all the fans and all our listeners are every bit as analytical and enjoy picking it apart just as much as you. Are you okay, Hayden? Now that I think about it, you've been acting really strange since you got here. You can't remember a lot of what's happened to us on the podcast. You didn't dial into Skype. You were just there. You're dressed in a Halloween costume, and you don't celebrate Halloween in Australia, I don't think. Um, You haven't made a single joke, and you're giving a lot of religious references and thanking God, but you're an atheist. Uh, who are you, and what have you done with Hayden? Yin and Yang. Good and bad. God and... The devil. What do you want from me? To put an end to your meddling. I'm the one who cancelled Quantum Leap. Who gave you the right to go through the series and keep it alive in the hearts of all the fans. I just wanted to watch the whole series through and share it with Heather. Well, you're not going to make it. (laughs) Sorry, Albie. Didn't mean to take so long. I had to get Ziggy to find a back door. Had a lot of trouble getting into Skype. Yay, yay, yay. Albie, who the hell is that? Why are they using my account? It's the devil, Hayden. He's already killed Quantum Leap, and now he wants to destroy the podcast. Tell me he's not real, Hayden. No, Albie. Ziggy says there's definitely someone else on the line with us. (laughs) Albie, you have to get rid of him before he does irreparable damage to your computer and all the podcast files. Boot him from the convo. I, I can't. Well, hang up on him. can't do that either. It's, it's, it's not working. Oh, I knew I should have set out the cursed episode. Hayden, you're a genius. Remember when we did the commentary for the Halloween episode? I said the episode name and Juan kept getting cut off and blocked. Maybe we can banish this Satan with a curse. Oh, it's worth a try. The boogeyman. 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 The I definitely have some deja vu though where I know I've been in that situation before and it's freaky like I I know that I've had I'll say stuff and know for a fact that I've had the same conversation with you kind of like right now well no I mean obviously we record quantum leap conversations but thank you for joining us for this episode of the quantum leap podcast hosted by Albert Burge and Heather Burge with contributions from Hayden McQueenie, Jill Arroway, Suzanne Smiley, and Christopher DeFilippis. Go to quantumleappodcast.com for all your Quantum Leap podcast needs. Join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for special behind-the-scenes content and to find out when a new episode is available. To support the show, please go to patreon.com slash quantumleappodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash quantumleappodcast. The Quantum Leap podcast is edited by Albie, John Buchanis, and Juan Murrow with voice talent provided by John Buchanis, Juan Murrow, Hayden McQueenie, Tawny Fennerin, Suzanne Smiley, Mac Jackson, and Peter Vernasak. The production assistant is Jesse Newman. The executive producer of the Quantum Leap podcast is Albert Burge. 
Juan Murrow and Hayden McQueenie are the co-executive producers. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent or reflect those of the Quantum Leap podcast, its partners or affiliates. The Quantum Leap universe and all it contains is the property of Belisarius Productions and Universal Television. The Quantum Leap podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal Television and no copyright infringement is intended. The Quantum Leap podcast is a barren space production. I often have deja vu or future view. Future vu? Deja vu? <laughs> future vu. Future vu. I don't think I'm... I don't think and I, it pets me and it get, bites me. And it pets me. It pets <laughs> me back. Well, it <laughs> might. It could. But it's like, nice human. <laughs> but it could. It's a yeah, nice human. I, I can see why they did it. They were... Sound like someone came out here. I heard a noise. It was just weird. They're freaking me out. I'm being totally serious. Okay, I'll go check. I gotta pee anyway. <laughs> You're gonna leave me out here? Well, I gotta go protect you. I love how you're like... Are you leaving it recording? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. You didn't hear me. <sighs> caught you. I caught you not oh, hearing me. I looking at my notes. Mm-hmm. I said... Trust me, I'll hear it six times when I edit it. <laughs> I hope you do. I hope you do. I hope you do. Then you'll be like, oh, I missed it. Hocus Pocus, Alamogokus. And uh, what's the other thing? And offend the rest of the audience. <laughs> Isn't he magic? He's supposed to be. Yeah, but then you added Hocus Pocus, Alakabocus, or Alakamocus. whatever. Alamogokus. Mm-hmm. And the arrival of the shattered animal at the bottom of the valley of the rock of Bet Hadoodoo, 12. <laughs> Hadoodoo. <laughs> that's, that's going in the bloopers. No, no Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Uh, I just wanted to watch the whole series through and share it with Heather. Well, you're not going to make it. Yes, Mum. <laughs> I'm in the recording. Uh, okay, go. Well, you're not going to make it. Try again. <laughs> you're going to have some fun in the blooper reel this week, aren't oh, you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I've got to get back into character now.